Good morning. Sorry, I'm not uh, with you there in person. And I do thank uh, Bob for the invitation. I'm reminded I'm I'm here. I think you're better off because I'm some distance from you and and uh, communicating in this way. I'm reminded of a thing that happened to Peter Jarling and I when uh, we were together at USAMRID in the early 90s. He was supposed to send someone a fax, and they asked that he not fax them their number because they were afraid of his transmitting some dangerous virus outside the institute. <laughs> We've come a long way. So this, uh, this problem of misuse of biology is so different than misuse of nuclear technologies. Uh, I consider proliferation over in biology, and it's global. Uh, we have uh, proliferation of experts, proliferation of technologies, and of course the bugs are everywhere. And this is not true uh, necessarily of nuclear uh, technologies or nuclear experts. Uh, almost all of biology going on around the world is also for good. And that likewise is not true uh, in the case of nuclear uh, activities. The likelihood of an attack in biology is probably small, but it's unknown. And most importantly, I believe that it can have an impact that is equivalent to a nuclear weapon. I think uh, Bob knows better than any of us that that was proven in our old offensive program before we shut it down in 69. Josh Lederberg once said, there is no technical solution to this problem of biological warfare. It will require an ethical or a moral solution. Uh, and then he turned to Richard Preston, who was interviewing him, and said, but would an ethical or moral solution appeal to a sociopath? And I think that's the dilemma we face. My interests in recent years have been international engagement as a component of national security policy uh, to protect the homeland from from biological threats. I'd like you to I'd like to take you back to January of 1990 of the Army's Institute of Infectious Diseases. I was the, currently the deputy commander. I was totally focused on medical uh, technical solutions for the force, vaccines, drugs, diagnostics, and of course education. And this was two years. It's hard to put your mind back two years before the Atlanta Olympics, when is, is sort of the signpost in my mind when I started thinking about protecting citizens here at home as well. Before that, it was just the force in the fold of gap. Then one day, I saw the light. Uh, where was this light coming from? It was coming through a window in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs negotiating room in Moscow. Uh, a strange place to see the light, but I was sitting uh, just to the left of the late great American ambassador, Don Maley, who we lost this year. He turned to me uh, with uh, a, sh a page of bracketed text and said, Colonel Franz, you and Colonel Pikovich out there on the other side of the table, go in the other room and work on this part of the bracketed text. It's only science. It's only science. And we did. We came back in 20 minutes. Our brackets were gone because it was only science, and we were operating with the same frame of reference. We walked back into the room sort of proud of ourselves, 
the rest of the panels were still talking about uh, how many of your sites can we visit for every one that of ours you visit. Uh, what can you cover with a canvas and say it's proprietary so we can't we don't have to show it to you? Uh, what's the shape of the table? What's the size of the teams? Who sits with the sun in their eyes? The really important stuff was going on in the room. We uh, what we had done was just science. But then at a break, at the next break, this colonel, who was an MD PhD, I recall, came over to me to the other side, to our side of the table, uh, and started visiting. He said, do you have a family? What kind of, soon we were talking about what kind of research we were doing. And in the past, at the breaks, it had been the Americans and the Brits talking about the Russians over there and the Russians talking about the Americans over there. And this totally changed, at least in this context, um, how I saw the power of personal relationships and communication. Uh, in the context of, of international engagement. And then this observation was subsequently reinforced for me a number of times during the trilateral inspections. And then I led a, a three of the um, UNSCOM inspections for, uh, for, uh, uh, in, in Iraq and had the same thing happen, similar things happen on several different occasions. So I just tucked that away in my mind uh, and, and then eventually, right after 9-11 and 10-4, started talking about and promoting health engagement for national security. It wasn't something I'd really thought that much about before. And I, uh, I sort of set up a hypothesis in, in those days and said, working together on hard, technical, ID, public uh, infectious disease, and public health problems, common problems, can give us the following. One, it can impact the naturally occurring disease in the area, and that's a testable hypothesis. I said it can provide some transparency regarding capabilities, and maybe even intent, in the area in which you're working. Uh, I said maybe it can undermine popular support for terrorism in that region. And finally, if those things occur, it can reduce the likelihood of an intentional event. My friends were skeptical. Some st are still skeptical. My security friends said it won't stop terrorism. My public health friends said, I don't want to do security. Uh, some legislators and staffers uh, I believe, said it's not national security, it's public health. And my international colleagues on more than one occasion said, I trust you, Dave, I don't trust your government. Uh, I had some really smart colleagues uh, here in the U.S. that I talked with whom I talked about these issues, and on more than one occasion they would sort of pat me on the head and say, Dave, you're doing the Lord's work. It's fine. Uh, it's okay. Uh, but not a lot of buy-in. So, so, and I don't, I don't really uh, see this. Uh, I don't blame them for this, this feeling because I think engagement for biosecurity isn't a perfect solution, uh, but it can make a difference and at a relatively low cost. 
I think it must be at least part of the solution. I believe that science engagement can serve to dissuade at a personal or even a national level. It can uh, stabilize a region, making it less comfortable for uh, health, health security, certainly can stabilize a region. It can enlighten us, as I mentioned, with regard to uh, capabilities and potential threats. And it can keep open lines of communication, which is really critical. I still have open lines of communication with many of those colleagues, including those in Russia. We talk regularly, even when our governments are not uh, talking as they did in the past. The biggest limitations <coughs> of, um, of uh, engagement for uh, health security, I think, are it doesn't scale well, not easily at least. And I think there may be a solution to that. And uh, in my experience, leadership doesn't always understand. If you haven't done it, uh, and many of you have, uh, you, you don't always get the value of this kind of activity. I think we've been spending around $300 million a year. I think Beth Cameron's in the audience. She can correct me if, if I'm wrong on that. We've been doing that for 15 or 20 years. Uh, we've built a lot of high <laughs> containment labs and uh, consolidated pathogens in various labs around, uh, around the world. We built fences around public health labs. We've trained and issued certificates that are uh, of safety and security training that are, are pinned on walls around the world. But I'm convinced that unless we leave friends behind when we depart, we don't know what's going on in those labs after we're gone. So what can we do to make engagement more effective? I think if we could do one, if I could do one thing, I would change the metrics that, uh, that we set out with. Um, there have been many studies on metrics. The Academy has done one. Other think tanks have done studies on metrics. And almost all of them relate to things like regulations and training and personal reliability and those kinds of things. Uh, you know, if you send a contractor out to do this work and you, you say build a lab and put a fence around it, uh, a lab of the quality that you would have on Fort Detrick. That contractor will go out like this, build that lab, and disreg often disregard the human relationships that are so important. And when that contractor leaves or when uh, our government representatives leave, uh, we don't know what's going on in the lab necessarily unless we have built those critical human relationships. So I'd like to just in closing mention four sort of policy options. At the highest level, use output rather than input metrics. Uh, I think it might be possible to scale better, than, make it scale better than we have in the past if we send our contractors out with metrics that uh, reflect the importance of human relationships and communication and, uh, and attempts to build trust rather than just checking boxes as to what they have done while they're there. Uh, many or maybe almost all Americans who represent us in this way are contractors. And I think if we can reward them for building human relationships, send fewer, fewer people but more credible people 
uh, will make a difference. My favorite people in this business and my role models are Norm Newrider and Sig Hecker. Norm in, in biology and a lot of other things and Sig, of course, in nuclear, uh, nuclear work. They really get it. They're the right phenotype, but, but there aren't many Norm Newriders and Sig Heckers in our country. Uh, I believe that actually some of the, the very expensive big contractor programs have actually done harm with regard to perceptions of our country in, um, in those other areas in which we've worked. Secondly, because almost all, uh, almost everyone, for everyone, natural disease is a far greater threat than terrorism, I think we need to lead with public health and then follow with security. Uh, strategically, we didn't transition well at all from taking down the weapons programs using the non-Luger program, taking down the weapons programs in the former Soviet Union to the situation in the 21st century with regard to biotechnology, infectious disease, public health. And, uh, and terrorism as opposed to state-sponsored programs. That transition was way too slow and uh, in, some, in some circles we're still thinking Cold War. We're still fighting the last war. Uh, third, don't overpromise. I see this time and again. Uh, our colleagues out there are looking at America through, through us in many cases when we're engaging. And uh, they think, they see what they see on, on TV with regard to America, and they think anything's possible there, and it can be done fast. Then what we promise gets hung up in our bureaucracy, and they don't understand, and we have to make excuses for, for our, our efforts in our country, even though we mean very well. And finally, we need to think long-term. Certainly, they think long-term. Uh, one of the things that has frustrated me most over the years is what I call contractor churn. One of our implementing agencies will hire a contractor to engage, and then they find one that's a little bit cheaper or a little bit better, they think, and they switch contractors after a couple of years. These need to be long-term relationships. My closest friends, for example, in the former Soviet Union date back to 1991, um, and those are strong, trusted, personal relationships. If you're moving contractors in and out uh, constantly, it just, it just doesn't work. Uh, I mentioned that in the early days after 9-11 and 10-4, I started becoming interested in, in health engagement for national security. We've made a lot of progress. Thanks to the groundwork laid by Bob Cadlick and uh, and Ben Petro, while they were in the White House, President Obama put out PDD-2 on, on biosecurity, which was a good step forward in, in 2009. And then more recently, Beth, who's in the audience, has been working on the global health security agenda. These are all, in my opinion, the right thing to do. I think we're still having trouble implementing all across that space. We mean well but implementation is sometimes a problem. So in summary, it's a powerful tool for prevention, I believe. We've never spent a lot on it. Uh, we could get much more bang for our buck if we did it right. I think Josh was right. Uh, there is no technical solution. 
I think Andy Weber is still right. It's the people. It's the people. Uh, I, I believe that how we engage is much more important than what we engage in. And how we engage with the people is much more important than how we engage with the bugs. Too often we go after that select agent list in other countries where uh, their issues are HIV, drug-resistant TB, hepatitis, soil parasites, and so on. And we're talking about anthrax, plague, tularemia, acute fever, uh, botulinum, and the SEB, and their eyes glaze over. We've got to engage the people. And I just close with a quote that I like. It's possible to successfully accomplish what's measurable and fail in the engagement. And I'll stop with that. And thanks again for the opportunity and for, I, I apologize for the inconvenience of having to deal with me electronically. I don't know whether I'm able to, to hear questions. Bob, no. Okay. But, but if uh, we could call up the other panelists now and um, Dr. Gerstein, Dr. Okay, Cameron, and uh, Dr. Stoto. So go ahead and get off. Okay. So let me thank all of you for being here. Let me apologize that we started late. I did comment uh, to Governor Ridge, I believe, that, that we were actually getting late even by Senate standards. And he said, but not by President Clinton's standards. <laughs> <laughs> so you can take comfort from, <laughs> from that. Uh, I appreciate uh, all of you uh, being here. Uh, uh, should we start in the order on the sheet, Dr. Gerstein? Please. I think we have your bios, so we don't have to repeat them. This is a very, uh, very experienced group. I don't think there's anybody testifying today who does not have a doctorate of one form or another. No, there's a few on the last panel who are misters. Doctor, all yours. Well, thanks, sir, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here today and, uh, and talk to the panel a little bit. My topic is the Biological Weapons Convention. And uh, it actually falls very nicely after Dave Franz's talk uh, as he laid out much of uh, the way we think about uh, the, the bio-engagement process. Uh, and perhaps uh, what I'll be able to do is to fit in where the, the BWC uh, will most appropriately uh, fit in this um, process. Uh, let me begin with a couple disclaimers. First, I recently left the government and I'm now at RAND but uh, my remarks today are uh, in my private capacity. And uh, they largely come from uh, research and a book that I put together. Uh, Secretary Ridge and uh, Senator, you have a, a copy of that. I apologize to the other panel members. I uh, just ran out of copies, so to speak. Just for the webcast, I'm going to hold For the webcast, up. absolutely. Uh, so what I'll start out by saying is my presentation today is really more about questions than it is about answers. Uh, because it is an area where there are a lot of questions. And I think uh, Dave's discussion and the, the talk about uh, intent and understanding relationships is actually key to that. Will you, for the record, just give us a two or three sentence uh, description of the, of the Biological Weapons Convention? Actually, Senator, I'm going to do better than that. I'm, I'm going to show you uh, the text of the treaty uh, for the relevant sections that we are going to talk to. Um, so let me set the stage, though, on, on this uh, concept of the BWC and say that I feel like we are one bioterrorist, that is, a microbiologist with extreme views, away from a catastrophe. 
Uh, and I don't consider myself an alarmist, but rather a realist. And as we've seen in the recent Ebola, uh, we are not prepared to be able to handle uh, the sorts of emerging infectious disease, certainly if it was perpetrated in a deliberate fashion. Now, there are many tools that can be employed. I'm only talking about one of them. They start out with the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1540, the WHO. Beth's going to talk a little bit about uh, the global health security agenda. Dave talked about CTR. So here's my storyline, and I'm going to use this chart to be able to talk you through it. And it really talks about three pieces. First is the historical perspective on biological weapons. Then what's happened through the biotech and the dual use concerns, and then try to put that into the likelihood of use. So if you look at this chart, very complex as you walk across, but we look at state-sponsored BW, and that was really the rationale for the BWC being put in place, and it entered into force in 1975. It had been negotiated over a three-year period. And even since that time, there are some 20 to 25 states who have at some point in their history engaged in offensive biological warfare, whether that's just experimentation or whether they actually developed weapons. And today, if you look at the Department of State annual report, they talk about some four or five nations which we have concerns about. Most recently, we've been thinking about bioterror, and we have the Rajneeshi attack, uh, the, what occurred in Oregon, uh, where we had uh, 750 uh, people sickened, no casualties, no deaths. Om Shinriko, uh, where they tried to use biological weapons, wound up turning to chemical weapons, and then the Amerithrax attack, five killed, 22 sickened, and uh, a pretty significant economic and psychological impact. We also have things like Inspire Magazine, where people are calling for like-minded jihadists to uh, engage in biological warfare. Now, also on the historical perspective, we think about uh, emerging infectious disease. And I won't go through each of these, but there is a real lesson to be learned in terms of our preparedness. And I know we'll talk more about that later. But in the historical perspective, I would say what we're looking at today is really state-like capabilities in the hands of non-state actors. If you go to the second part of the chart on biotech and dual use, what you're seeing is just a rush in terms of uh, the advances in biotechnology. And today uh, we're seeing things that not 10, 20 years ago were Nobel laureate, and today it's being done in high schools, junior high schools, with experimentation. <coughs> And you're also seeing the proliferation of things like DIY or do-it-yourself biology, which is very, very frightening. People being able to do experimentation not in the proper containment levels. We also have issues such as the proliferation of biological safety level laboratories. Uh, I showed down there the proliferation of BSL-3 plus labs. There are over 1,400 BSL-3 plus labs in the United States. And so that is a pretty large proliferation window, if you think it that way, and it doesn't include uh, what the rest of the globe has. So in terms of a likelihood of event, I've tried to graphically portray it by showing that the likelihood of a state attack has largely gone down. And the chance of an accident, a misuse, or even bioterror has dramatically increased. Of course, we always have to think about uh, the naturally occurring. So this is how I frame up the argument. Now here is, Senator, your question about the BWC and what it says. So let me frame the BWC by saying it's 
about a five-page long treaty. It consists of 1,700 words, and it is only a statement of intent. It does not provide uh, a legal framework for doing verification, and that was actually deliberate. But Article I is very important. It is the central component to this treaty, and it really begins with this, this concept of not being able to develop, produce, stockpile, or otherwise acquire or retain. And so that frames up the basis for how we think about the BWC. And it goes on to say uh, microbial agents, biological agents, and toxins. But the key point here is the last line of that number one, which talks about that have no justification for prophylactic, protective, or other peaceful purposes, meaning you can actually develop biological weapons if you are using it for prophylactic, protective, or other peaceful purposes. And as you know, in many of our laboratories, government laboratories, we are doing work that is trying to ensure that we have appropriate medical countermeasures, that we have appropriate uh, protective equipment, et cetera. And then the final part of the article talks about uh, the weapons and the means. So that's the central part of the BWC. Now, this, the next chart walks through the other articles. And there are 15 total articles that encompass the original treaty. But of those, only eight are really relevant. The rest are, uh, if you will, foundational and uh, tell you where the, the treaty has been uh, filed, for example. But let's look at these articles so that we can better understand. So Article 2 is a one-time, you have to destroy any stocks that you had. Article 3, you're saying you're not going to transfer or assist others. Uh, Article 4 says we have to have national measures such as laws, such as biosafety regulations, et cetera. Uh, Article uh, 5 talks about a bilateral multilateral consultation to solve any problems that might occur. Article 6 allows for the UN Security Council to be involved. Article uh, 7 talks about uh, helping states that might have been exposed. And Article 10 talks about encouraging peaceful uses. But here's the rub. Many of these articles are actually in uh, direct contravention to each other. So when you look at Article 3, which talks about not to transfer, versus Article 10, which encourages the peaceful use, you get onto the horns of a dilemma. How much do you share with uh, nations? There's also the question of a lack of a verification regime, which has been problematic throughout the history of this regime. And even our close allies are keen to see a verification regime be put in place. And that's something that we're going to have to deal with. I'll come back to that. But Articles 5 and 6 could actually form that basis. Uh, so moving now to uh, kind of my original research was trying to establish why does the BWC matter? It's a 40-year-old convention. Does it even have any relevance in this world that we're living in today with biotechnology moving at the speeds it is? And I actually came to conclude that indeed it does. And I won't go through each of these, but let me just give you a couple factoids. So for example, uh, when you take what's going on with public health, you look at our food supply, which is about a trillion dollars, and you look at our medical uh, throughout the United States, that represents 20% or $3 trillion of a $15 trillion economy. What about invasive species? Are they part of the convention? Do we worry about that? 
What if it was deliberately uh, introduced into someone's food supply or into someone's environment? And so my assessment would be, and I, again, I won't go through each of these, but it is an absolutely essential part of our non-proliferation regime. But I will also say that we have not treated it in such a way. So let me just talk about the control mechanisms very quickly. The BWC actually runs on a five-year cycle. And the RevCon is the only part of the cycle that was introduced with the original treaty. And what's happened is the RevCon was supposed to be held every five years. It's a three-week long session. It's very much set piece. In other words, the first week are nothing but statements of intent and desire to see improvements. Uh, number, the week number two is about trying to ensure that a work plan exists. And week three is the frenetic accomplishing of the final document. Uh, and then it, it is all filed and, and it's all, it ends for the five-year period. Uh, the BWC has demonstrated a complete inability to work on hard issues. Uh, Sverd lost the yellow rain incidents, the trilateral agreement between the UK, the Russians, or the, the Soviets, and uh, the United States was put in place because uh, there was no ability to gain trust between those three um, out within the BWC. Think about the H5N1 articles uh, that occurred in 2011, where we had those experiments. That certainly wasn't discussed, and there was an ongoing review conference that was held. Now, as you walk through the previous review conferences, there were some intents to, uh, to try to bring in questions like, what's the impact on biotechnology? Uh, there was an introduction of confidence-building measures. Interestingly, only about one-third of all nations who have signed the treaty actually submit annual confidence-building measure submissions reporting on what sort of biological defense work they do. Uh, we also had a push in 1991 to develop a verification regime. Uh, this resulted in a, what we called the rolling text, uh, and it finally resulted in the disaster of 2001 in which the U.S. delegation, under the direction of uh, Ambassador Maley uh, with guidance from Washington, walked out of the, the BWC RevCon. Uh, many thought that that might end the BWC. Uh, luckily, 2006, there was hope for the future. There was renewed emphasis on trying to have a work plan, and they added two annual meetings, one for experts and one for the meeting of states, parties, the ambassadors. 2011 turned out not to be a good RevCon, and in fact, the United States did uh, not very well in achieving its uh, ongoing objectives uh, as it went into the, uh, the session. So 2016, December 2016 is the next uh, RevCon. And the question will be, what will we achieve during that one? So here's uh, really the last slide, and it talks about what's the future of the BWC. And again, I said I was going to give you more questions than answers. But what is the effectiveness of the BWC? What do we want it to do? Do we even have a common understanding of the threat? We believe the threat is that entire spectrum that I show up here. But many of our allies don't believe in that. They would rather see us talk only about the deliberate use of biological weapons or maybe vandalism and sabotage, but certainly are not interested in bringing natural disease into uh, the discussion. Uh, what about the daily relevance? 
Uh, we talked about the H5N1. We have Ebola. Is there any uh, discussion of that within a, a BWC forum? And the answer is no. Looking at the different forum for WMD, the IAEA has over 2,500 people on its staff. The OPCW has several hundred. And the ISU, the, the Implementation Support Unit, for the BWC has three people. Are we serious about this issue or not? And so this is something that the globe, uh, the world, uh, and the United States are going to have to deal with. I think I'll stop there. I'll just I'll put the last slide is the BWC is at a crossroads. And you know, is it the most important treaty of the 21st century that we've never heard of, or just an irrelevant anachronism? Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot, Dr. Gerstein. I'm going to propose that we go on to the other two witnesses and then have a time for questions because of the hour. Uh, Dr. Cameron, thank you for being here. Thanks very much, and thank you, Senator, and thanks for, for having me. Um, and I apologize for my voice. Unlike Dave, I don't think I'm contagious anymore. Um, but it's interesting that we're here talking about global health security in the context of two sick panelists. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the global health security agenda. And I have several slides, but um, definitely feel free to stop and ask questions. Um, my caveat is that um, I'm here to talk about this element of my portfolio and not other elements that I, that I don't work on. Um, but I, I, am, I am also working uh, very closely on the biosecurity element of the global health security agenda. And I will be talking about how some of what Dave Franz talked about feeds into this effort to sort of make that link. Um, so I'd just like to lead off, actually, with a quote that's on the screen, which is about changing the global mindset about biological th threats as national security priorities. And the global health security agenda, at its heart, is about raising the priority of this issue, this issue being countering infectious disease threats of any origin, um, in the minds of, of leaders, to make this a leader, really a leader's level priority and a national security priority. And it is a national security priority uh, for this administration. And I think over the last 10 years, in fact, our government has done a fantastic job since the anthrax attacks of bringing together the health and the security community. Um, that isn't happening in every country around the world. And that's an important component of what I'm going to talk about. So the vision of the global health security agenda is very, uh, very simple. It's very ambitious. Um, and it's to attain a world safe and secure from global health threats posed by infectious diseases. And that's, if you read the subtext, that's very clearly whether the disease is naturally occurring, deliberate, or accidentally caused. Um, and on purpose, these elements were, were put together. There are many programs, Dave talked about our cooperative threat reduction efforts that have focused on biosecurity and biosurveillance working with public health and security communities around the world. We have programs at CDC, at USAID, that focus more on the public health and development sector. Um, and this is true for funders around the world. But we recognized, um, as a government ourselves, and also working with our partners, that it's really important to bring those efforts together and to start talking not just about coordinating, but about synchronizing those activities and really looking at common goals and targets. So simply put, before I get Further into this, the global health security agenda is a coalition of countries that have come together to accelerate progress on countering infectious disease threats by making new concrete commitments in one or more areas of the agenda to either improve their own capability nationally, work regionally with partners, or work on a global basis with many partners around the world. Um, it is not a new strategy. It's not a treaty. 
Um, it is a mechanism of actually doing some, some more of the work that Dave Franz talked about, bringing partners together and also providing leadership to other countries around the world that want to work in this area with us. And I'll give some, some examples of how that works. Um, I'm going to start really quickly, though, by mentioning what, what Dave also framed, which is what is the policy <laughs> basis for this. So in 2009, the Obama administration released the National, National Strategy for Countering Biological Threats, which was Presidential Policy Directive 2. The first objective of its seven objectives is to promote global health security. And throughout this document, there's really a, a large discussion of bringing together different sectors of government to synchronize efforts. And so from 2009, moving into 2012, and then launching the agenda, we launched it in February of 2014, um, there was a discussion within our own government and also working with others about why this was really needed. This slide I put up here largely because it's a little bit ironic. Um, I created this slide about eight months ago, and the global health security agenda was launched before the first cases in Guinea of Ebola came to light. Um, this slide was, was needed in my briefings eight months ago, 12 <laughs> months ago. It's not really needed anymore. It's really front page news now. But it bears repeating that we're an, inter we're an interconnected world. Not, no one nation can do this on its own. We're all affected by what happens everywhere. And this is a huge economic issue as well. Um, we know this from SARS, which cost an estimated $30 billion. We know this from the anthrax attacks. We certainly know that Ebola is costing billions um, around the world. The international health regulations are an important part of this. Um, every country in the world that is a member of the WHO, so 194 WHO member states, have signed on to be prepared for public health emergencies of international concern. But 194 member states don't actually have the capacity that they need to be able to be prepared. And the deadline that countries set for themselves for that was 2012. In 2012, less than 80 percent of countries uh, were prepared. I'm sorry, less than 20% of countries were prepared. 80% of countries were not prepared. And today in 2014, we're at only 30% of countries say that they are prepared. Um, and that's really a wake-up call, and it was a wake-up call for the world in 2012, and that's around the time we started talking about the need to bring these efforts together under the Global Health Security Agenda, or I'm going to shortcut it to, to GHSA. Um, the IHR, um, one important thing to know about them, they are a self-report. So countries self-assess their capabilities. Um, and this is a good process, but it is, doesn't include an independent external assessment uh, mechanism. And um, there aren't really clear measurable targets for each one of the objectives of the IHR. And so this is another thing that we've been looking at tackling under the GHSA. This slide does a, a really good job at showing the interconnected nature of the world um, through plane travel, as, as you're more than well aware. I think it's worth actually noting that in February of 2014, when we launched the GHSA, we, we further said, new diseases are inevitable, but we have the tools to greatly reduce threats posed by global epidemics. And importantly, we can put in place a safe, secure, globally linked, and interoperable system to prevent, detect, and respond. And again, this is very ambitious, but we, we absolutely need to get there. And the Ebola epidemic, I think, has only shown us wh why we need to get there and why we need to do it faster. So at the heart of the GHSA, and I'll show you the actual objectives on the, on the next slide. Um, and again, I should, say, I should have said at the outset that everything related to this is publicly available. It's on the CDC 
website for global health security. And so every document that we've put forward is public, and there are 44 countries that are part of this now, all participating in this um, and, and working very closely together as a, as a unit in many cases. It's really built on three risks. So the risk posed by emerging organisms, the risk posed by drug-resistant microorganisms like antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and the risk posed by intentional creation of disease, which we've heard you know, much about already this morning, is very much also at the heart of this. Three opportunities. I think societal commitment has never been greater to counter, to, to step up and make more concrete commitments to develop the capability that we need to prevent, detect, and respond effectively. New technology. Technology is important here. Not only can technology help us develop the tests we need for diseases like Ebola, but technologies can actually obviate the need to store especially dangerous pathogens, which is a biosecurity risk. And so technology is, is very important here. And working with countries to sustainably build technology platforms is also critically important. And then success leads to success. There's a lot of models out there. We have done a, a very good job of working with countries around the world to build capacity. We can build on success that we already have, but we need to be able to do it a little bit more in a much more synchronized fashion working with partners around the world. And then three priorities, prevention, detection, and response. And so the agenda itself, and this is the shorthand version, um, is purposefully using language that is simple and easy to understand because the idea here was, was to not reinvent the international health regulations. It was to show leaders, ministries of foreign affairs, um, leaders in, in um, cabinets around the world that these are important priorities. The international health regulations and its national focal points lie in ministries of health. And as you all know, ministries of health are not usually at the table when cabinet meetings are happening in other countries. Um, they are fortunately at all of the cabinet meetings <laughs> that we're having about Ebola and, and around the table as we're talking about biological threats in our country, but that's not true everywhere in the world. They don't have the seat of power. Ministries of Foreign Affairs need to care about biological threats. Leaders and prime ministers need to care about biological threats. And at the heart of this, elevating this to a leader's level priority um, was important. So we purposefully made the language simple and easy to understand. But then, and I'm going to skip a slide here. Can? Nope. Can we go forward, forward or not? Can we not? Yeah. Yep, sorry. So I'll just keep talking. Um, we, you can skip to the next slide, or I can. Yeah. So the U.S., for its own commitment, we actually release targets for each one of these objectives, very specific, measurable goals and indicators. Um, and we began working with the countries that are part of the GHSA. Um, when we launched, we had about 30 countries and international organizations, including the WHO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the World Health, the World Organization for Animal Health, Interpol um, is part of this. And we started working with those countries to actually build action plans for each of these areas and measurable targets that would map back to each area. Where we've actually gotten with this is, is weedy, but worth noting, and I can probably stop here um, and, and answer some questions. Um, we built on the basis of each one of these areas with other partners specific action plans which are now published on the web. And there's one example for each area, <laughs> prevention, detection, and response. I'm just going to talk about biosafety and biosecurity for a second. We challenged countries when we launched this in February to actually bring forward a new commitment by September. So we said, 
We're going to launch this effort in February. We're going to bring everyone to the White House in September. Can you bring something new, more than one something, hopefully, across any of these areas, and hopefully more than one? Um, and then we said, would you be willing to actually lead in one of these areas, either working in your own country, working regionally, or working internationally? And we got an enormous response. In six months, we managed to build 100 commitments in specific areas, which we're now working towards actually Im implementing, and partners are working on implementing. But to get back to something that Dave Fran said, which is critically important, this is about not just the US saying what we're going to do. This is about the rest of the world taking on biosecurity as a public health priority. This is about the rest of the world making biological threats a priority. We can lead, but we have to do it with, with a large number of partners. So biosafety and biosecurity, we have leading countries that are as disparate as Peru, Kenya, and Denmark. And Kenya and Denmark are actually working together on a national biosafety and biosecurity model, which Denmark has incorporated in its own government, Kenya is working to implement it in its country. And they're both working together with all of the partners on this list to figure out ways that it can actually be replicated around the world. And it very much harkens back to some of the work that the US has done working with Kenya through the CTR <laughs> programs that Dave, went, uh, that Dave went through. The point here is not about the actual work. The point is that these partners are not just saying what they're going to do, they're actually doing it. So Kenya is leading meetings about biosafety and biosecurity now, and that's what needs to happen. And they're doing it from their Ministry of Health, which is also, um, as Dave mentioned, what, what really needs to happen to get this incorporated. So where are we going with this? Um, next slide. So where are we going with this? We have, we brought together in September um, President Obama and National Security Advisor Rice Secretary Hegel, Secretary Kerry, Secretary Burwell, and leaders from 43 other countries and six international organizations came together to make these new commitments to accelerate progress. We've been working towards a steering group. These action groups are getting together on a regular basis over the phone and in person. And we've set forward a five-year timeline to actually make progress against these targets. This week in Georgia, we have experts from Saudi Arabia, experts from Kenya, uh, experts from the United States and Finland coming together to assess the country against these targets to see if they hold up and whether an independent external assessment can actually be a useful tool. But the bottom line is that we have to implement the commitments that we have, and this is where we're, we're very much focused. So no one said it better than the, the President on September 26th. We've, we've made the commitments, we've got to turn them into concrete action, and we've got to start in West Africa so that we never see a tragedy like we've seen on this scale. Because I'm showing this slide, um, I do want to say there's a lot of people in this slide that, that people know. Secretary Burwell is to our right, obviously the President. Margaret Chan, the Director General of the WHO, who's been, been in the news lately. David Navarro, uh, now at the UN, the coordinator for Ebola. But the man in the middle is really the most important person in this shot. And he is Melvin Korkor. He's a health worker from Liberia who's an Ebola survivor. He came to our meeting to share his story, but importantly, the piece that he, he wanted to hit home is that he's going back to work on building the health system in his own country. And so what we want to do through the Global Health Security Agenda is develop ways for countries to take leadership, to develop a framework with some measurable concrete goals, and to make this a leader's level priority that continues for five years, that is beyond five years, hopefully, but is not something that just ends as the epidemic wanes. So that's. That's um, it in a nutshell. Thanks. <clears throat>
Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dr. Kerman. I must say there's a lot more going on than I thought was. So we'll, we'll get to ask you a little more about it. Would you help me with the pronunciation of your last name? Uh, it's Stoto. Stoto. Okay. Yes. There was one of two choices I had. Stato <laughs> was the other one. That's the most common one. Thank you. <laughs> but thank you for asking. Uh, and Dr. Stoto, thank you uh, very much for being here. We welcome your testimony. And thank you for, for having me. Um, I'm on the faculty at uh, Georgetown, and for the last um, eight or uh, ten years, I've been working with colleagues at Georgetown Law Center and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health on issues about uh, public health emergency preparedness. Um, and we've done a lot of work looking at the uh, public health response to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, and we're beginning to turn our attention now to the response to Ebola. Um, and I'm going to speak today about the response in the United States, focusing on quarantine and other related um, issues. One of the things that we found in this is that it's important to be clear about your, your, your goals and that oftentimes that policies uh, developed uh, with one set of goals in mind um, turn out uh, not to be the, most, uh, the best policy when the situation has changed and the goals might be uh, uh, different. And um, in particular, there are two different goals that are implicit in, in, in Ebola. Um, one is preventing individuals infected um, with Ebola from um, entering the United States. And the alternative goal is about minimizing the mortality and the morbidity and the disruption caused by Ebola virus among Americans. And you would think that the first um, leads to the second, but that's not necessarily um, true. Um, it may be um, better to actually uh, control the, uh, the, the, the epidemic uh, abroad to prevent the number of cases potentially uh, coming into the United States. And um, indeed, some of the things we might do to prevent people from coming to the United States could be counterproductive. If we uh, made it hard for uh, Americans to go abroad and help to deal with the, uh, um, the epidemic, and maybe they may not want to do it and may uh, make the, the situation um, a little bit harder to, to, to control. Uh, it's also not practical uh, in many respects to uh, stop people from uh, coming in altogether. We can't simply close the border. There are no direct flights from the, the affected um, uh, countries, and we often don't know um, who's infected for the first week or so and can't tell by signs and symptoms such as fever or even laboratory uh, tests. And in fact, uh, to simply prevent people from coming, um, uh, closing the border in, in, in this way would be a, a contravention of the international <coughs> health regulations which have the force of, uh, of, of law. So I, the alternative that I want to speak about um, is to be sure that we have a public health system in the United States that can identify potentially infected individuals as soon as possible, and then to treat them, and, and also to prevent the virus from spreading to others. These, you notice, are the second and the third goals of the global health security um, agenda <coughs> applied um, in, in the United States. And uh, you know, this this approach would also have the benefit of helping us to deal with outbreaks that start in the United States um, as as well. So uh, the goal um, in uh, public health in controlling epidemics is typically to keep people um, who are infected from uh, contacting others who are not yet infected and to prevent, uh, therefore, prevent um, in infections. Um, and, and this is true whether it's contracted in the U.S. or, or abroad. There are a number of ways of doing this. Um, isolation involves the separation of patients who are known to be um, ill um, already from, uh, from others, and this is <coughs> always a good idea, first of all, because those patients need to be uh, treated and it's clearly in their uh, best interest, their own best interest uh, to do this. Uh, there's a, uh, a term, French term, cordon <coughs> of care, 
uh, which, in which is a boundary is created around the geographical area where the, the epidemic is particularly um, bad and no one is allowed to go in um, or out. And um, uh, we saw in West Africa that, that this is actually difficult to enforce and cause social disruption that really interferes with public health efforts and uh, it's probably not an effective uh, way to uh, do business. Um, in some cases, uh, we can talk about community re restrictions or things sometimes known as social distancing, where we close schools or businesses or have restrictions on public transportations and uh, gr uh, group events and so on. Uh, and because of the disruption it causes, this is not warranted in general unless the disease is easily transmitted when asymptomatic um, and, and especially widespread. So that really leaves us with quarantine um, as, as the way to focus uh, our, our attention. And what that involves in public health terminology is the separation of people who are known or believed to have been uh, infected but are not yet sick. That's the, the critical things. We're talking about people who might be infected because they've been in contact uh, with, with, with others but are not yet uh, sick. Um, and this is most important if the disease can be spread before a person shows symptoms, which is possible but not that likely um, with uh, Ebola. And the challenge, of course, is that it's difficult to know um, who is infectious and, and who isn't um, at, at, at this stage. We necessarily have to cast a wider net and include many people who are not themselves uh, infectious. Um, and that, of course, may lead them to becoming infectious if, if they're uh, put in contact with other people who are. Uh, this can be done on a voluntary basis, and that was done successfully in Toronto during the SARS outbreak in 2004, or it could be mandatory. Um, and uh, it should be noted that government has an obligation to support those in quarantine uh, with food and shelter in a safe and humane um, environment. So what can we learn from the U.S. response to Ebola um, so far? Well, um, setting aside um, the uh, individuals who have come into the United States for treatment when it was well known that they had um, Ebola, there really have been only four cases. Um, one is uh, Eric Duncan, a, a man who came from Liberia uh, to Dallas in September and unfortunately um, died. Uh, there are two nurses who treated Mr. Duncan um, who were infected and who both were treated and, and survived. And the fourth case is Dr. Craig Spencer who came to New home to New York City after treating Ebola patients in Guinea um, who also uh, received prompt attention and survived. There were no subsequent uh, cases in, in, in New York. Um, I would say that this is hardly evidence of failure. Maybe we can do better, but it's not um, the worst that you can imagine. So to analyze this more thoroughly, we've begun to consider whether public health officials, first of all, have the legal authority and secondly, have the operational capabilities necessary to identify potentially infected individuals as soon as possible, GHSA number two, um, and to prevent the virus from spreading to others through isolation and quarantine, um, the third uh, objective. So what about public health authorities? As a constitutional matter, public health is generally a state um, responsibility. And this is typically authorized by state laws and emergency declarations, and often implemented by county and city health officials as well as uh, state health officials. Uh, the major exception uh, to this has to do with the federal government's responsibility for uh, infection control at the border uh, and uh, issues having to do with interstate uh, commerce. Um, all states have public health laws that require immediate reporting of, uh, to quote the language from Texas, but other states have similar language, any outbreak, exotic disease, or unusual group expression of disease that may be of public health concern. And they also have authority to permit quarantine when warranted at, uh, as, as the least restrictive means of achieving a public health goal and when there's due process for the individuals who are quarantined. 
Well, since uh, November 2004, or excuse me, 2014, CDC has implemented a risk-based uh, entry surveillance system uh, in which travel restrictions uh, and monitoring um, uh, take place for people who come uh, into the country based on the likelihood that they have been exposed um, and any symptoms that they might show. Uh, basically, um, the more likely they have been to expose, um, um, the, uh, the, the degree of restrictions um, are higher. Um, and uh, in addition, uh, for people who are possibly exposed, it involves monitoring by uh, state and local health officials after they're in the United States for a period during which they may be infectious. And practically speaking, nearly all states have adopted Ebola screening and monitoring policies for asymptomatic individuals that are at least equal to, uh, if not more restrictive than the CDC um, guidance. Mm -hmm. So what about the public health capabilities to actually implement um, um, these things? Uh, the question is really is whether US, the, the U.S. public health system has the operational capabilities to identify these infected individuals and to initiate quarantine and other disease control activities in a timely way. Um, in the four cases that we saw, three were identified um, promptly and action was taken um, very uh, effectively. Um, although CDC, I think, has taken a hit for not responding to the Dallas situation as rapidly as they might have, it was actually, if you look at it, the hospital's failure to alert health officials. Uh, first of all, on, on Mr. Duncan's first visit when they didn't even consider the possibility that he had Ebola, and secondly, on a second visit where there was a delay of, it's hard to know exactly, but hours um, before they, they contacted the county and the state um, health officials. And so really the question, I think, going forward is whether other cities and counties in the United States have arrangements more like New York City, where, Mr., where Dr. Spencer was treated, uh, was identified and treated effectively, or Dallas, uh, where this kind of social capital that the, the, that the hospitals felt that they were involved in the, social, in the public health system, I think, was lacking. I mean, there were other things that made New York go a lot easier. It's, I, don't, I don't want to make it as simple as that. But I think that's the question. We, where do we stand between those two um, extremes? And what this requires is planning, communication, drilling, testing, and so on. Not just health departments sending out information to hospitals, um, but really um, making sure the hospitals understand what to do when, when, when a case uh, shows up. And this is separate from the Ebola specialty hospitals that have been identified uh, for treatment of people who are known to be infected. So does the U.S. public health system have the ability to quarantine potentially infected individuals? Um, I would uh, say that the, the risk-based border screening seems to be working smoothly. And the only problem that uh, has arisen um, was uh, the nurse Casey Hickox, uh, who came back from West, Afri West Africa through New Jersey to Maine, and arguably the, the problem was due to an overzealous response by the governors in New Jersey and Maine rather than to the policy um, it itself. Do state and, lo and local health departments have the resources that are needed to monitor and quarantine the individuals, whether identified locally or through CDC entry screening? I think it's important to note that these agencies are generally strapped um, financially and are now being asked to do something new that's in the national interest. And there's, I think, a real um, need to think about uh, supporting them um, as a national um, a goal. Now, if Ebola or another disease were to become widespread in the United States, which I think is a lot unlikely with uh, Ebola, um, we might have to think about um, widespread quarantine. Um, and and, they, and, and, and we, this would need some careful thought about how to having a more robust judicial process to um, implement that. Uh, where that would, re that would respect the rights and the well-being of those quarantined. And I think that some planning about how to do that um, would be uh, appropriate as well. Thank you.
Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Soto. Uh, Bob, would you say about 15 minutes of questioning makes a, a sense? Yeah, let, let me start with one which uh, I suppose uh, most uh, goes most directly to Dr. Gerstein and Dr. Cameron. Um, and it's really the baseline question to ask you to bring your expertise to it. Is the threat, and here I'm talking really about biological weapons, uh, not natural occur naturally occurring. Is the threat, though, though I understand they're related in the response, is the threat of uh, biological attack significant enough today to justify the expenditures, presumably, that would be necessary to protect us adequately from it? In other words, how do, inevitably, we're going to be balancing. Maybe, maybe the first question, therefore, is how significant is the threat, which to some extent you testified to, but then uh, uh, weigh it against other threats. So <clears throat> what the chart was trying to do was kind of walk through yeah. the development of the threat. And there's a body of thought that, you know, making these weapons is as easy as beer making. And on the other side, they say it, it takes a lot of, uh, very intricate knowledge of biological capabilities. And so, you know, I come down on the part of being a realist and saying it's somewhere in the middle. It used to be at the height of uh, the Cold War when uh, Bill Patrick, uh, who worked on offensive biological weapons, was doing the work, he used to talk about good hands. And they were always looking for people who had the capability in the lab to be able to do this kind of work and to arrive at the products they were interested in. Today, much of what was once art and science has become largely industrial processes. And, and so the capabilities are there. And why I think, and the reason I'm so keen on the BWC is because it does get down to intent. And what we have to try to do is figure out how to influence intent and establish and, and maintain that norm against the use of biological material in such a way. Now, to your question on cost, if you look at the uh, U.S. contribution, if you will, uh, for non-DOD spending against the biodefense mission, it is approximately uh, 7.5 to $8 billion annually. So it's a fairly substantial amount. And some of that goes to the strategic national stockpile, which is maintained by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's, uh, it's based on uh, the work that gets done on, on medical countermeasures, right. et cetera. So, uh, you know, I think that's it's a prudent investment. I don't think in this space that we have talked enough about the impact of deterrence. In fact, just prior to this, I was talking to someone uh, in the audience, and we were saying uh, about BioWatch and how important BioWatch, those are the environmental sensors that are in 30 major metropolitan yep. cities. The reason it's so important I think, is because it has a deterrent value. And so people uh, attribute certain capabilities to that system. And so I think, I think those are become very important. But it is, in my mind, it is a real and growing threat, and we are starting to see state-like capabilities in the hands of individuals. <laughs> the comment and the deterrent impact reminds me years ago when I, in New Haven, Connecticut, owned a home and we uh, uh, contracted with a guy to put in a burglar alarm system. When he was all done, he gave me the decals to put up on the windows and the doors, and he said, to tell you the truth, this is 95% of what you're paying for, because when they see the decals, uh, they're going to be less likely to come in. I, I, let me reframe the question uh, this way. 
Uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, and particularly the anthrax attack, which Senator Daschle knows, we all know, affected Congress and Senate and others, um, really, if you ask me the question, what, what keeps you up at night, in, in addition to a, a very well-organized attack like the 9-11 attack, it was a biological or chemical attack, because it seemed to me, in my state of knowledge at that point, to be um, more easier to manage to, to get yourself to be able to do that than a nuclear attack, for instance, by a terrorist. And then as time has gone on, you do hear people say, well, it's not that easy, really. You know, it dis the biological stuff disperses. And so well, how real is the threat of, and, and it, I'm going to make it this direct because we're all post-terrible attacks in France last week. How, how real is the threat of a, of a biological attack by a terrorist group? So one thing I'll say, which, which gets directly to that question, but also builds on something Dan said, to get back to the cost and the, and the reality of the threat, look, we're talking about an opportunistic situation. We do, and the bottom line is, um, given the cost that we've already seen from the anthrax attacks, from naturally occurring disease epidemics like right. Ebola, the cost that we're putting in to the system, at least from the international perspective that, that I know uh, very intimately, those costs were reaping benefits for Ebola naturally occurring or a bioterrorist attack. So we're, we're talking about a cost that is dual benefit. We are, we are reaping the reward. Um, to, to have the capability um, to prevent, detect, and respond to Ebola in West Africa which to some degree, East African countries <coughs> regularly fight Ebola successfully. Uganda, Congo have regular outbreaks, and they are able to manage them. Um, and and that, that kind of investment on the front end would have saved us where we are right now. Similarly, argument. the same cost that we're putting into the system prepares us for, for bioterrorism. I think... Um, on the biosafety and biosecurity specific components of the global health security agenda, um, there definitely is more work to do globally on what is a national biosafety and biosecurity system, and that is a, a large component of this, purposefully so, and purposefully we're engaging public health systems on it so that this isn't just something that is focused on by ministries of foreign affairs and ministries of defense. Um, the CTR programs are also focused on the public health system for this reason. If scientists as Dave mentioned, scientists and practitioners have a better understanding of the threat. I, I do think that makes a difference. But at the end of the day, the, the cost that we're putting in, we get the benefit right. on both ends. So, so give us a, uh, just a quick answer, and I know it's unfair to ask that, of how real is the threat of a uh, terrorist uh, uh, biological attack on the U.S.? So I'm, I'm not going to give you an answer in terms of days or timelines. No. I, I mean, it's a, I think... You take it to be real, though. It's not, absolutely. It's not this, fantastic. In this. Ab absolutely. Yeah. Governor Rich? Yeah. You know, one of the challenges I think the, the panel has in the report uh, that we want to submit with some very specific recommendations is to consider whether or not, uh, and we have three, three perfect panelists to answer this question, that we draw a very distinct line between naturally occurring, accidental, nation-state terrorist-driven. Because the priorities that you listed and you all listed, you know, detect, prevent, respond, recover, seem to me 
that all require basically the same infrastructure. And I'm going to say with respect to the global health, I'm not going to worry about the other 200 countries. I'm just worried right now about the United States. Do we make a mistake or is it appropriate for us? I mean, there will be more people die of flu this year than of a nation state or a terrorist attack with a bioweapon. So I guess what I would ask the three of you to comment on is we, as we fashion this report, do we draw very distinct lines between the kind of bio threats? <coughs> at, at what point do we do so? Uh, or, and can we identify that infrastructure that's critical in terms of policy recommendations and institutional changes that help us deal with all three? Because at a certain level, they're all basically the same threat. Now, we worry about the, you worry about the terrorist attack because it is, quote, a terrorist attack. We got 10-year-old kids dying of flu, even though some of them got the vaccine, but the CDC didn't catch the right strain or didn't have a therapeutic for the strain. For me, that's almost unconscionable, but that's just Tom Ridge's opinion. Until you get a vaccine and we don't, but it's not the right vaccine, but that's just Tom Ridge's opinion. But I'm really interested, is it, is it important for us in terms of the recommendations we make to start distinguishing between these bio threats, or is there infrastructure and policy and institutions that affect all of them? No, I, I, I think that's a, that's a good question, and, and um, I think that from the public health perspective, it's a mistake to separate them. Um, and I'll, I'll just give one, one example. Going back to the, um, the anthrax uh, attacks in, in, in 2001, the, the four postal workers who were, were infected, um, two of them um, showed up at um, hospitals and health care centers in Maryland, and the situation was very much like Mr. Duncan in Dallas. They didn't recognize it um, going on. Um, the two um, who happened to show up in the same um, hospital in Virginia, um, there was a doctor who said, oh, there's something going on here. Let's, let's think about this in a bigger context. And they were the ones who were treated and, and, and survived. So the response um, to that attack was exact, exactly what's needed um, for a naturally um, occurring uh, disease. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question, and I think the way that you're, you're thinking, thinking it through is, is, is excellent as well. So I do think that there are uh, one of the, the cornerstones of the GHSA is looking at, at all three and the capacities that are needed for all three. I do think there are some specific pieces of the GHSA and our, our biosecurity and biodefense, um, which are focused more on one element than the other. And so, for example, um, law enforcement being able to work with public health to investigate an incident and to attribute it in the case of a bioterrorism event, that's built into the GHSA. That is not, um, and it's definitely a place where the public health system needs to be engaged, but that piece of it, the investigation and attribution, is more specific to a potential bioterrorist event. So I think there are some places um, where building that capacity has a specific, um, fits more into one or of the other buckets, but I think by and large, even biosafety and biosecurity has, you know, large public health significance for laboratory accidents in, in addition to bioterrorist attacks. So I, we've definitely taken the approach of looking at all three, but not forgetting that bioterrorism does have some special elements that, that really need yep. to be focused on yep. as well. Yeah. It'll come as no surprise, I agree with my colleagues on the panel, that uh, you can't afford, it's an affordability as much as it is a capability outcome to treat them separately. You have to think about what you're going to accomplish in an overarching sense. The other thing I would point out, and this is a historical example, when you look at Oregon, the attacks, uh, the Rajneeshis, we didn't know till a year later that we'd actually been attacked. 
and some of that had to do with our, our systems weren't really in place. We knew there was an, uh, an outcome at a salad bar. We didn't know that it had been deliberately perpetrated. And so you have to think about uh, how you're going to handle both the public health as well as these Homeland Security national security outcomes. The other thing that I would like to, to just tack on the end of this is that we should understand that these diseases, if deliberately perpetrated, if it's a biological weapons attack, will not mimic naturally occurring disease. We will get early on spikes, many, many, many casualties very early on going into clinics, hospitals, et cetera. There's also concepts that we know of from our work in our offensive biological program, concepts such as overwhelming dose. It will not mimic naturally occurring disease. And I'll give you one anecdote off of this. In, in Fort Detrick, they were doing anthrax work when we had an offensive program. And some one of the workers who had been vaccinated was uh, testing to see if uh, there was live anthrax in this. And he, he used a method that they typically used, which was to sort of waff a little. And he got an overwhelming dose. And despite the fact of vaccination, he did die. And so you're going to have very different disease if you have very high concentration of pathogens being released into some sort of aerosol cloud. And that would, again, the scale would <coughs> indicate either Mother Nature and or a nation state or a terrorist attack, clearly. Yeah. Yes, yes that. sir. Good perspective to have. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Levin. It seems to me that our challenge is to define the threat, to prioritize the array of threats that are there once we've defined them, and then to commit the resources. I would be interested in your perspective as to how well you think we have defined these threats. How well have we prioritized? And probably even most importantly, how well, in your view, have we committed the resources? We were told earlier that it was maybe a $70 billion commitment so far in this, in this area. That's a lot of money. Uh, in the Ebola uh, crisis just recently, the appropriation was over $600 million to respond to Ebola. That's a lot of money. Are we responding in the appropriate way with the commitments we're making, or how would you change the priorities, the definition, and the, the overall uh, uh, review of our current circumstances? Um, if I could, I'll start with uh, drawing on my experience when I was with the Department of Homeland Security. I was in the Science and Technology Directorate as the Deputy Undersecretary and later Acting Undersecretary. And we ran a model called the Bioterror Risk Assessment, or BTRA. And it was a model that looked at a variety of pathogens, 43 different pathogens, in fact, and ran them through different scenarios. <coughs> pathogens in water, pathogens in aerosol, et cetera, et cetera. Attacks in buildings, outside of buildings, open areas. So we looked at almost 35 million different scenarios in a computer-generated outcome. And what we were trying to do was identify which pathogens had the most potential to be used as bioterror agents. And based on that, the Department of Homeland Security is actually the organization responsible for doing the material threat determinations, which are then forwarded to Health and Human <coughs> Services, which are then turned into medical countermeasures. So if DHS says, we are most concerned about a tularemia attack and uh, against an aerosol, then presumably, and Robbie Robinson will be here this afternoon so we can talk to him about that, but we actually we've been up to Capitol Hill <coughs> together to talk about this. But 
uh, he should be taking what we give him in the material threat determinations and turning that into medical countermeasures. So we have actually done a very deliberate process, and we've also worked, when I was with Homeland Security, we worked with DOD to share those results back and forth. Uh, on the question of are we prepared, and I, th I think I'll defer some of that, but I'll just say, I just look at what's going on with respect to uh, Ebola, and I'm very concerned about our preparedness and our crisis communications in particular, uh, as well as sort of general understanding of these very um, difficult to uh, recognize diseases that doctors in U.S. hospitals don't generally see. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's something we have to think more about. Can I just follow me? Yes, now sir. that you set the priorities that go over to DOD and HHS, do, do they change them? Well, DOD. I, mean, I guess we, one of the questions we have, who sets the priority, the science and the intelligence or the politicians? So we the do. bureaucrats. Yes, sir. We don't uh, actually, in DHS, uh, we provide that information to DOD, but DOD determines their own priorities. But with respect to the civilian aspects of biodefense, the medical countermeasures, and if you look at what's in the strategic national stockpile, there is a rationale that was coming out of analysis that was provided, and so it is a well-orchestrated discussion. But is and there I, common agreement on the priorities today? Uh, we actually uh, had been uh, doing better work in the collaboration so that uh, all of the interagency partners would be brought in earlier on in the process. So Health and Human Services actually helps to sit on the panel which is looking to develop this bioterror risk assessment so that there are no surprises. It's not like uh, when it comes out, they say, why is this pathogen on there? We've walked it through and worked it together. Yeah, I want to follow up. It's very interesting. So does CDC then give its grants out or NIH give its grants out consistent with the priorities that the government has set? Or do they, can they unilaterally move whatever direction they want? Uh, they, they do, and I think that's a problem. And so do I. Um, and I'm, I, I'm going to disagree uh, with, with Dan uh, about this because I think one of the things that we've discovered is that we don't know what's going to happen. And, in fact, one of the challenges that we often have is figuring out what it is that we have. Um, one of the, the challenges with um, H1N1 uh, flu in 2009 was being able to characterize what it was and, and that the Mexicans um, it, it knew something was going on for a couple of weeks before they, they realized it was the same as what was happening um, in the United States. And I think that's common. There's a lot of uncertainty, and the, the need to categorize it is common. So I think that rather than saying, here are the, uh, uh, the priorities, we're all going to work on flu now, or we're all going to work on uh, smallpox in 2003, like uh, comes down from the government, the really the, I think what's needed is to build up, um, again, I'm speaking from the public health perspective, to build up the capabilities, the generic capabilities that are going to be needed um, across the board, um, no matter what the situation is. I spoke about two of them today. One is to be able to detect things that, that, that we see. Um, the third thing is to be able to do quarantine when that's um, uh, warranted and so on. The third one uh, that I'll bring up now is to be able to characterize the things that we see because it's not easy and, um, and, I, and it's often going to be a challenge. Just one quick follow-on. So the bioterrorist assessment is only after those agents that would be looked at as bioterror. When it comes to determining priorities for influenza, that's something that Robbie Robinson will be able to talk about today, and DHS actually has no role in that. We only care about those agents which we think could be used by a bad actor to 
do a deliberate attack. I'm going to address one the one piece that hasn't uh, been addressed, which is funding internationally, so the global global response. Um, I defer the questions about medical countermeasures to my colleagues in the resilience panel later on today. Um, the U.S. government has has very successful programs um, globally, but we were very happy to see some funding in the budget for the Ebola emergency request focused on building capacity at the source. Um, building capacity around the world is critically important to this. As we saw with Ebola, we can have a fantastic system here, but we're not going to stop disease from, from coming to the U.S., and, and no country can do that alone. So I, I do think that the continued focus and continued uh, prioritization of working with other countries to build their capacity is critically important. That's a great observation. I think it's just very similar to the broader mission of Homeland Security. You want to push your perimeter out as far as you can go so that your borders right. are the last line of defense, not the first. So to the extent you build the infrastructure out there, you begin to reduce the risk internally. Jen, do you have questions? Yep. Thanks, Senator. Um, talk to you for a second, Dr. Gerstein, about your comments regarding the, the fact that there's currently a debate about um, whether a number of these pathogens can be developed, you know, easily developed, used by terrorist groups or not. And I thought that was important for the broader issue of assessing the bioterror threat. And I'm just talking about bioterror here. And I guess, sort of put simplistically, you've got the possibility of state actors engaging in bioterror and then terrorist groups. So I'm focusing more on terrorist groups in terms of the former, deal with them on a state to state level with the uh, BWC and otherwise. But in terms of um, terrorist groups, uh, you know, I sort of go back to the anthrax days when there was, you know, endless analysis about whether al-Qaeda, at that point al-Qaeda was the main focus, could weaponize anthrax, could deliver it in a slurry or what have you. Um, and I guess I'm a little surprised that, you know, now you say there are sort of two camps that have sort of dueling visions as to how easy it would be for terrorist groups today after the development, you know, of uh, expertise and the dissemination of it out on the Internet over the last whatever <coughs> 12, 13 years since the anthrax attacks. There's not more clarity about that as to how, uh, how feasible, how likely it is that ISIS, AQAP, traditional al-Qaeda would be able to develop something like anthrax, fossilism, what have you, and deliver it on our shores. Is it really uh, still a subject to debate, or don't we have a better sense of how practical that threat is? And and if there is a clear sense of that, isn't that something that should be out there in the public debate to help highlight the, the threat, which would, of course, then hopefully motivate people to look at it? Well, I think that's a great point. When we look at can a terrorist engage in this sort of behavior, I like to think about it in, in three buckets. One is capabilities, the other is intent, and the other is knowledge. And in terms of capabilities, what I was talking about on the biotech and the dual use clearly says that if you get a microbiologist who is disenfranchised, and I'll just say last time we heard from Keith Wells, who's here in the back, who talked us through how to build one of these, his knowledge certainly exceeds the average uh, person, bioterrorist, if you will. But that sort of capability could be learned. On the intent, I think that's where we have to make sure that we are doing everything we can to signal how strongly uh, it we would react if there was some sort of event. And one of the reasons the BWC, I think, is so important in this is because we need the international community of nations to come together on the notion that if there was a large-scale biological attack, 
there would be no rock left unturned and that it would be a global priority. And that's the sort of message that I would like to see sent. And then the knowledge, of course, is really hard to, to stop because, you know, the Internet, there's a great proliferation. So, I mean, I mean, for me, I think there is still a little bit of a debate that I hear, but it's less because people are recognizing that there is this dual-use capability, the democratization of biotechnology, and the potential that somebody engages in this. I'll, I'll just say one other thing. I've done some previous work where I took, uh, I looked at bioterrorism and I used a game theory approach to try to understand when would it be in a bioterrorist's uh, best interest to engage in this sort of behavior. And what you large, what I largely found out, and uh, you know, we've we've had several discussions about that both at Homeland Security and in the interagency was that, you know, it it really seems not to be to the advantage of a traditional terrorist organization to engage in this sort of behavior. But, uh, but here's what's concerning. You're seeing with ISIS a different level of rhetoric that we did not even see with regard to al-Qaeda. That's, that's pretty mm -hmm. startling. I mean, the brutality. The brutality. The, mm -hmm. You know, with al-Qaeda, uh, when there was an increase in violence in theater in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, the, the support of the population actually went down. And so they modulated their violence. We're not seeing any modulation of violence on the part of ISIS. So the question then becomes, is there a new, new breed of terrorists emerging out of, out of this war? Uh, thank you very much. I, I want to uh, apologize to what might be called the front benchers here. The parliaments have back benchers, we have front benchers. Uh, normally, we like to give you an opportunity to ask questions, but I think we've got to uh, close this panel because uh, we're panel. way behind. You've been excellent, and uh, you've put yourself at risk of being thank asked follow-up questions because you've been so helpful. Thank you. Thank Dr. Rapp, thank you very much. Uh, you come to us with extraordinary experience, and we're grateful um, for, your, um, for your willingness to come uh, before us today. I know you testified at least once before the Homeland Security Committee when I was there, and my memories are all positive, such as my memory is these days, you understand. Anyway, please, the subject we've asked you to talk about is uh, first responder protection. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a privilege to be here. I'm here in my capacity as a private person. I retired from the Department of Health and Human Services in 2009 after years with the federal government. The last 13 of those years, I was the science advisor in succession to Secretary Shalala, Secretary Thompson, and Secretary Levitt. Uh, since then, I'm retired except for the days I'm not. <laughs> I have the privilege of doing some consulting work for the Postal Service, uh, Health and Human Services, and the Institute of Medicine. And I'm the cashier in a thrift shop if, if you're interested in a good deal. <laughs> My plan for today is to present a case study in what was a multi-year preparedness initiative that featured pre-event placement of antibiotics in the homes of letter carriers. We came to refer to those officially as household antibiotic kits. The more common parlance these days is home med kits. These letter carriers, who were not traditional first responders, had volunteered and been trained for participation in their local municipality's mass prophylaxis plan. 
that is the, the municipal plan to react to a wide area bioterrorism event, especially ones involving a disease caused by an antibiotic susceptible organism, particularly anthrax, plague, and tularemia. The concept is intriguing in that the Postal Service as a federal presence is already there in the community. It has a well-established infrastructure. And one of the principles we embraced early on was in an emergency, the ideal situation is if people are doing what they do pretty much every day anyway. And that is what made this concept appealing. The challenge in the mass prophylaxis effort for the municipalities overall <clears throat> was to provide their at-risk citizens and transients who happened to be there that day with medical countermeasures as soon as possible after receiving them from the strategic national stockpile. So a major logistic challenge, which to this day is formidable for the various municipalities about the country. The specific role within that for the letter carriers was to effect direct delivery of a small quantity of self-administrable antibiotics to every residence in every part of that municipality that the public health leaders and emergency management people had judged to be at risk from the event and therefore in need of prophylactic antibiotics. Letter carriers, in effect, were to be part of the vanguard of that response, and their role specifically was what we came to call the quick strike delivery, attempting to saturate all those at-risk residences with a small quantity of antibiotics within one day, specifically within 12 hours, and do that while the municipal officials were setting up their network of points of dispensing for the longer term and to provide the more medically thorough portion of the mass prophylaxis response. So never was it either or, but rather it was a quick strike on the front end of the more deliberate and more medically sound process. Now before getting into the case study, I'm going to summarize the context in which it occurs, the larger context of first responder protection. My personal belief is that society has a moral imperative to protect its protectors. And I like to think that the vast majority of citizens agree with that. However, in my experience about the country, I find that the views and practices vary widely with respect to how best to do that. I come to the topic with two premises in mind. One is that whenever practical, pre-event provision of protection is far superior to peri-event, that is just-in-time provision of that protection. And second, in those instances where the incident involves a threat to other members of the responder's household, such as could be the case in a wide area bioterrorism event, then the responder should be able to go to their duty with the peace of mind coming from knowing that their other members of their household already have the medications they need. I will mention in setting this context some other protective modalities in the interest of completeness, but I'll be very brief about those and could respond either later in this period or offline later today if anyone's interested in talking about those. But very quickly, essentially four types of protections are involved. First of all, the personal protective equipment, otherwise known as PPE. This equipment and the devices associated with them lend themselves to pre-event allocation and to local caching. Perspectives vary widely as to the need and the efficacy for some of them. One can get a spirited debate about when N95 masks should be used and, and, and how good they might be. 
but in general, a strong recognition of the importance of the PPE. And where variations occur from place to place, in my observations, it's largely because of the financial resources and how they affect the determination of what quantities can be available and the deployment strategy. Communities could differ widely, and in principle, every community could be right, given its particular assessments of risks and opportunities. Second class is chemical antidotes. By definition, these are post-exposure agents. Uh, they are manufactured in a form to facilitate self-administration, such as the auto-injectors for nerve agents. They lend themselves again to pre-event allocation and local caching, whether it's on the person of the responder, on the emergency vehicle, in a local store somewhere, storehouse, that is. And again, the availability is dependent on financial constraints as to how many and, and the risks assessment associated with it and how they're deployed. Third category is vaccines. By definition, pre-event administration would be ideal in the spirit of vaccination. However, post-exposure immunization can be efficacious under certain circumstances. So again, it's not either or, especially for first responders. The vaccines lend themselves to caching, either locally, regionally, or nationally, but it is within certain constraints of the product and temperature conditions and shelf life and the like. So it's not quite as easy as some of the more inert equipment. But various obstacles have emerged over the years that have precluded widespread pre-event vaccination against the two major bioterror threats, smallpox and anthrax. There are many differences as to why that's true. One cross-cutting similarity, as, as I see it, is that for many people, the predictable risk associated with possible adverse side effects exceeds the risk of being exposed. Whether that's true or not, it's a strong perception. And therefore, we find ourselves in a position of having vaccines that could be used more widely and more effectively than, in fact, they are in the first responder community. Last is antibiotics. By their nature, they're suited to the peri-event use against organisms that are susceptible to such agents. They're effective as a post-exposure prophylaxis if they're administered promptly enough, but they also have potentially considerable utility as post-symptomatic therapy, depending again on the organism involved and the stage of the illness that the physicians face. They too lend themselves to caching, but again have constraints of expiry dates and certain environmental control conditions. I set that context because what it says is that for many threats, especially bioterror threats, it's the post-event access to antibiotics that becomes critical, not only for the community at large, but for the first responders who are going to move to protect them. Mindful of this, it was in late 2003, seems like 100 years ago now, that the Homeland Security Council asked the United States Postal Service and Department of Health and Human Services to consider whether letter carriers might be able to make emergency deliveries, to add this quick strike capability. Ken Bernard and Bob Cadlick were there at the time and our, our principal contacts. Postmaster General and the presidents of the two unions that represent letter carriers agreed to take this on in conjunction with HHS and with the interested municipalities and states. But they stipulated four conditions. 
first condition was full reimbursement for costs incurred. <clears throat> Even then, the Postal Service was struggling with the change in its business model and its revenue stream, and it simply could not afford to underwrite this with the revenues from stamps. HHS agreed to be that patron. Second, the unions especially wanted to be assured that the protections, whatever they were, were compliant with the requirements of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Third, the carriers in particular and postal management wanted to see law enforcement escorts <laughs> with those carriers on their emergency delivery. The carriers are a street smart lot who understood very quickly that even though the pills might be cheap, they were carrying gold in the middle of an emergency. And the idea of a lone carrier out there in potentially unstable social circumstances was fearful. So the idea of having law enforcement presence was absolutely critical for them. And last, they advocated for home med kits. Uh, we didn't coach them on this. They figured this one out themselves. That is, th their view was if they had the antibiotics already in hand, they could be on the street immediately and they understood that speed was of the essence, but they wanted the peace of mind in knowing that their family members already were protected. We didn't know whether we could do that or how, but we agreed to take that on, and that leads into the case study. We had five major hurdles that needed to be overcome. The first one was that emergency response is not part of either the carrier's normal duties or the bargaining agreements with the carrier unions. And therefore, this could not proceed unless we were able to recruit and maintain an all-volunteer force of letter carriers. I'm pleased to say that we succeeded in doing that, and in every instance, we're able to exceed our force requirements out of what was largely a public-spirited response to these letter carriers promoted by their unions on behalf of the communities in, in which they live. The second hurdle was a more tricky one. The public health community, almost to a person among its leadership, had strong misgivings, if not actually outright opposition, to the notion of a home med kit. Now, the concerns were potential misuse of the antibiotics, uh, possible injury to individuals, abuse of them, excessive use that could contribute to the growing threat of antibiotic resistance, and so we're extremely uncomfortable with the notion of home med kits in the hands of people who did not need them right then. We proceeded nonetheless, but we, as you'll hear later, took into account and accommodated and respected many of the concerns as we developed what had to be an emergency use authorization. That leads into number three, which is the F FDA regulations put severe limits upon off-label prescribing of approved medications. And strictly speaking, prescribing a medication for something you don't need right now is off-label. Now, any physician has the authority to prescribe any approved drug or any other indication on that physician's judgment. And virtually every one of our physicians, I expect, do that from time to time on an individual case-by-case -case basis. But the notion of mass off-label prescribing for, say, a group of first responders is one that makes almost all of the physicians I know very uncomfortable and more important is something that FDA feels strongly against. And it's potentially even a threat to the state licensure of physicians if they're seen as abusing their prescription authorities. So in the spirit of the Postal Service's can-do attitude, we needed a workaround. And the workaround in this case 
was an emergency use authorization that's provided for in statute. And this gave us a vehicle also to express and deal with as best we could some of the concerns that we viewed as legitimate from the public health community. By the way, the statutory gauntlet that's associated with an emergency use authorization is not for the faint of heart. This took more than six months of work, primarily with the FDA. And once we had the content of it, we needed, first of all, a material threat determination from the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Secretary Chertoff provided that. Secretary Napolitano enforced it some years later. We also needed a declaration of public health authority by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Secretary Levitt did that. Secretary Sebelius renewed it. That one was particularly difficult because the emergency was not extant. The emergency would be only if the event occurred and there was literally no time to provide to equip the letter carriers then. So both secretaries were comfortable with what was otherwise an unexpected use of the emergency use authorization. And last, we needed approval by the FDA commissioner who had to be satisfied that we were going to manage these agents and account for them in a way that would protect the carriers and address the legitimate concerns of the public health community. The fourth barrier was that FDA regulations prohibit mass dispensing of antibiotics, even under emergency use authorization, in the absence of an extant emergency. Some of our local collaborators hoped they could practice their mass dispensing with the letter carriers. That couldn't be. And so the only way to do it was to have individual prescriptions and individual labels on every bottle of pills in those home med kits, just the way it would be done normally for, right, right, for you and me. FDA. When we first started, we were bound by what is a statutory requirement in, in many, perhaps every state, and that is the pills expire one year from the date of the prescription. Now, in normal circumstances, that makes perfect sense. You're being prescribed something because you're supposed to use it. And if a year has gone by and you haven't, it really should be considered <laughs> expired medication and should be disposed of properly. In this case, the objective was not to use it, was to store it properly, use it when instructed by public health authorities. Nevertheless, we were faced with a one-year expiry requirement early on. We managed to negotiate that the expiry would then be the date on the bottle rather than the date of the prescription. So that got us up to two years, and there's the prospect that in the future that could be more. But at least that cut in half our swap-out costs of replacing med kits without having a diminishment in capability in, in these various cities. Ultimately, through all that, we were able to establish venue-specific postal plans, that is, tailored to each concept's in, the, in these cities, in five municipalities, and we're meeting every one of the Postal Service's conditions. This were Minneapolis-St. Paul, Louisville, San Diego, Boston, and Philadelphia. And these were marvelous local collaborators committed to the task, not just public health people, but law enforcement, emergency management, both local and state level. Why these five? Uh, there had to be some process, and so HHS solicited expressions of interest in this. We ran a national competition, and these five emerged as having the best combinations of clear <coughs> commitment to do this and some stated need, given the nature of the risk they face. Uh, 
As an aside, I sometimes got the question, why Louisville? Well, the folks there don't think of themselves as some iconic target in the same sense that some of the major cities might, like New York or Los Angeles. But they have two times a year when they see themselves under major risk. One is Derby Week, and the other is the annual Spring Farm Show, where literally one can't find a hotel room anywhere around there, and they see themselves as potential target in those periods. And so they made enormous efforts to try to do everything they can to be prepared for not just the bioterrorism event, but any other kind of event, including natural disaster, doing those two critical periods for them. Now, beyond providing this quick strike delivery, it was clear that the planning efforts that the postal activity stimulated, bringing together the local <laughs> participants, did a lot to strengthen those collaborations. There were a new modalities for law enforcement, emergency management, and public health to work together. And I like to think that every one of those cities is better off having engaged in that, in that effort. A major disappointment, given the topic of protecting protectors, is many of us hope that the very presence of med kits in these circumstances would stimulate interest in other first responders. And indeed, at the worker B level, it did. Law enforcement office, you know, they have it, why can't I have it? For a variety of reasons, not all of which I probably could uh, articulate, it didn't happen. That I know of no first responder organization that has made a serious attempt to pursue the home med kits in the same sense. And there are many barriers, emergency use authorization being one of them <coughs> and, and the like, but costs are certainly a major consideration. Uh, nonetheless, it did not take the way we had hoped it would more, more broadly. The current status of this is that Early last year, in 2014, we found ourselves with the expiry of all of the pre-positioned med kits looming uh, later that year. <coughs> HHS, as the sponsor and patron, determined then that it would not replace them. A major consideration was cost and competing priorities, and there were many for HHS. The other was a stated belief on the part of HHS that the just-in-time allocation of antibiotics within the local setting should suffice for the postal needs. When the postal management and union leaders addressed this, they came to two conclusions. One is they fully respected the concern about costs and competing priorities. The Postal Service is all too well experienced in dealing with hard trade-offs under fiscal stringency. But they disagreed with the putative efficacy of the just-in-time allocation, with little or no evidence that it can really work and from their perspective, a concern that if they tried it, it almost certainly would be different in its execution from one city to another. And a theme of the postal management of the unions is that every volunteer carrier be treated the same way and have the same protection. And it was literally impossible to achieve that under a distributed model. So facing the expiry, the Public Health Service and its municipal partners collected all of the med kits uh, later last year, turned them over to the appropriate authorities for some environmentally responsible destruction, and in the absence of replacement kits, put the five local postal plans into suspension pending further developments that might enable them to be regenerated. As a consequence, that quick strike capability no longer exists in those five cities. If it happened tomorrow, uh, they would not have that preparation in place. Nevertheless, we're hopeful that the experience I just described and the scars we gained from it 
will be helpful to others in addressing something similar in the way of pre-event protections for certainly traditional first responders. Uh, we were encouraged, for example, that later last year, uh, Health and Human Services and the Department of Homeland Security issued a joint letter encouraging physicians to consider prescribing, albeit off-label, off for first responders to have them materials at home. And a few pharmaceutical firms have expressed interest, at least tentatively, in pursuing with FDA an actually approved home med kit. That could be very beneficial in that if physicians knew they were prescribing on-label rather than off-label, there might be uh, stronger contributions from the medical community. There would still be the problems of who pays and, and how it gets done. I'll be pleased to respond as best I can to questions or comments you might have about that or some of the related issues of first responder protection. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Robb. That, that was really fascinating uh, in many ways, one of which was the way in which this um, um, attempt to prepare for an emergency also ran into pre-existing regulations that had been adopted for, let's, just, let's say, a different kind of public safety, such as the, the um, um, FDA and the way in which you worked around it. So um, bottom line, did you conclude that the use of uh, postal service for this kind of purpose um, w was a good idea? Yes, I and mean, we thought so in the beginning, and every experience with the five cities only served to reinforce that. We did, of course, <laughs> exercises, both tabletop exercises and in the street right. drills, testing the, the logistics, the interactions with law enforcement and emergency management and local communications. No doubt in our minds that it can work. Uh, my major caveat would be not just apply to the postal response, but the larger mass prophylaxis effort, that all of it, to be effective, requires some form of stability in the community, right. some absence of civil disorder. Uh, many of the cities were not willing to take this on, and a major part was their law enforcement officials saying, we can't do this, we don't know what our demands will be, but we expect to be very busy if there's an event. Sure. And they're absolutely right that if they can't maintain civil order, a lot of things unravel. In this case, if the streets are clogged, if there are anti-government protests, if there are riots, the idea that anybody could get easily back and forth from a point of dispensing, much less a letter carrier work through the streets, gets very low. So we were completely sympathetic with our law enforcement colleagues that their first priority needed to be public security and the uh, avoidance where they could of civil disorder. What we were encouraged in the five cities is the leadership of law enforcement in all five of those saw deeper into the problem, saw that their public health colleagues could not perform well, whether it was the letter carrier response or the more broad and more thorough points of dispensing without some form of security and law enforcement support. And they made it an effort to do that joint planning. The assets needed, substantial as they are for the one-day escorts, are no more formidable than the assets needed for weeks to protect the pods and allow smooth access to them, maintain the queue controls without which it becomes chaotic. So, so it, it can be done, and I think we like to demonstrate that it did. It, it was done. But so it, would it be your personal conclusion that using the Postal Service for distributing countermeasures is the best available um, method of distribution? 
Well, there's several answers to that. One is for the particular context of the bioterrorism threat, and we were using the anthrax threat as the driver, where time right. would be of the essence. In my judgment, only the Postal Service has the infrastructure to make that quick strike. Yeah. If there were more time, uh, there are different models. The pods might work just fine. One municipality actually has turned the postal model on its head in that they, their law enforcement folks aren't willing to commit to the postal escorts. But they, if they can get through the first phase with their points of dispensing and they have some idea who needs supplemental medication, they've approached the Postal Service of, you know, in effect, could we mail it? If we knew where to send it and how much, could you do it? And the Postal's answer is that is pay the postage and, and we'll deliver. That's what we do. <laughs> so it's really not a special preparedness. But I think it comes down to those two extremes. It's either times of the essence emergency where Postal's on the ground and can do it with the right support, or it's a more leisurely response where they make, might make, it's like male dispensing of drugs. It's, it certainly can be done. Right. Governor Rich? I just want to uh, thank you. Uh, the juxtaposition of uh, people waiting in line at a distribution center to get these prophylactics <clears throat> as opposed to having it delivered mm -hmm. uh, to their individual residence or apartments and then the, uh, the situations around each one is rather dramatic. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a, uh, a two-city exercise, a national exercise, and <clears throat> people will not wait in line patiently mm -hmm. in, a, in, in a situation right. where they, mm -hmm. they're looking for immediate uh, support. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I like the postal model. I'm very interested whether or not the regulatory challenges that you encountered, if they've been documented, it would be available to the panel if we decide to integrate those observations and conclusions into our report? Yes, in particular, I think uh, the emergency use authorization, right. which is a That's multi page document, right. is a public document, and exactly. it does embody all of the considerations, Good. including the nature of the screening and the prescribing and the maintenance yeah. of the, of the I mean, drugs. Because it really does seem ridiculous that you had to get a prescription for everybody. In, in those circumstances, <laughs> which are so, self uh, inher inherently uh, yeah. emergency situations. I don't think my FDA colleagues were being obstinate. I think they have their the certain lawsuit. legal and regulatory yeah, restraints, and exactly. the, those were the judgments exactly. they felt that they had to make. And I think if this were to pr be pursued over a longer term, some form of regulatory easement around these very special circumstances, I think, could go a long way to making this work better and still protect the public health interest way more broadly. But as I say, I have no fault with FDA. It did what it had to do. It's a huge contribution. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Interdition. Dr. Rubb, thank you. I, I agree with my colleagues. Uh, your presentation was just excellent, and I, I, I've learned a good deal just listening in the last uh, during your during the time you've uh, been with us. Uh, just one clarification: Did you say that the five municipalities chose not to maintain the infrastructural organizational effort once this project had been completed, or did I misunderstand? No, they all they chose to do is along with the Postal Service is to collect the medications and therefore recognize they could not call on the Postal Service for that quick strike delivery. Uh, they have maintained and I expect they will maintain their relationships there because they need them for the community mass prophylaxis with or without the Postal Service. And is it your assumption that this organizational structure could be replicated fairly easily in, in municipalities or is it, is it unique to these circumstances? Two answers to that. I think it's easily replicable 
if everyone perceives the, ch the problem the same way, if everyone recognizes the risk. In the case of law enforcement in particular, if, if law enforcement officials see that they have more than a reactive responsibility, that their public health colleagues need them for the larger public health response. When that's true, then law enforcement, public health, and emergency management come together very cleanly. In this case, they had the added stimulus of our having to develop jointly a municipal postal plan based on some principles that had been adopted nationally. With that driver, it, it built very strong collaborations. But it's not that they didn't exist before. I think we made them stronger because of that effort, and I like to think that those ties will continue. And irrespective of whether Postal's involved or not, the municipal response will be stronger because of those, those relationships. No party can do it alone. Uh, uh, many of them understand that very clearly. So I think, in principle, it's easy to create, but only when everybody is on the same page with respect to the seriousness of the threat and the nature of the challenge, much of which is pure logistics. I mean, much of this is not science. This is how do we move something from here to there? And whether it's maintaining a queue of people to keep it orderly and therefore not destroy the throughput of that organization, or whether it's getting people from one place to another or getting drugs from one place to another. Thank you. Very helpful. Oh, I think we have a time for a few questions. From the yeah, Dr. Yeah. Rob, um, thank you for that presentation. I benefited greatly from it, as I did from your counsel when I, when I was at HHS. I'm glad you're still thinking about these issues. Have you thought about maybe a um, rule of thumb for divvying up what percentage of product should go through which system? So <coughs> X percent go through uh, the pods and Y percent go through uh, med kits and Z percent through, through the postal? Well, what we used in it is that I don't have a precise number at the top of my head, but the actual quantities for the med kits were very small. For the, uh, some, of the, some of the communities might have had, say, 100 letter carriers in, in their families. If that had been adopted more broadly with other first responders, then it could you know, be five times or more. Greater. I'm talking about an ideal world. But still a modest quantity. <coughs> the second part, the quick strike postal delivery, was really conditioned by <coughs> what quantity of, could be carried and get the job done in, in 12 hours. And so we spent a lot of time early on figuring out the dimensions of pill bottles and pill boxes and how they fit into various postal vehicles and how many would fit into a postal satchel. Uh, and so that t tended to determine what portion of the SNS distribution the community asked for to be in a form that could go for the postal distribution. And then everything else, as needed, was going to be through the pods. The bulk of it probably would still be through the pods because while Postal was delivering initially either one bottle of pills or two for a household, depending on the number of people in the household, one might have to get out of there very quickly after a day or two to get more pills. But not everybody had to get out of there on the same day. And so that, that was the concept of staggering that, that pod response. I could try to put numbers on it if I think, think about it, but primarily it's, it's still driven heavily by what will be, in my view, should be distributed through the points of dispensing. So, so basically pod with a little bit of uh, postal supplement and then very small yes. percentage for those yes. who mm -hmm. to get the, the And at, while the pods can be ponderous, they are, in fact, as I say, more medically thorough. There's an opportunity to interact with a healthcare professional. Uh, there's an opportunity to try to avoid, wherever possible, getting the wrong antibiotic. Uh, none of that's true with a mass delivery of doxycycline. And while many people would benefit, I have no doubt on the calculus, 
uh, some people would uh, not benefit, would have, in fact, an adverse effect from getting a drug that was contraindicated for them under the emergency. Uh, Scooter? Do you happen to know to what extent the home kits were violated for other medical purposes during the course that they were at the home? Yes, one of the conditions uh, and built into the uh, emergency use authorization was our tracking that. Now, we had the benefit, as some of you may know, of a study that the Centers for Disease Control had done in uh, St. Louis before with deploying some med kits, collecting them fairly quickly after several months. But they developed some statistics where, in round numbers, the cadre of people who were first responders had a compliance of you know, well over 90 percent. People in more occupa industrial occupations did almost as well. Uh, the cadre of people who were economically disadvantaged had the worst compliance, who you know, either purportedly lost them or acknowledged the taking them for whatever ailment happened to be prevalent at the time. Our, consistently, in the data we collected on the postal model, the carriers were well up into the high 90 percents. Uh, they were well instructed. Uh, for good measure, the Postal Service had a, uh, kit of, a kit availability check every six months. Do you still have it? Do you know where it is? Have you had occasion to open it? And if so, why? And when they needed to be collected, if people didn't respond within the reasonable time frame, that uh, they got a visit from somebody from the Postal Inspection Service to make sure that we got the drugs back. Now, there were cases where we didn't. People asserted they'd lost them. Some moved out of the area and purportedly took the drugs with them. So it was not perfect. But I think we satisfied the concerns of many of my public health colleagues that, by and large, we had a very responsible compliance with the drugs in the house. And they're, of course, tamper-evident kits. Instructions were on the outside as well as inside, so you didn't have to open the kit. If you were curious, you could read <coughs> what was there. And we learned a lot of that from the, the CDC uh, study. Last question, Tom, and then we'll go on. Bill, you, you've had the advantage of being a, a leader in the countermeasure development program at HHS and now an observer with close, with close observation. Do you have a view to share with the panel about what you think the capability <coughs> of our HHS countermeasure development program is right now and maybe one recommendation to make it stronger? I think probably the single most important challenge, as I see it, for the countermeasure development is Mother Nature. Uh, going back more than 10 years, we wanted a new anthrax vaccine. People have struggled mightily to develop a new anthrax vaccine. We do not have a new anthrax vaccine, largely because of the quirkiness of the way that protein folds and the uh, instability of the product to, 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 to move forward. We had, you had a discussion about influenza before. There are many challenges, but from my perspective, the single most important challenge is the, the, the traditional vaccine aimed at the surface antigens, even if it's perfectly matched, is not a very good vaccine. It does not have the performance of the childhood vaccines, for example. And my belief is we need to develop a different modality and a different type of structure for an influenza vaccine. I don't think there's any disagreement of that over at HHS, but Science and nature, <laughs> what it is, has, has made, it, uh, made it a struggle. Uh, I see no alternative other than to keep addressing those issues, to try to find innovative approaches to, to, to dealing with it. But there's no doubt in my mind about the strength of the commitment there and the sense of, of the priorities for it. I think the same is true for developing a novel class of antibiotics. The pharmaceutical industry has struggled with that, not because it's not 
attractive financially if they succeed, but rather because it's extremely difficult. Uh, thanks um, very, very much. It's, you know, I'm in the committee I, I chaired in the Senate, uh, we had jurisdiction over the Postal Service, and we wrestled for a long time with, its, with the changing business model. Obviously, people are using email, not sending letters. But one of the fascinating realities which your testimony highlights is that the Postal Service still has an, a, a unique asset, which is the capacity to, develop, to deliver it to everybody in the, in the country. And it's now what's, what's keeping the, the deficit in the Postal Service a lot less than it otherwise would be, even though the mail is way down because packages are being delivered by the Postal Service. In fact, they subcontract for uh, FedEx and uh, mm -hmm. uh, UPS in a lot of cases. And, and all the e-commerce, or a lot of it, mm -hmm. is being delivered. So I think this uh, your, your uh, study uh, really is a very creative use of that national asset. And, um, I mean, it obviously leaves a lot of questions about what happens if um, we're dealing with a, 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 a problem, a threat <coughs> that um, is, is not going to be responded to by the countermeasures that the post office workers have in their houses. Mm -hmm. Then how mm -hmm. do you get whatever you need to get to them quickly? Mm -hmm. But th mm -hmm. uh, thank you. I hear you to say that this, um, this uh, test worked, at least uh, to be. show that the Postal Service can do it. handle mm -hmm. part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Actually, your observation about the, whether the countermeasures work applies more broadly. The yeah. Postal Service will deliver what the Strategic right. National Stockpile provides. Exactly. And if the principal agents there are not effective against the agent, right. then much of our stockpile capability is rendered yeah. compromised. They can deliver more quickly, obviously, what they already have in their houses. But if the Strategic uh, National Stockpile can get them something quickly, you're right. Yeah. No, just one clarification. They're not delivering from their houses. The things in their houses are to get them on the street quickly. They're I'm still sorry, right. they're still working with the local municipality to, to, to receive the, the yeah. things from the sto yeah. national stockpile right. and then get it out. Right. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Rowe. Well Doctor. Thank you. Really, thank you. thanks for okay. your service to our country. Bob, should we go right to the next panel? Yes, sir. Let's we're uh, press ahead. We're rapidly back on schedule. We're gonna we're gonna make it here after this panel. Uh, if I can invite Dr. Kaizak and Dr. Liu up, we'll have two presenters on this panel. So. Uh, uh, we should be only about uh, 10 minutes behind schedule or 15 minutes behind schedule after this. Good. Dr. Uh, Lou, welcome. And, thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, this this uh, the subject of this panel is biosecurity, select Asian program, and uh, synthetic biology, which I, I did a little bit of reading that uh, Bob prepared for us, and it's uh, really fascinating, at least for a lawyer like me. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the yeah, opportunity to be here this afternoon. So uh, my goal today is to tell you about this field of synthetic biology, introduce to you some basic concepts of what it is about, and then tell you some of the applications that are being pursued, both for good and as well um, you know, along the lines of um, biodefense and, and concerning applications. Um, just by way of background, I'm a faculty member at MIT. I have a background in computer science, in biological engineering, and um, also clinically trained as a physician. Um, and I've been working in this field of synthetic biology for uh, about a decade or so. And what I want to try to convince you today is that the field of synthetic biology is really promising to change the speed and scale at which we can manipulate biological systems. And I think that's going to really have profound impacts on the way um, biology affects the economy and also how we think about um, biodefense. So to start off, I wanted to 
first perhaps define what the field of synthetic biology is. Um, it's, it's challenging to define precisely, but we like to think about it as an engineering discipline for manipulating biological systems. And, and as I go into this, it's really somewhat different from um, you know, classical genetic engineering or molecular biology in the way people are practicing uh, the manipulation of biological systems. And there are three primary um, um, ways in which it's different. The first is in the speed and the scale to which you can actually now modify um, biological systems. Um, genetic engineering as a field grew out in the 1970s. And the way to think about this is it's really like a cut and paste technology. You can take genetic information that's somewhere in the world, exists already, and you can move it somewhere else. So a classic example of this is you can take the gene that encodes insulin, put it into a bacteria, get the bacteria to make insulin for you, and you can cure human disease using that approach. But you know, the limitations of that is that you're restricted to what nature is already giving you, and you're restricted to the precision by which you can program these systems. So imagine that you know, you're trying to design something as complicated as Microsoft Word, but all you could do is you could copy code that someone else had written and move it over. You wouldn't be able to program specifically what goes into that program. And what's really changed in this field of synthetic biology is now the, the, the space at which we can manipulate, we can read and write DNA. So I'll give you some examples. You guys probably know that you can now you know, read the human, entire human genome for probably less than $1,000. And it's something that was unthinkable even just about a decade ago. And so, so that's on the reading side. On the writing side of things, we can basically download the entire genome of a bacteria or a yeast from the internet, and you can print from scratch, from, from scratch, the entire genome of that organism, plug it in, and reboot that organism to life. This is something that you can't really, you couldn't have, thinking, couldn't have thought about doing maybe just five years ago. And really, the technological drivers behind this are similar to the ones that drove Moore's Law, that really allowed us to get the semiconductor industry um, going, which was exponential improvements in our ability to read and write. Um, and uh, we're seeing the same pace of evolution of technology in this field as well. Every year, our ability to read DNA or write DNA is increasing at an exponential rate, you know, doubling or, or even more than that. Um, and so uh, in terms of the speed and scale by which we can manipulate biological systems, including human systems, um, is increasing exponentially. Um, and as a result, there's, you know, been a real in, uh, influx of a, you know, kind of interesting community that's built around thinking about how to engineer biological systems. You know, the traditional um, community that's interested in biology is, uh, you know, obviously coming from fields like biochemistry, biology, et cetera. But the field of synthetic biology is largely made up of engineers, people who don't necessarily have you know, classical training in biological systems. You know, people that we encounter, you know, are coming from fields like computer science, from mechanical engineering, from material science, and there are, of course, biologists who are interested in this. But it's a very different group of people who are thinking about biological systems. And as a result, this has really changed the mindset by which you think about engineering biology. I would kind of classify um, classical biotechnology or biology as kind of a top-down methodology where let's say you wanted to figure out how a car works. The way you would do it is you would get a car, you start opening the hood, and then start removing pieces one by one to see how they fit together. Um, in contrast, the way a lot of the engineers are thinking about now engineering biological systems is how to build them from the ground up. You know, the car is a really complex thing. It's going to take you forever to figure out how all these little parts are assembled together. So let's think about the other way, which is let's build things from the ground up. Let's build that basic biological computing unit. Let's plug them together, see what they do in a cell. And then from that, can we assemble you know, entirely new systems um, from the bottom up? And so that's really, I think, a, a shift in the mindset um, when you think about how to engineer biological systems. And this is a field 
um, I think that's burgeoned, uh, that's you know, um, come about over the last 10, 15 years. It's really focused on, on this, this way of thinking. And so as a result, there are a lot of new applications that are being addressed. And I would say that the majority of practitioners that I personally know are thinking about this from the positive perspective. There are lots of um, uh, you know, applications that I'm going to touch upon that we can do good with, that synthetic biology really enables. So I'll talk about those um, to start off. But before I get into this, I would just like to clarify, even though our ability to engineer biological systems is improving, it's still difficult to do. It's not something that um, you know, anyone can just go into the lab and make something happen in a very short period of time. There's a lot of trial and error. But what's really changed is our ability now to test, to build millions and millions of constructs in a short period of time and test which ones work. And that's the scale at which um, things are changing. So I want to touch upon a couple different applications here, um, just to highlight the types of things that are going on. So one is in this idea of biological computing and memory. So typically, you think about your computer uh, or your phone being able to process some information. But you can implement the same type of computing into living cells. And so people have built genetic circuits, completely artificial genetic circuits that you can plug into a cell, bacterial cells, yeast cells, even human cells, that allow you to compute you know, logic or store memory just like you would on your computer. And this is, um, again, turning biology into a substrate for engineering. And so from that, there have been a lot of downstream applications that have been opened up. So imagine being able to develop very rapid diagnostics for diseases. Um, oftentimes, we don't actually know what's happening inside of our body. There's complex um, microflora that's living inside of our gut, but we don't actually know what's happening there. And so what people are doing, for example, is engineering probiotic bacteria, just like the ones you would eat in your yogurt in the morning, with some of these genetic circuits, such that you could take a probiotic, it would go through your gut, it would go through the small intestine, large intestine, and during that transit, it could sense what's happening inside of you. It could detect whether you have early signs of inflammation. This is relevant for people with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. It could sense early signs of colon cancer. It could sense signs of bleeding. And then when it comes out the other end in the feces, you have very rapid and easy ways of testing what actually happened inside of you. And this is not just science fiction. These are concepts that I think we'll probably see um, starting clinical trials in just a couple of years. So these are some of the capabilities that you can actually start doing with the power of synthetic biology. Um, along those lines, um, you can think about building very um, targeted, personalized medicines using the tools of synthetic biology. So again, if you had the ability, for example, for a probiotic to sense inflammation inside of your gut, that same probiotic could make the therapeutic that's supposed to treat that infection. Or in another case, you know, the field of genome editing, we now have the ability to deliver constructs into human cells and correct genetic mutations. And so people are developing ways of delivering these circuits into living cells and make that one slight modification that causes disease. So a good example of this is, for example, with beta thalassemia or for HIV. There have been you know, demonstrated cures for some of these things that have been shown where you can deliver the gene, for example, that corrects the beta thalassemia um, um, a defect. Or you can make mutations in, in cells that make them resistant to subsequent HIV infection. I think there are, there are a variety of companies that are developing things along these lines. Synthetic biology also opens up the opportunity for a, a wide range of biomanufacturing. So if we think about how you can use cells to make materials for us, this has applications in pharmaceutical industry as well as in the in industrial and the chemical industries. So there are whole um, industries that are growing now where people are using engineered organisms, for example, photosynthetic organisms, to harvest energy from light and generate biofuels or other types of molecules that would otherwise be derived from petroleum. <coughs> On the therapeutic side, um, for example, there was a lab at Berkeley who figured out how to make yeast make an antimalarial compound that's typically found um, in, in a shrub. And so 
for example, to satisfy the entire world's need for this anti-malarial drug, you'd have to harvest almost all of these plants and extract it naturally. And so what these guys figured out how to do is to take that genetic code and optimize it and stick it into a yeast, just like the ones we used to make beer or, or, or bread. And now you can make liters and you know, thousands and thousands of liters of these things and extract large amounts of this anti-malarial drug. And this, um, you know, this was developed by a company named Amaris and has now translated uh, to a pharmaceutical company for distribution in, 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 the, in the developing world. <clears throat> and finally, I'd like to talk about um, another application, which is, again, you know, even thinking beyond um, just human disease or industrial applications, even larger-scale ecological implications of the technology. So for a while, people have been thinking about how to really combat um, widespread infections like malaria that are transmitted by things like mosquitoes. And one of the concepts that's come about is what if you could engineer the entire population of mosquitoes to be resistant or inhospitable for that malarial um, uh, parasite? And you know, in the past, this has been a really interesting concept, but not technically feasible. But with recent advances in technology over the last couple of years, we now have the ability to potentially you know, deliver constructs that could autonomously spread in the environment. I'm not saying anyone's doing this yet, but the technology is there to be able to do that. That would, for example, render mosquitoes inhospitable to the malarial parasite. And you can think about the potential large-scale implications of something like this, both on the, on the side of um, the ethics of it, um, the safety concerns, and also kind of policy you know, of, of something that could really change disease on a global scale, but also could have really um, profound implications. Um, these are just some of the areas I just wanted to highlight today in terms of the exciting things that people are doing in synthetic biology. I haven't talked about um, a lot of the work that's been going in agriculture or the development of new materials or even enhancing like, human performance using some of these techniques, but I'm happy to talk about those later. Um, but with any you know, powerful technology, obviously there's a, a potential for good and a potential for bad. I'm not a personal expert in biodefense, but I'll tell you a little bit about my perspective on what's going on in the field, um, just to stimulate some discussion. Um, you know, I think the, the, the broad impact of synthetic biology on the economy is something that's generally, an, I think, a net benefit to the, to the country. And we need to think about biodefense not only in the aspect of terrorism or disease, but also on things like corporate espionage. What happens if we, you know, the government invests tons of money to develop some really interesting technology that gets spun out to a company that's here in the United States that's really benefiting the economy, but somebody comes by, takes a little scoop of your organism and steals it. I mean, that's, that's an aspect of uh, economic security that's really important, and biology presents a unique challenge there because many of the things that are being developed are self-replicating on their own. So you can take you know, a single cell that you know, I've developed in the lab, and you could probably just copy it very easily in your own, in a, your own system. So thinking about what the rules and regulations, as well as the technological barriers for something like that are, are potentially um, very interesting. Um, secondarily, the community that makes up this field of bioengineering or synthetic biology is rapidly diversifying. So techniques, we heard earlier about how techniques that were Nobel Prize winning maybe 20 or 30 years ago are now being practiced by high school students, and this is absolutely true. There are, there's a, for example, an annual competition that grew out of MIT called the Inta International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. It's basically made up of um, high school students and um, university students from around the world that basically come up with an idea for some genetically um, engineered design. They build it and they come to compete every year on this. And, and over the last decade or so, this has grown to something where the last competition included 2,400 participants um, from around the world developing these um, new designs and coming to compete on you know, how cool their design was or did it actually work or not, et cetera. Um, but because of that, the community and the, the technologies are, are very widely disseminated. 
um, um, in the community. And you also see this in the context of community labs. So there are, um, you know, this biohacking community that's, that's growing up. And I think it's biohacking in the, at least they think about it in the good sense, where they want to encourage non-traditional biologists to be able to perform these experiments. Oftentimes these are um, growing out of people's garages and eventually migrating to the point where, um, you know, these are happening largely now in controlled labs. But there are, there's a community groundswell of effort to grow community labs, to get more and more people involved into this. And this, this is going to pose a challenge for, I guess, you know, how we think about uh, monitoring what's happening in, the, in, 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 uh, in, in this field. Um, lastly, you know, there are a lot of biosecurity concerns that we've heard about. I think synthetic biology does potentially have um, a technological um, contribution to give to this area where we can potentially contribute to more rapid diagnostics and the more rapid um, creation of personalized therapies. And I think this is an area that, that could be a kind of silver lining in, in terms of what synthetic biology can, can, can contribute. Um, in terms of recommendations, I think, or, or at least my thoughts on this, um, I think the, uh, at least my experience as, so, as a practitioner in the field, um, I, I don't get the sense that the, the government or, 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 or it has a very deep insight into actually what's going on in the ground. You know, there's a lot of really exciting work that has really profound implications. But, you know, you go to any of the, the major meetings here, at, uh, you know, in the field, and you very rarely see representatives from, you know, you know uh, any of the agencies there kind of picking that information up. You may see a few from the funding side, because obviously the majority of the funding comes from the U.S. government. But you don't really see much of the other community there trying to pick up on um, what's actually happening on the ground. And so maybe there's an opportunity there for, for you know, increased engagement with the community. And I think largely practitioners in this field are quite res responsible and happy to chat about what they're doing and, and, and give context into what the both positive and negative implications are. Um, and I think lastly, I touched upon this already, which is to think beyond um, you know, terrorism, but to think about you know, also the economic impacts and, and what, what, what um, impact it would have on the national economy if things like bioespionage or sabotage to the economic side of things um, were, were implemented. I think uh, some of the reports on this you know, have estimated the bioeconomy being more than you know, $300 billion a year. Um, and, and growing at a very rapid rate. So I think this is really becoming an important uh, sector of the economy. So in summary, I've told you today about kind of my perspective on the field of synthetic biology. I think it's a very exciting time as a scientist because the, the ability to understand and to manipulate bio biological systems is really coming to fruition. But there are going to be clear implications for you know, uh, us thinking about both the good and bad applications of such technologies. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Doctor. That was really uh, great. Um, and I understood what you said. <laughs> and, you know, you're looking at a, a, somebody when I was at college. We had a course called Science for Non-Science Majors. <laughs> so I, we took, I took something called Rocks and Stars, which were obviously <laughs> geology and astronomy. Uh, it's very exciting. So I, I, I think maybe we'll hold our uh, questions. It was really excellent. Thank you. And go uh, to, is it Kaizak? Kaizak. Good. That, makes, that made it easy. <laughs> Th thanks, Dr. Kaizek. Also comes to us with extraordinary uh, experience, and uh, we welcome your testimony now. Well, just I come from the Galveston National Lab, having spent a great deal of my uh, former career. Sir, we want to just grab the mic and put it in front of you. Uh, first of all, in the military, ending up at Fort Detrick, and in my introduction to uh, high containment, uh, working with high-consequence organisms, and then working at CDC, for 18 years, uh, largely in applied research and public health. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, do I have the ability to I can try that. Okay. 
So we, you've seen a version of this already where uh, this was presented at a uh, meeting sponsored by uh, Homeland Security that I went to once where this was sort of the bio threat uh, environment as time goes by, the scale's uh, not on there with synthetic biology, the introduction you know, sort of being the horizon with uh, which we should be very concerned. Uh, however, uh, from my perspective, uh, I think a little bit more perspective uh, on the situation and where the threats actually come from, from a national security uh, perspective is uh, probably due, and we've already heard this as well, that naturally occurring diseases often uh, in the international arena in particular uh, present threats that actually do change the biopolitics of entire regions. HIV would be one example. The recent uh, Ebola uh, outbreak would be another. In fact, I introduced that hump to sort of suggest that this is uh, something that's now being reflected in response to that particular outbreak. Uh, in terms of synthetics biology, uh, uh, the former speaker just mentioned that uh, you can uh, replicate uh, many of the uh, organisms or try millions and millions of versions very rapidly, but I would also suggest that these are replicating organisms that grow to very high <coughs> numbers, and in fact, they're doing that. That's how they evolve, and that's how there are changes that do occur. So uh, when a new disease emerges, it's often the result of the adaptation of the virus uh, or the agent to a new environment, which is exposed to probably one of the ones that uh, I'm most familiar with is SARS, which came probably initially out of some bats, got into animals in uh, wet markets in uh, China and Hong Kong, and then uh, was passed on to the human population, and we had a pretty big scare from that one. So uh, one of the questions that sort of uh, beyond that is uh, we're concerned about a list of agents which we now uh, have promulgated a, a group of regulations which uh, I would say restrict the uh, activities in laboratories that for public health reasons also deal with these not strictly uh, driven by concerns about biodefense. And a paper, I think one of our panel members actually is an author on this, was published in 2011, which points out uh, that these uh, same agents occur regularly in various parts of the world. And uh, this is a diagram very recent of recent activity in West Africa of the Ebola virus that's creating the uh, environment. The size of the green circles is activity within the last uh, week. Uh, so you can see that there's still a, a lot of activity, even though it appears to be diminishing in some places. So uh, working in, in labs with uh, these agents, uh, and my perspective <laughs> both comes from biodefense and for public health reasons, has be always been uh, interesting, uh, a special assignment. Uh, uh, in general, I would suggest that early in my career there was an environment where uh, the labs are uh, designed to contain the organisms and the people who work in them, and there's a culture that evolves that is driven by the need to keep those organisms concerned so that the safety of the individuals both working with them and those around the laboratory uh, is assured. And we've uh, tried to legislate that uh, in a different way now with the Select Agent Act and the enforcement. And I'm not saying this is altogether a bad thing, but now uh, the focus in the labs is more on accounting 
for uh, the uh, number of vials of the organism. And again, I would point out that these are self-replicating agents that uh, if we're protecting against an insider threat, there's plenty of opportunities to obtain some of the agent without uh, affecting the inventory. Because every time an experiment is done, replication occurs at a very high level and there's probably more of the organism created and thrown away than is captured in the material you store uh, as part of the analyses of the experiments or for the stocks that are retained in the laboratory. Another side effect of the regulations is that uh, moving materials, uh, particularly from outbreak settings or between the laboratories that are authorized to handle it, has become a very complicated affair and in some instances almost impossible. Uh, an example of this would be, and I'll show you a, a sort of a ridiculous uh, domestic example, is that to get materials back from the West African outbreak, uh, a private jet had to be sent from CDC to collect materials to be brought back for further study and disseminated to the various labs that are working with the materials. And uh, it's not a direct effect of the regulation itself, but the indirect impact on how carriers think about that. And I'll, I'll uh, cite a specific example. In 1998, uh, former colleagues at USAMRID developed a mouse model for Ebola. This is useful in screening compounds that may be useful for therapeutics or vaccines that might be used. And uh, uh, the folks at CDC, where I was then, arranged to have the material sent under the regulations as they existed then, and so we employed uh, FedEx to send it. Uh, some uh, employee at, in Memphis, the major hub for FedEx, took the box and set it aside because he noticed it had Ebola virus and he became concerned about it. Uh, it, it sat there without, I guess, him notifying his supervisors, and when it didn't show up, we did what we were obligated to do, which uh, inform uh, FedEx and uh, the select agent authorities that the box wasn't there. Uh, what happened as a result is the uh, people in Memphis got a visit from the FBI, which then convinced them that this was not something compatible with their business model. So you can no longer ship these materials by FedEx. The result of that is they do have a service uh, called uh, Custom Critical or sometimes called White Glove. And uh, a truck like this, I've had to do this three times now, uh, will uh, move a couple of vials of virus, something that's contained in a very small box <laughs> uh, at great cost. And this is not paid for by the select agent program. So five, five grand, more or less to move a couple of vials from uh, Fort Detrick, for instance, to UTMB or to CDC is now the norm. This is particular or, or uh, specific to USAMRID. They have something called AR50-1, which I guess they feel makes them use this technique to move stuff. Uh, other than uh, Fort Detrick, if I want to get or ship material to uh, uh, Peter Jarling, for instance, at uh, the NIH lab at Fort Detrick, uh, we use a company called World Courier, uh, which is a company which has made a business largely of handling biologic specimens in the past uh, made up of agents. They don't have the trucks, planes, or other infrastructure, but they have agents that will put this on a commercial air carrier, as your 
allowed to do and meet it at one end and uh, then bring it to your lab. And this is, uh, this little car right there is the equivalent of the FedEx truck as employed by World Courier. So the system uh, is uh, somewhat equivalent, but uh, obviously quite different. I, I'm not, <laughs> not criticizing World Courier. I, we're uh, heavy employers of these people, but uh, this is not good enough for USAMRID, for instance, to get virus from one location to another. Uh, another point I'd like to make out is that uh, some uh, agencies have become paranoid about select agents. So uh, I grew up in the DOD overseas labs. Uh, a lot of the experience and logistic abilities that I acquired throughout my career came from operating in these locations. These field labs largely are in place. They assist uh, the local governments in public health or other uh, biologic issues uh, primarily that they're dealing with. Uh, however, with the advent of select agents, they've essentially prohibited the uh, labs from uh, handling these agents. So even though, let's say, uh, a lab called NAMRU-6 in South America located in Lima may deal with a regional problem, Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, if they are assisting the government and they identify one of these agents, they aren't allowed to keep it. They have to destroy it immediately. And, uh, and uh, another example would be NAMRU-3, which is the lab in Cairo during Arab Spring, uh, was advised to destroy uh, stocks of select agents that they had, I guess because of potential fear of uh, those being uh, the lab being invaded and those falling into the wrong hands. But consequently to that, uh, strains of Rift Valley fever that were maintained in that lab and that lab as own were destroyed and are no longer available. Uh, and uh, somebody earlier in the talk mentioned that uh, if I sequence these things, essentially I've captured the qualities of the agents. I personally would argue with that, that uh, I can't tell uh, strictly from the genetic signature of the virus or its sequence what the pathogenicity of that particular virus might be. And if I want to do uh, studies on whether a new vaccine might be effective, it might be very important to have some of these strains to take a look at. And that's probably a bad example for Rift Valley fever. But uh, consequently, uh, I would just argue that uh, policies like this uh, often are detrimental to the practice of uh, science, both uh, for uh, biodefense as well as for public health. Because one of the things that for, uh, I guess, forensic reasons that uh, is highly sought after is the sequences of viruses from a variety of places. And if those aren't available, if they're destroyed in this manner, they're not going to be available for further attribution at some future point. So I think those were the major points that I wanted to make. Uh, that uh, everything that's done in the name of uh, sort of protecting the agents uh, may have, uh, I'm sure, unintended, but nevertheless consequential uh, effects on the practice of the laboratory science that is done for events like the current Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Thanks, uh, Dr. Kaiser. Uh, we, we got that. We hear your message and uh, appreciate the directness um, with which you delivered it to us. It's helpful to us as we go forward. Um, Dr. Liu, uh, is it fair to say that the extraordinary, I mean, you, you at one point referred to the, uh, 
the fact of history that new technologies, probably going back to fire, uh, seem to always end up uh, being used, not, not only making good things happen, but also being used negatively often in uh, warfare. Um, so it, would you say that the, these extraordinary developments in uh, synthetic biology you describe um, raise uh, either one, the lethality, the potential lethality of biological attack against the U.S., or in some ways make it easier to construct biological weapons? So I think the, the question about lethality is hard to address just because um, I've, I haven't come into uh, knowledge of people being able to actually achieve that. Um, but okay. you, you look at things like some of the game-of-function studies that have been done with viral-type engineering, making them much more virulent in certain animal models. And, you know, we can uh, ex potentially accelerate um, some of those efforts with the types of technologies that are being developed. In terms of um, the ability to just to just raw manipulation of biological systems, that is certainly something that's accelerating. And whether you direct that towards something that's productive or not, that's kind of like a foundational technology that yeah. I think um, could lead either way. That, that, and that on its own is definitely accelerating. In a sense, makes it easier to, I hate to use the word easier, but, but the, the capacity use your term the to manipulate. The capacity to manipulate has become easier. It's still, I'm not saying it's easy. It's, it's still a very difficult thing, but it's right. much easier than in the past. Right. On the, on, the, on the good side, and you sort of hinted at this, but I want to just ask you specifically, uh, will the developments in synthetic biology, or do they hold a hope, uh, the developments in synthetic biology, of um, enabling us to uh, do better at developing countermeasures? Yeah, and that's one of the things I, was, uh, um, I wanted to highlight, which is that um, the ability to develop new sensors, for example, right. to detect um, organisms that you know are coming out that are not necessarily known to us, is is definitely something that synthetic biology can bring to the table. And along with that, you know, new types of personalized therapeutics. So I'll give you one one just brief example, which is in the area of antimicrobial resistance, where we heard earlier about developing antibiotics and new, new drugs to go after those types of bacterial pathogens. Um, what we and others in the field have been able to do is to take a different class of antimicrobials. These are basically viruses that infect bacteria, known as phages. And interestingly enough, these were discovered over 100 years ago. But the technology has gotten to the point where you can literally, you know, call up a company or go on the internet, get them to print out the, the sequence of DNA that you want for this virus, and get the, and then get them to deliver it to you. And you can make that virus, and you can develop essentially viruses that will countermeasure certain types of bacteria, you know, ones that are highly antibiotic resistant. Um, and so that's just one example where I think the barriers for at least being able to try different types of countermeasures faster are being lowered. Um, I think the rate of still finding one that works effectively is still low. But if you can just try more, then you have a greater chance of finding it. Thank you. Governor Ridge. Yeah, to that point, uh, to what extent is your research funded by either public or private uh, entities? I, I would say, yeah, uh, for myself and probably most of the practitioners in the United States, the majority of the funding is federal. And over through. the last, uh, so um, it's interesting, over the last, probably in the early stages of the field, it was largely NSF or uh, you know, Navy type of research. Um, in the last five years or so, there's been a significant uptick in DARPA type funding for this work. And there's a lot of money that's gone into that um, with very specific goals around, for example, safety and attribution or around, you know, making um, thousands of new materials out of biological systems, et cetera. There's been a lot of new projects that have ar arisen. And NIH has also started to pick up a, a little bit. 
Um, but I would say that the big, big gorilla in the, in, in the U.S. funding right now is definitely DARPA. Okay. Any specific uh, funding toward uh, something that uh, my colleague mentioned, Senator Lieben, with regard to therapeutics? Um, there are definitely grants coming that, that are that that um, are around for those types of things. They they tend to be at much smaller scales than, than, for example, what DARPA type grants are funding these days. So, you know, a typical DARPA grant for, um, for example, the project where you want to make a thousand different new molecules is in the range of maybe ten million dollars or thirty ten to twenty million dollars per group. Whereas most of the funding you can get around some of these select agent um, classes or or new types of therapeutics are are much much lower and, and frankly kind of difficult for academics to access, primarily because we don't have access to the BSL-3 or 4 facilities. Um, and so there is somewhat, I think, of a gulf between what you can do in academic labs, how at least based on my personal experience. How important it would be in your future to have access to the BSL-3 and BSL-4 labs in order to expedite the work that you're doing? I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, you can't, do, you, by, legally, you can't do any work on some of these organisms that were described before. So, And, so, and, and, the, and the, the prohibition now is... Statutory, regulatory. Uh, that's my understanding. For example, at MIT, we can't do anything beyond BL three. Oh, I don't think there are BL three labs at MIT at all. And so, basically, we're restricted in the case of, you know, for example, studying Yersinia or, or some of these organisms to basically um, build very good therapeutics against the cousin of the pathogen that kills mice, but has no real relevance to the human pathogen. Um, just we don't we don't have access. You're going to comment, doctor? Did you want to comment? No, I just say that uh, some of the, the laboratories. Collaboration. Right. That's part of the reason for two academics, Austin and mm-hmm. one at UCD, sort of avail a hybrid of events. Largely, the, uh, the biotechnology part would be done by the partner. It might be done at UTMB as well, but the test and evaluation right. part would be done uh, within a national or other laboratory, uh, for instance, directly funded by NIH. Uh, for one, I appreciate your observation about the emphasis on uh, uh, compliance or check-the-box uh, compliance rather than perhaps uh, just ensuring that the people that have access to these facilities meet the highest ethical and professional standards, which might be a better way if you're looking to re- manage the risk. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, controlling the people who have correct. access is the way to do this. Yeah, correct. Dr. Lou, if I just follow up on uh, Governor Rich, I was really surprised that your answer to the question about where the government funding was coming from. I'm very, I'm happy that DARPA's on the frontier as it's been for mm-hmm. a long time now, but it, it was surprising to me that NIH is now more active in funding in synthetic biology. Yeah, I think that's, that, that, that is changing over the last couple of years. I think they were, um, you know, synthetic biology is a very different community than the typical, I think, NIH community yeah. that's funded in terms of its often viewed as a bunch of engineers who don't know biology trying to get into it, and so, which is probably true. Um, but, but I think in recent times, I think the, the, the power of the tools are becoming evident for studying biology and, and trying to treat human diseases, and so I think that is a, a trend that's starting to change. But DOD by far is, is I think, the major funder. Introduction. Well, I, just on that point, I was curious as to whether or not the motivation or the opposition or the, the degree of, of NIH um, involvement may be associated with another concern that that I've had for a long time with regard to the application of science and technology in genomic research, Mm -hmm. especially around food. There is just an enormous contribution that can be made, and we've seen that contribution over and over again. I don't think we 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 can meet the challenges we face in food production in the next 30 years 
without the applications of science. So I'm curious as to whether or not the concerns raised with GMOs, especially in Europe, uh, but also here, uh, are a factor in the commitment to research and development and science overall. Sure. How does that, that attitude uh, factor in? Yeah, actually, I think people um, in the field are quite gun-shy when it comes to manipulating anything related to agriculture or food um, because of some of these issues where you can spend a lot of time developing something that is quite useful in the lab, but it may never see the light of day, and that's pretty sad for the scientists, I think. Um, and, and so, you know, in some sense, it, I think it puts a damper on, on some of the research activities that people would like to do. And kind of the other phenomenon that you've been seeing, I think, is that people have been finding interesting loopholes to get around what you call genetically modified. I mean, if you actually look at the, there was actually a really interesting New York Times article a couple of weeks ago about what actually is regulated by, by, by the EPA or what, what's actually classified as a GMO. And it really is a very restrictive set of technologies that were developed maybe 20 years ago. And uh, one of the controversies now is actually a lot of the tools that we've now developed that can work technically don't actually fall under that statute, at least is my understanding of it. And so there are, there is a, f a fair amount of flurry of activity going on trying to develop some of these alternative strategies to be able to manipulate and genetically improve um, agricultural type systems that don't necessarily fall into the current regulation. It'll be really interesting to see how this is going to play out because um, I guess from the perspective of certain groups, they would definitely classify those genetically modified, but, 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 but legally I think mm -hmm. they may fall outside of the purview. But I guess I'm wondering, Dr. Liu, whether that mentality can be seen in, in other scientific research and endeavors as well. I mean, do you see it in the other genomic activities that you've described so eloquently this afternoon? Oh, I see. So, um, you know, I think uh, in the cases of, for example, human health, people are, are aware of some of those concerns, but I think their, their, their sensitivity to that is a little bit trumped by the desire to try to treat some of these major human conditions that are here now. And I think that's a little bit of the difference between trying to apply these technologies to treat human disease where people can really feel you know, the issue, and it's like, you know, interpersonal thing. You really get why we need to do this versus something like food, which um, I think is a pervasive thing, has all these uh, socioeconomic implications associated with it, and I think it kind of connotes something very different to these communities. Hmm. So I haven't seen the same um, issues with regard to the health side of things. There is a concern, I think, with industrial environmental applications outside of food. So, for example, using organisms to make chemicals or make materials. You can make biofuel out of algae, for example. And a lot of these... Um, Proposals, some of them are talking about, you know, open, open lakes of, you know, algae making, making biofuels. And, again, some of the same attendant concerns about genetically modified organisms are, are still there. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, I should start with the left side of the table, which is not necessarily the liberal side. Although, as I look at the other side of the table, it may be the liberal side. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions over there? Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, do you have a question? Do you want to go this way? Okay. Go ahead. All the way to the left or the right from us, our perspective. Uh, I want to go back, Senator Lieberman, to your original question about the um, the role of synthetic biology for, for Dr. Liu. And um, you've, you've gone partway down this road, but I thought that the current experience that the public is able to witness about the difficulty and the expense and the time required to develop a drug or a vaccine with Ebola. We have the example this year of the flu vaccine with a breakthrough strain. That happens periodically. I tend to keep my patient package insert from my flu vaccine every year just to sort of look at it and say, ah, did it, did it work this time or not? But now the public actually is seeing that so that we're having a learning moment that is potentially very valuable. 
One of the concerns about synthetic biology that's been expressed is the possibility that it could be used to make a bioweapon. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it, we have the possibility that it could be used um, for development of countermeasures. Um, if you were to use synthetic biology to make a biothreat agent, you could make an Agent X mm -hmm. that's not recognized by current diagnostics, drugs, vaccines, etc. Do you think it's possible that you would foresee a role for synthetic biology to obviate the need for the diagnostics altogether, to go straight to development of a countermeasure strictly by taking whatever the agent is, whatever the pathogen is, and using uh, what we know about pathways, what we know from <coughs> synthetic biology, to figure out a way to stop its replication or to develop a vaccine that you think would be protective? So I think there's always going to be a, probably a role for diagnostics. I mean, I think you have to somewhat be able to characterize what you're going after before you can develop a very effective countermeasure against it. So, um, with you know, in any envisioned, at least ones I can imagine, uh, 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 biothreat agents that you might try to develop, because they span such a wide range of potential vectors or mechanisms, um, being able to develop like that one magic countermeasure that goes after everything will likely be very, very challenging. So I think you always have to have the diagnostics tightly coupled with the ability to develop the therapeutic. So just to clarify, I don't mean one that would be multivalent, yeah. go after everything, but could go after that bug specifically without having to, to characterize it. Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you kind of knew something about the characteristics of that threat, you might be able to develop something like that. But still, I think the, the ability to distinguish, you know, clinically between somebody who comes in with some, perhaps some, something that's natural versus bio-threat that, that would be directly addressable by your countermeasure, I think the, the presence of diagnostic would still be very helpful in those situations. Gerald or Yona? of high school students and so on. Uh, my question is really broader as scientists and um, my, my question directly to you and um, the other panelists before is how, how do you approach the role of the civic society to deal with the problem? By that, of course, uh, we are talking about the scientific community. We talk about the uh, universities, the high schools, and so on. But my question is, as scientists, do you think also about the role of other segments of the civic society, such as the role of uh, religious communities, um, because we are engaged in the battle of uh, culture, the culture of life and the culture of death, as we have seen time and again, uh, and the role of the media for example, do they have a responsibility how to cover uh, incidents or to inform the public credibly about the situation? And uh, finally, of course, the, the public in general. Uh, if you look at uh, those who are in, interested in tourism, how they should be educated about visiting countries and so on. So in other words, how do you perceive the role of the civic society in general. Please. Please. Yeah, I think uh, the public health sector, I think, thinks very much of these things. I mean, I part of my job at CDC was responding to outbreaks, and often, let's say, an Ebola outbreak is an example, it was uh, trying to bring down the frenzy that surrounds one of these outbreaks to the reality of 
how the virus is transmitted and getting those messages to the public. Uh, you mentioned religion, uh, burial practices, and which can vary from religion to religion is very much a part of transmission of the virus. So uh, you have to think in terms of how you engage uh, society as a whole. Often uh, in those environments, uh, anthropologists would be brought in to assist the hard scientists in sort of trying to measure what the qualities that the greatest impact might be made in. So it's not necessarily the, I think, the laboratory scientists who think a lot about that, but rather uh, the public health sector in trying to address the disease and control it that uh, tend to be more engaged. Yeah, and I perfect. No, a scooter after a, uh, a pejoratively uh, described you. Although I'm sure you weren't upset about it. <laughs> Do either you or Tevi have a question? Uh, I don't, but I was honored by the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. I had one, but I'm withholding it as an objection to profiling. <laughs> I don't want to see you leaving the room to call Attorney General Holder. <laughs> uh, Ken, do you want to ask anything? Uh, yeah, actually, just sort of more by way of idle curiosity, Dr. Liu, just want to follow up. You mentioned um, the prospect of rendering malaria or rendering mosquitoes inhospitable to malaria mm -hmm. and then you mentioned that there are a number of issues about that including ethical issues I assume we're not concerned about the ethical treatment of mosquitoes uh, and I understand sort of the general ethical issues about um, synthetic biology but are there specific ones as it relates to that situation? I guess the question is you know is it is it ethical to um, manipulate a natural ecosystem in such a way to you know Manipulate for good. I mean, we've been doing that for a long time, but mm -hmm. the, the perhaps the scale at which you could do this is perhaps something that um, is not something that we've necessarily seen before. And and and, and I think um, on a secondary front, uh, many of these technologies are being developed in developed countries, but benefiting um, third world countries. And the question is, who gets to make this decision on whether to do this or not? Is it? <laughs> the NGO that decides to fund this? Is it the U.S. government that decides to fund this? Or is it that the third world country has to, you know, that comes up to you and says, this is a good idea, I want the technology? Uh, how do you think about this technology if um, the third world country wants it, but there's opposition in the country that developed it? Is it ethical to withhold that from something that would help another world's population? And lastly, mosquitoes, for example, don't respect national boundaries. So what happens if country A wants this, country B doesn't want it, but the mosquitoes go back and forth. So how do you think about those issues? And I think it's potentially a very interesting but challenging one. Yes, yeah. Thanks. Well, this raises the broader question of border security, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's <laughs> what you're has <laughs> got me going. Uh, Dr. Kaizak, Dr. Lou, uh, thank you for your testimony. I tell you, I, I really want to thank Bob and your team because the witnesses you brought forth today, uh, and, and now we have two more panels. I, I, for one, I really learned a lot. I mean, it's, it's been great. So Thanks thank for the opportunity. You. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, welcome back. Thank you uh, again. Thanks to this uh, panel of four. I've been, uh, so is this Levy or Levy? Levy. Okay. So we'll start. Uh, this panel is on uh, resilience, biodeterrence, first responder vaccination, and agricultural defense. Um, and first, we have Dr. Jeff Levy. Thank you, Senator. Um, um, Why don't and you thank pull you. the mic close to you so they okay. can hear you back. Good. Okay. 
Um, I'm delighted to be here. I'm Jeff Levy. I'm Executive Director of Trust for America's Health. We're a national nonprofit advocacy organization, and our focus is on prevention and a stronger public health system. Um, we have been, over the last 10 or 11 years, doing an annual report that really assesses the nation's capacity to respond to various types of threats. Um, it used to be called Ready or Not, and it was really focused on bioterrorist and naturally occurring disasters. Um, we expanded it two years ago uh, to really reflect the broader all-hazards approach um, and now call the report, and you have a copy now, uh, called Outbreaks, Protecting Americans from Infectious Diseases, and that encompasses all kinds of infectious diseases, whether man-made or uh, naturally occurring. Um, we do this report to really assess and examine the country's policies to respond to ongoing and emerging threats, ranging from Ebola to enterovirus to salmonella, and perhaps even more traditional public health concerns like HIV. Um, to assess these policies and the capac our capacity to respond to infectious diseases, um, we examine a range of concerns. Um, and in each of these reports, we look at 10 indicators to see how states are doing in terms of outcomes and also in terms of having appropriate policies in place uh, to take a snapshot and see the strengths and vulnerabilities of our system. And you ha we have for you a copy of that report and the 10 indicators that we use this year, ranging from our capacity to deliver immunizations to having appropriate policies around climate change um, and everything in between. Um, and, and, and what I will try to do is sort of summarize our findings from those reports and some of the recommendations that emerge from that, that this year's report in particular. Uh, but I think the, the overarching perspective that we need to offer is that over the last decade, we've seen dramatic improvements in state and local capacity to respond to outbreaks and emergencies. But this year's Ebola outbreak, as I think you heard from a prior panel, has also served as a major wake-up call to the United States and a reminder that infectious the infectious threat anywhere is an infectious threat everywhere. Um, Ebola raised attention to serious gaps in our ability to manage disease outbreaks and contain their spread. It was alarming that many of the most basic infectious con disease control policies, um, actually many of the appropriate policies were not necessarily in place uh, when we were tested by this Ebola threat. And while the country significantly ramped up our ability to respond to health threats post 9-11 and anthrax, there are still some persistent and troubling gaps. In particular, I'd like to highlight four uh, specific areas of, of concern. The first is that we continue to underfund or cut key public health protections. You know, we saw after 9-11 and after anthrax a dramatic rise in our investments in public health and in preparedness. Um, those began to wane a little bit, and then we were concerned about pandemic flu. The concern rose again, and we saw yet another infusion of dollars, but then another dip. And our report has some good charts that show the sort of the rise and fall of our interest. Um, the Ebola threat, I think, showed us how disruptive even a handful of cases can be um, and how they can threaten to, uh, how they pose a threat to our defenses. Uh, maintaining a strong and steady baseline would be a much better strategy for protecting our healthcare workers and the public and ultimately would be less costly. Uh, you can't create this kind of response on the fly, um, and in fact, it can be far more costly to try to create a rapid response on the fly than maintaining a core capacity 
to respond. We have a tendency to focus on the newest and most alarming threat, and that's at the expense of maintaining a steady defense against the ongoing and costly illnesses that affect communities nationwide every year. When there is no major threat dominating headlines, we start letting down our guard, cut our funds, and then we are caught off guard and underprepared for the next outbreak. Whether it's the public health emergency preparedness grants from CDC, the hospital preparedness program at ASPR, or the strategic national stockpile, or even antibiotic resistance programs, they've all stagnated or received serious cuts over the past decade. Now, in response to Ebola, all of them are getting a bump up, but that's not a, a wise way of doing policy. Uh, a second concern is that, you know, we have, as you heard from Dr. Stoto earlier, a very decentralized public health system. And ultimately, the real authority around public health lands at the state level and often at the local level. And what we saw in Ebola was some significant inconsistencies in how states handled the response on very basic issues like quarantine and isolation. Uh, these kinds of questions actually should have been resolved before there was a first case. Um, we should have anticipated something like Ebola coming, and we certainly shouldn't be, let pol be letting politics and fear drive policy decisions during an outbreak rather than relying on sound science. Which leads to our third concern, which is that we are still learning how to conduct accurate and effective risk communications. We saw that during the H1N flu outbreak. We see that as a continuing problem in people's willingness to uh, have their themselves or their children vaccinated. But we also saw it in the the risk communications that occurred around Ebola, where there was there was it was appropriate to be concerned, but some of the level of panic that almost panic that was created. <laughs> I think was a failure of communications. And finally, the, the fourth concern that is also eliminated in our report is that the federal government is not organized in a way to optimize preparedness response. Uh, within HHS and across the agencies, the current federal structure for handling public health issues is not coordinated and lacks clear, strong central leadership. The Assistant Secretary for Preparedness Response within HHS lacks line or budget authority over the other preparedness divisions within HHS. And that's just one example of creating silos and lacking centralized leadership. So we have three recommendations. Um, the first is that when we think about funding and federal investments in long-term preparedness, we need to be focusing on foundational capabilities for all levels of government. Where you live should not determine the strength of the local health department you have or the kinds of services or capacities that that health department has, whether it's assessment, the surveillance and epidemiology and lab capacity that you need, or whether it's all hazards preparedness, we do not have an even capacity across the country. That kind of, it's time that we invest in that kind of foundational capabilities across the country. And if we did that, our wrap up, ramp up and the additional funds we needed in emergency would probably be reduced. So we need to define those foundational capabilities, create those expectations, and second, we need to fund them and really tie federal funding, receipt of federal funding, to the ability of health departments to meet that. And finally, um, the federal public health structure needs to also support foundational capabilities. Um, we do not have within HHS an individual, whether it's the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, the Assistant Secretary for Health, overall for public health. There is no one in below the secretary who has authority over all of the public health agencies to make sure that they are working together in a comprehensive and coordinated way 
uh, to assure accountability, coordination, and clear leadership. And frankly, we have the same problem at the White House, that we need to have, in our report, we call for the creation of a special assistant to the president for health security to manage infectious disease and public health threats. We shouldn't at the last minute be, frankly, calling in a political operative to make sure that everything is coordinated. We, there should be someone who has that direct responsibility uh, to address these issues from the get-go and will be able to step in and show the kind of leadership that is needed from both the White House, obviously at the White House level, but also at the health agencies. So that is a, a quick summary of what our recommendations are in the context of this Blue Ribbon Panel, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thanks, Dr. Levy. It's an excellent report. Thanks for your testimony. You, you dealt with uh, something that we've been talking about, which is um, essentially who's in charge. and. Uh, um, some of the people who appear to be in charge are not in charge of, of most of the money. Uh, so then it, it really raises questions about how our priorities set. So uh, your, your uh, suggestions are, uh, are very helpful, very constructive. Uh, next, uh, Bruce Miller. Um, I haven't been introducing any, anybody really except by name, but if you want, I know who you are, but if you want to <laughs> mention <laughs> briefly, um, uh, anyway, welcome. I'm in the private sector currently. I worked eight years in the last administration uh, working Homeland Security for the Office of Vice President. Uh, before that, uh, worked uh, policy issues and deterrence and counter uh, WMD. Um, had command of a couple submarines back when I was a kid. Um, so it. Uh, <laughs> didn't you get us into war? Right now. <laughs> no, managed to avoid that. Yeah, but, uh, you weren't too young. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been asked to talk about bioterrorism, deterring bioterrorism. And deterrence is something that I have been thinking about for probably more than 40 years and something that we put a lot of thought into uh, with a lot of people around uh, the room today. Uh, how do we deter bioterrorism? Um, deterrence is a much misunderstood concept among many audiences. Uh, to many, deterrence is synonymous with the threat of massive nuclear retaliation. But that's basically a Cold War legacy. Deterrence is a much more subtle and complex concept. One of the fundamental resources in this area is the military's Joint Operational Concept, or JOC, for deterrence operations. The JOC states that deterrence is the prevention of an adversary's undesired action. And that works for me. In the literature, you're going to find many that make the distinction between deterrence and dissuasion. Dissuasion being preventing an adversary from acquiring a weapon, deterrence being preventing an adversary from using a weapon that he has. This distinction makes some sense if you're talking nuclear weapons and states, uh, because they're two very different decisions. When you're talking bioterrorism, the distinction loses much of its value, because the decision of a terrorist to acquire a biological weapon is tantamount to his decision to use it. So in the context of this discussion, I'm going to be combining deterrence and dissuasion into one concept, deterrence. One additional caveat, uh, deterring uh, bioterrorism is in large part the process of deterring non-state actors. Although with ISIL and Hezbollah, um, AQAP and others, we're seeing a blurring of the distinction of lines between state and non-state actors. But for this discussion, we're focusing on deterring non-state actors. Well, whether the objective is deterring a nuclear first strike by the old Soviet Union or deterring my children from some contemplated misbehavior, the fundamentals of deterring <coughs> are clear. The other party will likely consider the following factors, the benefits of a given action, the cost of a given action, and the costs and benefits of not taking action. And that's what this teeter-totter slide is intended to show. This is deterrence. Generally, an irrational being, if the perceived costs of a given action exceed the perceived benefits of that action, deterrence can succeed. But note a couple of key words. The need for a rational actor. <clears throat> and 
And the limitation of deterrent depends on the adversary's perception of costs and benefits, not the actual costs and benefits. And I should add a word of warning. What we assess as an irrational choice may stem from a fundamentally different perception of what the costs and benefits are. The diagram on the slide, as I said, captures this deterrence balance. But note that the teeter-totter has a movable fulcrum. The adversary has a high stake in the outcome of the action. This fulcrum moves to the right. Um, as an example, during the first Gulf War, an element of U.S. efforts to deter Saddam Hussein from using chemical weapons was insistence by President Bush that the U.S. aims were limited to the uh, liberation of Kuwait. Saddam's survival was not at stake, and the fulcrum moved to the left, decreasing the relative benefit of, to him of using those chemical weapons. But first, let's look at the benefits of action, the benefits of a bioterror attack as seen by the potential perpetrator. The benefits we must offset for deterrence to succeed are fairly straightforward. One, of course, a successful attack will generate terror. I guess that's the point. It will severely weaken the target's morale. I think many of us who were around for 9-11 well recall the impact as we thought about uh, the terror possibilities, as we bought duct tape and gas masks, as we looked with suspicion at newcomers and citizens around us. <clears throat> but there are other impacts. A successful attack could trigger enemy withdrawal or disengagement. The 1983 bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon provides a great example. The twin bombings of the U.S. and the French barracks basically triggered the withdrawal of the uh, international force from Lebanon. Now, if the responsibility is accurately claimed or attributed, a successful attack could strengthen the terror organization by attracting support both financial and uh, personnel. And I think we all know that following the initial successes in Syria and Iraq, recruits reportedly were flowing into ISIL at relatively high rates. But even a failed attack could have perceived benefits. One, it would weaken enemy morale, and the enemy would learn from his attack and make his next attack better. Now, there are costs of inaction. Inaction, of course, has some severe costs, potentially. Um, in particular, for terrorist organization, those costs can translate to a loss of relevance to the espoused mission and thus a loss of support. And I think, again, the rise of ISIL owes much to the jihadist view that, that Al-Qaeda had failed to act effectively since 9-11. But now we want to look at how we achieve deterrence by decreasing the benefits and increasing the costs of a given bioterror attack in the mind of the perpetrator. An effective way to discourage a given action, perhaps the most effective way in some cases, is to increase the difficulty of achieving success, achieving success with that action. Also called deterrence by denial of benefits, discouraging a bioterror attack is, to a great extent, about increasing the perceived difficulty of planning and executing a successful attack. And how do we do that? Well, first, we increase the difficulty of acquiring a suitable pathogen, and we can do that in several ways. One, of course, is establishing and reinforcing norms of responsible conduct and reducing potential for exploitation of biotechnology, as we've talked about earlier. Of course, this was one of the thrusts of the Countering Biological Threats uh, National Strategy President Obama signed in 2009. We can do that with our counterproliferation and our nonproliferation efforts. And of course, the uh, National Counterproliferation Center, established by the uh, Intelligent Reform and Terrorism, Terrorism Prevention Act 2004, was one way we took very visible action to do that. We can do that by increasing pathogen security. And we've heard that discussed earlier. Of course, that was the thrust of our Executive Order uh, 1346 uh, in 2009 that put together a working group to think about how do we do that. And by pathogen security, of course, we're talking about increasing the physical security of the pathogen and increasing our ability to monitor the reliability of the people that handle and uh, um, store that pathogen. But as I'm sure you're aware, there have been some recent indications that biosafety and perhaps biosecurity 
is not working well today, as quite as well as we might hope. Overseas, of course, increasing passenger security is uh, one of the main thrusts of what's been called uh, CTR cooperation, Cooperative Threat Reduction 2.0. This is also an area in which the efforts to detect and surveil potential domestic terrorists or lone wolf factors could come into play. This includes investigations of suspicious acquisitions that might support a nascent bioterror effort. But for deterrence, of course, the key must be letting would-be bioterrorists know that we investigate these acquisitions, but maybe not how or what we investigate. In deterrence, often ambiguity is your best friend. A second way we can increase difficulty is by increasing the difficulty of weaponizing the selected bioagents. As this panel has heard, weaponizing a pathogen, that is putting it in a form suitable for transmission to a large number of potential victims, is generally an even greater challenge than acquiring the pathogen. Where this expertise exists, of course, is in nations that past or potentially current bioweapons programs have developed it. The challenge then here is to deter state actors from transferring the knowledge or equipment to non-state actors. Uh, such transfers are, of course, prohibited by the bio Biological Weapons Convention. But uh, following 9-11, many of us in the White House felt that this prohibition needed to be reinforced. In 2008, Steve Hadley announced the adjustment to U.S. deterrence policy that we had been seeking. And I quote, the United States will hold any state, terrorist group, or other non-state actor fully accountable for supporting or enabling terrorist efforts to obtain or use weapons of mass destruction, whether by facilitating, financing, providing expertise, or safe haven for such efforts. And the 2010 Nuclear Posture Review reaffirmed this commitment. A third way to increase difficulty is to increase the perceived difficulty of transporting or delivering the agent. Here again, U.S. counterproliferation efforts would play a major role as could domestic efforts to surveil or identify potential lone wolf actors. Border screening could play, but frankly, it's a lot more useful to use border screening for nuclear threats, where you have a unique and detectable signature. For easily conceivable bio threats, it's particularly hard to make the border screening a deterrent threat. Finally, we can increase the perceived difficulty of overcoming our defenses against a bio attack. Here the keys are, as we've heard, first off, expectation of timely detection of the attack. And that might occur through effective biosurveillance or with detector systems like BioWatch. I note the President signed the National Strategy for Biosurveillance in the summer of 2012 in recognition of the need to strengthen our efforts in this area. A second key is availability of sufficient quantities of appropriate countermeasures. And others have already addressed uh, uh, the nation's progress with countermeasures, starting with the establishment of these predece the predecessor to the strategic national stockpile in the Clinton administration. And of course, there have been a number of highly uh, visible advances since then, starting with Project BioShield Act in 2004, Pandemic and All Hazard Preparedness Act in 2006, its reauthorization in 2013, and uh, so forth. The third key is to increase perceived difficulty of attack by increasing our ability to deliver care for victims and minimize the effects of a successful attack. There have been a lot of efforts to strengthen the public health infrastructure, but I defer to others on whether or not there has been enough. Now, actions that increase the perceived difficulty of executing a successful bioterror attack increase our ability to deter that attack, but conveniently, they also increase our ability to respond if an attack occurs. But these are by no means the only deterrents to a terrorist executing a bioterror attack. There are opportunity costs. Preparing for and uh, delivering a bioterror attack would require the expenditure of resources, people, and funds that could be used in other ways to achieve the organization's goals. There are moral costs, by which I mean the consistency of the contemplated action with individuals' moral principles or accepted religious societal norms. The moral cost could include loss of support for the organization. Now, this cost was important enough for Osama bin Laden to feel the need to obtain fatwas allowing use of WMD against infidels in both 2002 and 2003. 
But now let's look at the cost to the terrorists of a successful attack. These take us closer to a more traditional view of deterrence. First, a successful attack will stimulate better efforts to build better defenses against the next attack, making the next attack more difficult. Of course, the massive U.S. response to strengthen our defenses against terrorism after 9-11 provided <clears throat> the most obvious example. But alternatively, if the aim of the terrorists was to break the bank, that is to bankrupt the U.S. by pushing us to a, into a vain effort to stay ahead of our adversaries, much as we did the Soviets in the 1980s, this might be viewed as a benefit rather than the cost of action. Now, if responsibly the attack is claimed or is it accurately attributed, the perpetrators must know that a punitive response is likely. Some have argued that we're already doing all we can against terror organizations, that we can't do any more, we can't threaten anymore. But they and we know that is not true. Whether it's ISIL in Iraq, Al-Qaeda Corps in Pakistan, AQAP in Yemen, or whoever else may threaten, the current level of effort is a complex outcome of competing priorities. But if those priorities change, the U.S. can bring enormous power to bear. But we must face an overarching truth. We must credibly threaten what an adversary values to deter him with the threat of punishment. Credibility is the reason that nuclear weapons don't deter terrorists. On the other hand, as it turns out, we've repeatedly demonstrated the ability to credibly threaten what terror leaders value with the drone program. Terrorists, senior leaders, and planners appear to highly value their own lives. Indeed, I am reminded of the quote from General George C. Patton's book. To paraphrase, to paraphrase General Patton, the goal of the most senior, <coughs> excuse me, the goal of the most senior terror leaders seems not to be to die for their jihad, but rather to make some other poor dumb bastard die for his jihad. <laughs> now, the impact of the drone attacks in Pakistan and Yemen has been significant, if I can believe what I read in the papers. And this success has come without the motivation of recent attack fresh in our memories. Another severe cost, the potential disruption of organizational efforts. Certainly this is a lesson learned well by Al-Qaeda following U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. Failed attacks, too, have cost the perpetrator, similar to and maybe even greater than the cost of success. Finally, the benefits in action. The benefits in inaction work with the cost of the action to deter action. They can include husbanding resources for future efforts, or eliminating the risk of failure or embarrassment. So, where is the teeter-totter today? And uh, if I can get the slide to change, yeah, there we go. Are we effectively deterring bioterror? What does all this mean for policy? As I've tried to suggest, the U.S. government has put considerable effort into the components of biodefense over at least the last three administrations. Strategies and plans have been issued, legislation passed, programs funded, and activities initiated to address pieces and parts of our nation's biodefense. Senators Graham and Talent and the folks at the WD Center have reminded us that those efforts are far from complete. But it's my concern that these efforts lack a guiding vision to which they can align. It's like we're building an airplane without a blueprint. We built some of the great components, but it's not clear that we can assemble those components into something that will fly. I'm reminded of a debate reported in the New York Times Magazine several years ago about whether our countermeasure acquisition strategy ought to be focused on vaccines or therapeutics. What is the goal of our efforts? In my view, the fundamental goal of U.S. biodefense policy must be to prevent a bioterror attack on the U.S. or our vital interests, and if prevention fails, to be prepared to respond to that attack. And that is why I see deterring a bioterror attack as a leading edge of our biodefense. It ought to be our first objective, and it transitions neatly into preparedness to respond. The goal of our response also should be made clear, whether to minimize the loss of life, ensure continuity of government and essential services, protect the innocent and most vulnerable members of the population, or some other goal. As I reviewed the factors at play in deterring a bioterror attack, it occurred to me, as I'm sure it occurred to you, that there is much we could do to enhance the deterrent impact of our ongoing biodefense activities. 
For instance, an effort has no value in deterrence if our potential adversaries know nothing about it. But regardless of how we ultimately go, we need to be building the overarching strategy that our players can align to. We need to understand clearly what our ultimate goals are, and we need to shape our efforts to support that strategy to reach those goals. <coughs> As to where the teeter totter sits, I note that there have been no bioterror attacks against the U.S. since the anthrax attacks in 2001. <laughs> I would like to attribute that in record in part to successful deterrence. But as is almost always true <coughs> with deterrence, I don't actually know what factors drove our adversaries' decisions. I do know that efforts to strengthen bioterror deterrence can pay off in a number of ways, and I strongly encourage the U.S. government to take action to build and execute a unifying strategy that does so. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Really uh, interesting approach to give us a, a different perspective and very helpful. Sergeant uh, Mark Landall is a member of the Frederick County uh, Maryland Sheriff's Office and currently serves as supervisor of the school resource section. You bring um, a, a, also a different uh, perspective and uh, we thank you for it and look forward to your testimony now. That's what exactly I was going to say is the knowledge <laughs> may not be but the perspective may be. I don't know if it's functioning or not. Is it working? All right. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm also a junior social science researcher operating without a license because my dissertation's not done yet. How's so, the PhD going? Sorry. Uh, it's, yeah, well, there's a bunch of people in here that torture folks like me. So, yeah. you know, they've been avoiding me. Were, but I'm they, sorry, go ahead. They also are very happy to see that I'm up here because I think they were worried that I was part of some village people cover band that was part of the lunch entertainment. <laughs> so now that I'm up here, I think everybody's uh, okay. Everybody's okay. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off, so no. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you were in Pennsylvania, Governor Rich could uh, award the PhD today. Oh, <laughs> doctor, nice yeah. to have you. <laughs> thank you, sir. Uh, today, I, and I want to thank you for making a space for for those of us. Uh, unfortunately, I think this comes just like when we get to a presidential election and we got 322 million people and we have these two to choose from. Uh, you know, for me, I'm walking in and, and holding the millions of responders. I guess the I don't know what else you've seen in panels, but I'm the one person in uniform here sure. today. So I uh, thank you for that, and thank, thank you, you for giving that uh, that letting us have that perspective. And uh, here I'm testifying today as a member of the Emergency Services Coalition for Medical Preparedness. Uh, the coalition consists of uh, nearly 20 national organizations, which represent all members of the public safety community law enforcement, fire, emergency medical services, public health officials, emergency management, public works, and uh, I thank you for your continued interest in medical countermeasures for us. And I am going to uh, deviate from what I was going to say because Dr. Rob basically said it all, um, and he's done that for us before. Uh, the fact that I saw some of you taking notes and things along that line, um, what they accomplished with the postal strategy is what we'd like to see for all responders in this country. And uh, really what we need to do is we need a revisioned and refocused occupational health strategy for first responders in this country. And that's where I hope that uh, you all will go with this panel and one of your recommendations. And I'm not an expert on any of those things, but uh, I'm, I'm the one who has to organize the response in some way at the lowest level and motivate the troops to get those things done. Um, and uh, Dr. Robs, uh, it was great that he could do it and not me, but I have a few points at least to get across that the coalition is, uh, is interested in. Uh, and, and basically, you know, it goes back, you know, for me as a police officer, I wouldn't send a police officer into an active shooting without the protection of their firearm. And where are we 
when it comes to the biodefense piece and the responders that we're putting in harm's way, both in uniform and out of uniform, our public health, our nurses, our, our everyone else. Um, and out of the coalition, um, we're, we support the CDC already recommendations for tetanus and hepatitis vaccination for, vaccination for responders. But again, uh, just as, as uh, Dr. Levy said, things are a little uneven across our country as well. And, and we have the same type of uh, issues when it comes to this, and we're all victims of that issue attention cycle. You know, and, and right now in law enforcement, we're consumed with the active shooter. Um, and when, unfortunately, when these things happen, we're going to be looking back Very to all those plans that we put on, put in place, put it, training, where are those things, and uh, dust them off. We provide, because, we provide, uh, you know, our ability then, to you know, maintain our uh, operational the, tempo the public demands more training upon us all the time, and at, whether it's policing other, or the other uh, things. Uh, at what point do we get to the policing and what point do we get to the other things when we're constantly in training for other things? But that kind of takes us off. But um, in addition, the coalition supports uh, voluntary smallpox vaccination for responders. Uh, it also supports the passage of uh, the First Responder Anthrax Preparedness Act, uh, which would force the DHS pilot program of providing the anthrax vaccine to responders um, again, the medical piece of that, you know, is not something that, uh, and Dr. Rob very uh, eloquently put about the, the risk of the event taking place versus the risk of providing um, those vaccines to the responders. Uh, we also, as Dr. Rob had said, uh, the coalition supports the extension of the household antibiotic uh, kits to responders and their families. One of the key things is going to be that family piece. Uh, and Dr. Rob hit on that so well. And as I was so happy to hear uh, Senator Lieberman, you say removing those regulatory hurdles, the regulatory hurdles that they had to do go through to do something that makes sense mm -hmm. is, you know, that's where we get to, we've got, we've got to iron some of those things out They're They're there for a reason, as, as Dr. Rob said, and, and somebody wasn't intending to be that way, but to, to have to do that level of effort to do something that just makes sense is is where our government becomes a problem for our overall security. And those are the things that, uh, you know, I think their experience and everything there can be so instructive for getting us to another level. Uh, because I know, you know, these things, they come down to funding too. And again, that issue attention cycle and how likely are we to get the traction to get these things in place all the way down to the local level where it's going to make a difference in this country. And that's where I think I hope that, that you all will go. Um, and finally, uh, the last piece that, uh, that the coalition supports is the Medical Preparedness Allowable Use Act, which that act would extend uh, the UASI grant funds to allow them to be used for medical countermeasures, which, again, some of those things become so restrictive to the point that you're, they don't make sense to getting the things done because we're trying to get value out of that dollar, but then when we restrict what needs to be done on a local level. We can't get those local priorities um, and those things that make sense. So um, I'm going to thank you again for the people in and out of uniform that have to respond to these things, and I'll be happy to take any questions that, uh, that you have later on, and I just thank you for your time. Thank you, Sergeant. Thanks very much. Uh, that was very helpful. Uh, and uh, we will certainly take it in again, keep it in mind as we go forward uh, to writing our report. Kurt Mann, uh, again, has a, a, a unique background that comes to us. I think is, uh, I mean, you're the first veterinarian we've heard from. No, uh, you had one earlier. Oh, we did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dr. Sorry, Dr. Kazak, I didn't. More? Are there more veterinarians <laughs> in the room? 
Okay. They're all over, sir. They're all over. They're in plain clothes. And, uh, they, they tend to be very popular, too, because we, we love our uh, animals. Uh, thanks for being here. I look forward to your testimony. Well, good morning, uh, Governor, Senators, distinguished panel, and I extend that to the extended panel family here. Thanks for having me. Um, also, special thanks to the panel staff over here who uh, gave me the opportunity. So for my f 10 minutes uh, of your time, I will direct my comments generally and not very specific, uh, since I am years away from being involved in the biodefense apparatus. I know you have a staff of intellectual horsepower here that can wade through those details, but yet I'll give you another perspective. And, and I have three points to make, essentially. The notion of refresh, the importance of your mindset, and ownership. So why am I here? I suppose my job is to make the case to talk about the red-headed orphan child in the biodefense family, and that's agriculture. Depending on who you read, are uh, 12 to 18 percent of all the U.S. jobs come from the agricultural economy. U.S. agriculture and all the related industry that flows from the endeavor contribute nearly $800 billion to the gross domestic product. That's nearly 5 percent of GDP. The agricultural economy produces $37 billion <clears throat> in a trade surplus. And that's been going up steadily over the last decade and more rapidly in the last six years. The point being, US, U.S. agriculture is big, it's important, and it's a strategic asset. American agriculture and the food, fiber, and energy resources that flow from that fountain are vulnerable to attack. Agroterrorism is underappreciated. That fact is indicated in a lineup of papers and reports over the past decade. And that underappreciation has been talked about in the agribusiness community routinely. Defense of our food and agriculture base from which it comes is a complex undertaking, as I'll admit. So what have we done about it? And I would say quite a bit, but like any complex or wicked problem, there is not an absolute correct answer. It is an ongoing and living problem or challenge. Agroterrorism or attack by a thinking enemy or a malcontent or the emergence of a natural biological threat from the ecosystem will always be with us. And yes, more can always be done. At the risk of stating the obvious and describing that which anyone can see for themselves, I point out some basics. The goal is just to simply set the stage and remind. Homeland Security Presidential Directive number nine the defense of U.S. agriculture and food was delivered in January of 2004 is the only national policy document that attempts to encompass the whole of the U.S. government executive actions related to the protection of agriculture and food. The directive <coughs> contains 21 separate and specific tasks outlined in 18 paragraphs organized under the topics of awareness and warning, vulnerability, mitigation, response and recovery, outreach and professional development, and lastly, research and development. I do not consider myself an expert in judging what has been accomplished or, frankly, not accomplished since the uh, number, number nine was signed <clears throat> and became national policy. But I do know this, and that is change is inevitable. No policy with an eye on security that is rooted in the day's customs, culture, threats, and vulnerability shall remain valid <coughs> nor protective just as any successful business in a free market will inevitably need to modify and change to meet the dynamic nature of that marketplace. 
and forgive me for comparing the bad guys to the marketplace, but if it sort of fits, make, paints the picture, so be it. We expect, we, we expect to have to change in business, we, to stay in business. Could we not expect to review our domestic defense and security attitude periodically or in some way on an ongoing basis? Say yes. After 13 years, the concerns of the early 2000s may have changed, evolved, and are now different. With respect to HSBD-9 and the, the defense of food and agriculture, after 10 years, and actually going on 11, there is an increased maturity in the thinking around these issues relevant to defense of ag and food. After 10 years, our collective understanding, policy development, and consideration of matters that encompass natural occurring, unintentional, and intentional disruptive events has grown or possibly even atrophied in a few areas. These realities add to the need for an opportunity to achieve positive policy upgrades, additions, and deletions to a living document. And I happen to know the draftsmen of HSPD 9 and 10 really believed these were living documents at the time when they were put together. So after a decade, we need a refresh. I also suggest that with all the subject matter contained in HSBD 9, number 9, a single comprehensive review may be too much and too far all at one time. Moreover, while many of the ideas contained in HSBD 9 indeed are dissimilar, dissimilar elements, many inform and build on one another. Therefore, reviewing sections and building to a comprehensive consideration allows a linear logic to a goal of national policy refit. I'd like to move to mindset and the importance of it. And exactly what is mindset? It's an attitude, it's a disposition, it's a mood if you look in the dictionary. But as an example, colleges of business teach entrepreneurship. While they teach the mechanics of business, problem solving, management, and leadership, they also attempt, attempt to instill mindset. And as was stated by a really respected program in teaches entrepreneurship, the mindset may be the most important aspect of entrepreneurship, yet may also be the most <coughs> often overlooked and widely misunderstood. So there is an importance to mindset in problem solving. And allow me to also add to it the notion of social capital for success. It was Francis Fukuyama's ideas about this that got me thinking about it. It's of a truly functional economy and how it will work in a, in a civilization's success is social capital. Fukuyama describes social capital as an important reason why some cultures are more successful than others. He says, social capital can be defined as a set of values or norms shared among members of a group that permits them to cooperate with one another. If members of the group come to expect that others will behave reliably and honestly, then they will come to trust one another. Trust acts like a lubricant that makes any group or organization run more efficiently. So I suggest approaching the topic of agriculture and food defense, or biodefense, again, and thereafter periodically, that the wisdom and creativity of the right mindset. I recognize that trying to capture the essence of a mindset in an official panel study may be difficult, but I, I do believe, I sense it's an important thing to try. Ownership. Now, who owns the long term? If you think about it, uh, agriculture, the actual connection to the soil is a local reality. 
and the reality is the governance and the operation closest to that reality, the soil, is the state structure. The state apparatus or the industry itself is essentially the first responder when it comes to these kind of events, agricultural events. Again, at the risk of stating obvious things, agriculture and the production of food, fiber, energy, by simple natural consequence of the physical location and the law first affected, the actual doing of things, the, the awareness, the protecting, the preventing, the responding and recovering is very much an activity of the local enterprise. So in simple terms, the states must be intimately involved in any and all planning and doing, any additions, amendments, subtractions or replacements of, in my case, what I'm talking about, HSPD 9, but I think it goes to any national policy related to cloud events. When I think of agriculture and the food supply in a homeland security type of sense, I have to often reach down and grab myself, pinch myself, and say, stupid, it's about the region, the community, the industry, and the value chain. If we refresh HSPD 9 and it were in the cards, I would, I would accomplish the review component from the perspective of the local progressing up to the federal, rather than the more standard thing we do in Washington of the federal down and then look at the states and then the local. I really think your value is talk to the people on the ground and bring a national poli policy forward. The ownership is important, and that's why I'm talking about the local so much. If you want a good dynamic over the long term and a good outcome, that means in the sundry industries, the states plus the federal government all have to own this and the approach, the style, and the mindset to the type of refresh. I set, suggest a purposeful and dedicated effort at returning to the philosophy of partnerships in the context of homeland security. Governor, you know talked about this, uh, about partnershiping in the early days after 9-11. I frankly know because when I was part of the Office of Homeland Security, when I got asked to make contributions to your speeches, that's one thing I always looked for and I thought that was important. I still believe it. It's a, it's a term we've lost, or we don't, we haven't lost it, but we don't use it as much. And I think that word is very powerful, especially to a state. You're talking to the right governor. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I think we have to. I think we have to return to partnership, especially in the in the with the mentality of homeland security. Uh, governments cannot own this problem or the solutions by themselves, and I also put a plug in for industry, industry, agribusiness, volunteer organizations, the producers, farmers, and ranchers. In the case of agriculture, food companies all have a part to play. It is obvious to me, after my life experiences, that the problems and solutions are usually never in the hands of one equity, one thing. And uh, to be effective in the 21st century, it will be interdisciplinary and multi-party based. I thanks, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Doctor. That was uh, very thoughtful. Very helpful. Um, we'll do some questions. Dr. Levy, I want to come back to you first and ask you to flesh out a little bit what the um, report outbreaks uh, <coughs> recommended uh, to um, create more clear lines of authority for all the um, uh, biological uh, programs, that is both um, man-made man and uh, naturally occurring problems, and particularly on this question of setting priorities. 
I think, I, I'll tell you, Senator Daschle mentioned this before. We saw a number in something. Maybe it was your report that uh, uh, since the anthrax attacks in 2001, that y you can get to $70 billion spent uh, over the uh, succeeding years to deal with the threat of biological um, warfare attacks and uh, I guess naturally occurring <coughs> biological uh, uh, problems. So um, how, how do we, right now it's hard I think for us to see how we hold uh, the government accountable, how we find out how that money's been spent, what we got for it. So I, I, I think the, there is a several part answer to your question. I think the first is around leadership um, and really, you know, I, I recognize the importance and the value of having individual agencies and each of the silos we have created have their inherent logic but there needs to be someone overseeing to make sure that each of those silos are working in a coordinated way. And I think we saw in the Ebola response the fact that you know, we were patching together who was really leading this response at the federal level. And we certainly shouldn't be patching that leadership together at the, in the middle of a crisis. It should be very clear from the get-go who is in charge. I mean, I think we saw in the pandemic preparedness response um, an example of how that can be done, of really having central leadership from the White House uh, that really made sure that every single one of the agencies across the federal government and the partnership at the state and local level was working in a coordinated and a systematic way. Um, to some degree, I think how we handled funding for pandemic preparedness may be a better model. Right now, it goes through, again, these siloed agencies to local agencies, um, all of whom play an important role. But I think for when it came to pandemic flu, um, there was actually a memorandum of understanding with each of the state governors so that each of the governors had an understanding of what the expectation of coordination was going to be at the state level as well. So I think there are multiple ways of doing it. I think it starts with White House leadership. I think it starts with making sure that each of the agencies is on the same page and that there is a very clearly articulated plan. And then I think it also funnels down then to the state and the local level, but primarily to the state level because that's where the real authority is, where the federal government engages the governors, not the health departments, not the homeland security departments, not you know, the, the, the justice folks, but with the governors and holding political leadership accountable at the state level as well. So, so who, who would be in charge if the authors of the report could uh, reorganize the federal approach? Well, I'm not going to try to totally reorganize the federal government. That might be beyond just, uh, just this Yes. Little, just this Your committee had that jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 what can I say? We well, missed our chance. But I think the... You know, I think it should be someone at the White House and probably someone who has cross jurisdiction between yeah. national security staff and domestic policy staff right. because both of those and both of those worlds are critical. Because again, as I said before, this can't we can't just think of this as responding to external threats or new threats. Right. There are ongoing issues that our health, particularly the public health system has to face on a day-to-day -day basis. And the stronger our day-to-day -day response is going to be, the better our response is going to be, and the cooperation of communities and the trust of communities is going to be when we have an emergency. 
Okay, so because the, the responsibilities now cut across so many departments, you would essentially create a, a special assistant to the president. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Thank you. Governor I may Rich. recommend, however, having served in similar capacity before we create a department. Let's you give that individual control over money. Continue Absolutely. In silos. So you can, right. you can have, uh, you can have, uh, Senator, you can have all the authority, but you really don't get people in D.C. to move unless you can affect their paycheck. So I, mean, I think it's a great idea, and one of the things we need to consider internally, where's the best place to put that, put that individual? I think it's a strong recommendation. We very much appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Lando. <laughs> I, like I like to. Like I like the sound of it. Yeah, yeah so does he. I like it too. It. It's that's correct. Sir. That's all right. Should have gone to Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you raised a very interesting question and and a concern that I think we have in terms of whether it's postal workers or police or fire. Early on in the administration, there was a threat stream that suggested smallpox potential, a real potential threat. And there was consideration of getting inoculating first responders. It didn't go very well. Because mm -hmm. there was not a perceived public threat. Obviously, when you worry about uh, vaccines and antidotes, there's always some side effects. And most people, I think it's, it's not critical. But the natural reaction is, I don't see it as a threat. You're asking me potentially to respond to the threat. You're asking me to be vaccinated, but there are some side effects of vaccinated for a threat that I don't necessarily see yet. So it's more of a psychological and, and natural human response to get first responders to immunize themselves or do whatever it takes. How do we deal with that? I mean, it was very interesting. You mentioned there are two or three vaccinations that well, first that's responders are willing to get. Yeah, I, everybody want a small fact. I mean, if, if, if small I, vaccine, I can tell you, vaccine, I, I wanted it. Vaccine. I wanted it, but you know what? A lot of our responders fall in is you have pregnant, uh, pregnant wife at home, or you are pregnant yourself as a female right. police officer, <laughs> or you have young children. That took me out of uh, the ability to get the smallpox vaccine for the entire period that it was offered, and a lot of the people of my age class at that time. We fell into that period where we could we couldn't take it based on you know the the exposure risk to the others. So I mean you have some of those things along that line. I think that you know and, and from these things you know these things again are coming you know from the coalition looking at it broadly saying you know we need to look at these things. And I think if we had you know a real good accurate threat picture to to overlay to say hey you know this is what you know we had a a strategy on this. If that is what we need to do, then you know. But I don't see that. Uh, that piece of it seems to me like it's again maybe it's issue attention cycle and now with Ebola things of the, that has come up you know all the threat streams have come up again. Uh, I think it's if that's if that's tied to a threat stream, you know that you can say again just like it would whether it's public perception or what the information that you give um, people in public safety to make that decision, I think is key. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. I think the real challenge has always been whether this, whether it's 2001 or 2021, <coughs> what the intel community and your political leaders may know and, and consider to be real and pending and what they can share with the state and locals in terms of potentially actionable information and what you may necessarily want to put out in advance in a preemptive way with the public might be two different things. So that's the real challenge. Now, it's, 
and, and I think the the option for the responder is yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, these things well, are there; they're available. And you know, I have very qu- big questions myself about uh, the local occupational health capacity to handle the monitoring and the multiple doses of these things as well. Which uh, you know, people in the public health community probably speak to that better than I can. Uh, you know, but a lot of us are depending upon you know, a third-party contractor to manage our, uh, you know, our occupational health and, and, you know, different things, whether these things are even happening for other types of things, other types of health screenings, you know, to know if we're even eligible to take some of these things based on some other health condition. Right. Appreciate How important is that role in terms of deterrence? You see, uh, you, you, you itemized, uh, you were very, 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 uh, very helpful in identifying the elements that you see in, in the deterrence. Is not preparation part of the deterrence strategy? I think absolutely, um, especially if it's clear to your adversary that you are prepared, you have that in place. That's the key deterrent message, that, that you're ready to respond, that his attack will fail, but will not reach the goals he intends. Thanks, Governor. Senator Dash. Well, I, I just want to thank each of you for just an extraordinary uh, contribution to this discussion. I've enjoyed it and learned again. I, 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 after 9-11, many of us were involved in the question, deciding the question is how do we respond organizationally to the challenges we face security-wise? And out of that came the Department of Homeland Security and a total reorganizational paradigm. And I think we've been grappling for the last 15 years, really, with whether or not we've we've done it successfully. I think most of us would argue that we haven't, that we still have a long way to go. And I was intrigued, really, by the perspectives each of you brought. But, Dr. Levy, your, the, 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 what I draw from what your recommendation is, that it, uh, I don't know if you said it in, in these words, but nationalizing public health is a part of this new paradigm that there's got to be a, a a stronger federal role in bringing this coordination together, at least in the federal agencies. Number one, I would ask to what extent the NSC could play that role, and, and I guess why it hasn't if it isn't right now. Why, why is the NSC not the, the logical um, place where a lot of this authority could be? But then, Dr. Mann, you, you seem to imply, and I, I maybe I didn't understand it correctly, but it, it seems to me from what you said that there really ought to be a lot greater emphasis at the local level. And the local level can, can, they're on the ground. They've got the organizational capacity already in place in many respects. How does one reconcile this recognition of the strengths of the local level, but the need organizationally at the federal level to address this in a way beyond that we've accomplished so far. We, we all recognize a new organizational paradigm is necessary, but I think that reconciliation of local and federal is still something we haven't solved. So the certainly the resolution of the issue at sort of the federal level is why hasn't national security staff taken this on? I think some of it is because certainly from the public health perspective, the traditional day-to-day public health function is actually a domestic policy function and not necessarily a national security function, though it has tremendous national security. Pardon? Shouldn't it be? Well, there's much more to public health than 
preparedness and response. And so it's an overlap. It's a shared responsibility, which is why we talk about someone who takes on health security as an issue in and of itself, probably, you know, figuring out some balance between a domestic policy role and a national security role. Um, you know, certainly I would love to see the public health budget treated the way the defense budget is treated. Uh, that would be a very nice outcome from a funding standpoint. Um, so I would not interpret what I said as wanting to nationalize public health. I think I, I would, because I totally agree that the ultimate response is at the local level. The kind of, you know, some of the risk communication issues we saw has to do with what level of, uh, you know, how we successfully communicate, how we successfully get people to respond, how we successfully have the local-based community partnerships that gets people to react as we want them to, take an immunization when we need them to, change their behavior when we need them to, would do whatever changes are needed. That requires a local partnership and local leadership. What I think is important is for the federal government to invest in and hold states and locals accountable for some minimal capacity that we have to address these. So every community should have the same level of assessment capacity, the same level of preparedness capacity. And that we haven't assured. We haven't assured it with adequate funding. We haven't assured it with setting the kind of standards and performance measures that would make that difference. Thank you. If I may, I'd take you in a few other places. I, I think, um, and you have access to some really fine lawyers, I think you probably should explore statutorily the limitations of the National Security Council and if that could or should be changed and adapted to the domestic space, right or wrong. I mean, that needs to be explored thoroughly because uh, there are some hurdles that the national security community has about a domestic space, obviously. I also, you know, back to my, <coughs> my point about mindset and, and ownership, I think look outside the toolbox a little. I mean, we, we have sort of a standard approach always, you know, that all of a sudden Washington is supposed to fix it. Washington, maybe in this case, should pay for a lot of the party because it's a, it's a national defense type of issue. And so maybe that, that, that definitely the, the financing should come there. But the people, the doers, need <coughs> to be deputized. And they, you, the soldiers in the field need to be the people in the states or in the local. And they own their communities. They own their problems. And they're going to be highly interested in solutions that work for them or have comfort where their families live and do their day-to-day -day things. I, I think looking around the, the, if you want to just, in the government, you look around other things that have caused culture change. I, one thing that keeps kind of popping back in my head that I have a little knowledge about is the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award. Who's to say we don't have a National Security Quality Award? That was a fundamental thing. I've urged staff here to go study this. It was a very interesting thing that came out of the local or the industry to try and change their own custom about manufacturing and the quality and being beat in the global marketplace. So how do you change the habits that have been instilled in people for 50 years? They thought they did everything right. Well, they weren't. They were getting beat by other nations, <coughs> and, and the customer was going to buy the better quality product. I, I would suggest maybe look at that. Look at the uh, Department of Commerce has the DECs, the um, District Export Councils. Basically, it's a relationship with industry or people who are in the export business. That brings a lot of crossover of real life, real 
people doing real jobs in the value chain up to the highest level of leadership, at least in commerce in that case. Um, the ISACs, the ISACs, the, uh, the sector-specific councils that HH, uh, DHS has, excuse me, they're passive, in my opinion. Um, they be made more proactive. Could they be made if the government, if the federal government throws the party, let them, let the community own the rest of the doing? I think there's other ways to think about this, and that's why I'm, I'm an advocate for who owns the problem. There's another thing that some of you, Senator, you probably, the Capra-Volstead Act of 1922. You know, it was an act that allowed farmers to cooperate legally and avoid antitrust so that they could market their products. Well, it's been known as, well, there's people will argue over it, but it is, it's been commonly known as the Magna Carta of cooperation. Who's to say there isn't a second Capra-Volstead Act that talks about Homeland Security or domestic security some way, where you, uh, you stimulate and remove hurdles, incentivize <coughs> local behavior, and let the, let the national, the federal, call the meetings and, and have to throw the money at them. You vote for that? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was in my second term. <laughs> uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, Ken Winston. Thanks, Senator. A couple quick questions. First, uh, Dr. Mann, um, you're talking about agro-terrorism, and I, I just remember getting an earful when I was in government from somebody, from an official from New York, because um, he realized that Iowa was getting the same, uh, or was scheduled to get the same amount of uh, counterterrorism aid, a certain type of aid, as New York, and uh, was arguing that the threat to Iowa paled in comparison to that of New York, and so we, that morphed into a question of what was the threat? real threat of agro-terrorism. And I was just sort of, as you spoke, I was going back and trying to think of historical examples. And I can remember that the, the Romans sowed the fields of Carthage with salt, but that was a long time ago. Um, are there recent examples of, of agro-terrorism that, that we can cite as antecedents that maybe terrorists would be looking at today? Well, early on, um, there was some evidence found in the caves that there was thought processes going on about mm -hmm. this might be one of the tools in their uh, toolbox. Um, the Germans in World War I did some, uh, they think, there's a lot of this we don't know, but mm -hmm. uh, in my readings they did some dastardly things against other countries, especially the draft animals, uh, to try and slow the, uh, their mm -hmm. response to their aggressive behavior, German, German mm -hmm. aggressive behavior. Uh, there's, there's plant, uh, anti-plant uh, allegations uh, that are unproven that uh, Cuba has done things to us or had thoughts of doing things to us. Mm -hmm. uh, there was thought there was a uh, FMD outbreak in hogs in uh, Taiwan that some thought was highly suspicious that the, the continent, Chinese, mm -hmm. the Repub People's Republic of China <coughs> had something to do with that. Uh, no okay. harm My bottom of recent, there's no hard evidence, mm -hmm. but it's one of those things you hate to have happen to you mm -hmm. um, and not have at least put some thought to it. I, I, I think the, it's an increasingly a plausible scenario. I mean, I think I heard an intelligence analyst say one time that um, the psychological effect of uh, getting people to respond to them um, is 
is getting increasingly, I mean, you don't have to blow people up anymore. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when it will happen or, you know, who will do it, but I, I think it's, it's too uncomfortable to think about the economic disaster. You may not kill a lot of people, depending on what you use, but the, uh, the potential for it is just too devastating not to spend some energy thinking about it. That's why I'm here. Good. Thank you. You know, I have a thought in my head, Bob. I don't know if it was at our earlier session, or maybe I, I read it somewhere about they d- discovered a, a, a basically a German cell during World War One in suburban Maryland. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, and they were. They, am I right that they were uh, doing damage? Landers and anthrax. There you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, any questions from the table? It's yeah, heavy. I, I have a question uh, for Dr. Levy about the uh, special assistant for uh, public health or public health preparedness at the White House. This seems to me it's a problem endemic to government. Uh, you, know, you often don't know who's in charge. I mean, Stephen Brill's new book about uh, the Affordable Care Act says that there were seven different people who thought they were in charge of the ACA rollout, which is uh, <laughs> an indication of maybe why it worked so well. Uh, would this really solve the problem? I mean, if you had this special assistant to, to the president, do, don't you think that the um, uh, the Asper and the head of Homeland Security and the head of uh, Undersecretary for Health at the Pentagon and the head of HHS would still think that they're in charge of these various issues? Well, it depends on who I – frankly, it depends on who holds the position. Um, these jobs, you know, you can make czars for all sorts of things and without – certainly without the budgetary authority, that is not terribly meaningful. But it's also the personality and the leadership and the ability to bring people together, <clears throat> just as it's a partnership between the federal government and state and local governments and communities in responding to public health challenges. It's going to be a partnership at the federal level, and how well you can bring people together is determined by the personality. But it's also, I think, determined by the, the level of authority uh, that the president gives that individual. I mean, I think we've seen in different administrations, different personalities in terms of how the White House operates and how people are brought together to follow a common path. Um, I don't think this is outside the the, the experience of public administration uh, for us to have that kind of collegiality and or direction. Um, and I think it can be done in a, in a way that gives the appropriate leadership and direction and you know who's in charge without infringing upon the day-to-day act- activities of each of the agencies and having them, having those subject matter experts and professionals doing their jobs. It's a balancing act, and it will depend on who, how the job is described, how the president backs it up, and who holds the job. And then, and then one follow-up question. You said that things seem to work better with pandemic and that is a clearer sense of who is in touch. Can you talk about what works better in pandemic and why? Well, I think, first of all, we actually had a plan, a published plan of how each of the federal agencies was going to respond. Um, and there was actually transparency about achieve- there were milestones that everyone had to achieve. And there was transparency about achieving those milestones. Sometimes organizations like us had to pull it out of the agencies with, you know, like pulling teeth, but we did get them, and we were able to to measure the kind of progress that was being made. I think that put us in a much better position than we would otherwise have been. Um, and obviously, there are issues associated with bioterrorism that can't have the same level of sort of 
public transparency about the specific kinds of threats that we're addressing. But actually, if you're talking about deterrence, the more transparent we are about achieving a higher and higher level of preparedness each year, to some degree, I would posit, that acts as something of a deterrent. Thank you. Could, could I add something? Go ahead, Doctor. Um, I was a Deputy Undersecretary at USDA and when the pandemic planning was done, and um, to the philosophy I'm trying to promote here, we, we turned this over to the workforce. Uh, and they didn't want it at first, but we, we cheerleaded, we bent some fingers, we did some things, and it was amazing what came back. We had um, some very good ideas, and they took ownership of it at the local level of how they were going to do this. And that flowed up, and it was um, it was very healthy and productive for uh, for the administration of that particular agency, and then that it it, it helped the other agencies of that department. Yeah, this Governor, does not have to be perceived as punitive for the agencies. I think uh, Governor Ridge has a last question. One final question, if you might, Doctor Doctor Libby, you mentioned there are several federal programs directed toward public health writ large. <clears throat> And you also highlighted the need in your report, which I'm anxious to review, that uh, there's a basic foundational requirement that should, we should get the state and locals to try to meet. How critical is it uh, then for the federal government in the creation of the partnership with the state and locals? Because at the end of the day, the state and locals see the customers, not the folks in D.C. That's right. I mean, the state and locals see the customers. How important it would be for those in public health at the federal level to create a menu uh, of, uh, uh, of um, either whether it's infrastructure or to, to create a menu of those foundational needs and so you can get the money that you have to build out and this is the money. The money has to be expended consistent with the construction of this platform and if you don't do it there, you don't get the money and then somehow the federal government monitors. How, how important is the target? My sense a lot is the public money goes out this, this community uses for this, this community uses for that, and we get away from your notion we need a foundational infrastructure, and then the communities or the governors can decide to build something on top of it. But how important it is to target those resources? Right. So our tendency in public health is to allocate money in a very siloed way, you know, disease by disease, problem by problem. And so we have never really provided core support from the federal government and I would argue that if there is a federal interest in public health, it is assuring that every community has the same level of protection. Because especially when we're talking about terrorism or we're talking about a certainly infectious diseases, if Pennsylvania does a good job and New Jersey doesn't, you know, that those we'll close the bridges between yeah, Pennsylvania. Right. Well, there you go. Okay. There's a simple solution. Sorry, I hadn't thought of that. Um, so. So I think, you know, one could look at, and this would require a major rethink, and saying the first federal dollars out should support these foundational capabilities, and we build above that. States and localities can make other decisions about what their priorities are, and they may have different levels of needs. Some communities have, you know, higher infectious disease problems. Others have higher obesity problems, whatever it may be. And so there can be variation there. But... Every, whether it's you're dealing with obesity or you're dealing with infectious diseases or you're de dealing with preparedness, that core capacity needs to exist in order to build on top of that. And that's where I would argue the first federal dollar should do go. Do you include any of those specific recommendations in this? If you don't, would you mind sending them to the panel? Yes. Panel? Yes, thank we you. have it in this and another Very report. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks to the four of you for excellent and uh, extremely helpful testimony.
Bob, should we go on to the last panel? Yes, sir. All we're right, we're moving all. ahead. I see Robin here. Dr. Robin Robinson, Dr. Monique Mansoura, and Dr. Daniel Luce. Uh, this is uh, the, the uh, final panel and a great panel we're ending with. First uh, is Dr. I'm uh, trying to turn the bloody thing off. <laughs> I could sing. Take it out of the oven. Uh, I wouldn't dare say Dr. Robbie Robinson. <laughs> I'd say Dr. <laughs> Dr. Robin Robinson, the uh, director of uh, BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. And uh, thanks very much for being here. This is a really important part of this story that we're looking at, and we're very grateful that you've come here personally to testify. Thank you, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, ladies, for allowing me to come to you. I hope you have another opportunity since today was supposed to be about Ebola and pandemic influenza. There's another part to this. Ebola is not just an emerging infectious disease, but it is also a bio threat. And I would be, we would be here to 9 p.m. if we start getting into all of that. But only about your background. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I am the first director of BARDA. It was a course correction in Project BioShield. I think it was the right decision to do because of several things. One is that you can't throw money to manufacturers and industry and expect medical countermeasures just to magically appear. We thought that. It didn't happen. And it was a, it was, we stumped our toe in Project BioShield. And, and my colleague, really good here, Monique Mansour, was we uh, overcame that by the creation of BARDA and putting together the Public Health Emergency Medical Countermeasure Enterprise to give us a framework. And I will say that in 2009, many people thought that BARDA was on its last legs and on its way out. I'm here to tell you that I want to talk to you about today is it's not. It's a viable, credible player in national defense and in public health and makes a difference. Why? From 2001, 2003 with SARS to today with Ebola, we have been working on these different events because they're both public health threats and, na and national security threats. Today, we're facing Ebola. It's not an outbreak. It's an epidemic, the worst in history. But yet, the same paradigm exists. Medical countermeasures or vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics take a long time to develop, they're expensive to do so, and it's very risky. For every one that you actually get to the market or be able to use, it takes 20 to start with, with the idea. I use this slide, and we've had this slide around probably for 15 years. Uh, even when I was in industry, before I came to the government, uh, it was still that. And so I, I use this section to show you that there's a, is a natural order for w w what things happen. And that you see in the early discovery, preclinical development, and as we move into actually moving into humans, that's the NIH's province. In this case, Tony Fauci. And we work very closely and, and very well with them. Also with the Department of Defense, with DITRA and other Department of Defense agencies. Then you have to cross that valley of death that you've heard about historically, of where companies, especially small ones, don't have the experience or the capital or the otherwise know-how to get through, to get the product into the clinic and move it forward towards licensure. They needed a help, and Congress was thoughtful enough to actually go forward and adjust Project BioShield and say, hey, we didn't do it exactly right. 
we need you to have a shepherd. We need some government agency. That's all they do. They don't think about anything else but medical countermeasures for A, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats, pandemic influenza, and emerging infectious disease. Not diabetes, not cancer, not Alzheimer's. Not today. But just that. We do that every day, every, every year. So it's, we, we're not distracted. This, and, and the dedicated staff that work at Barter are there because they believe in that mission to make that shepherd role of taking companies and their product candidates to become products through that valley of death by putting a bridge over that. Uh, excuse me. Can you, mm -hmm. Maybe you're going to do it anyway. Just for the record, also for all of us, tell us about what, what, uh, what you're able to do as shepherd to uh, get these uh, companies through the valley. Fantastic. Great question. We didn't rehearse this one. Okay. <laughs> so my I, I, would, I would be remiss if I didn't show you the 157 scientists and technical people that have dedicated their lives for the last eight years, and the last seven of those as, as I've been the board of director, to make this happen. And so what have we been able to do? Well, we're committed to making a development pipeline. We have over 150 medical countermeasures candidates in our pipeline, starting from zero back in 2005. Now, many companies would love to be able to say that. Now, okay, you've done that. So what? Out of that, we've had two dozen that have actually become approved by the FDA. In the last two years, we've had eight that have been approved by the FDA. That's countermeasures for for pandemic influenza six of them for pandemic influenza and two f for uh bile threats anthrax and for botulinum in the next two more years we're going to have four more for anthrax and for smallpox and for botulinum and, and and for um um one of oh uh, for a rad nuke indication and we'll have more for pandemic influenza so we've built a pipeline. We've, we've, it's, it's very stable. How did, how did we do that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So we've done this basically by being our good shepherd, transitioning from our partners from early development into advanced development. But also we couldn't do this without becoming real public-private partnership advocates and to live by that. And, and it, was, it was simple for me because I came from industry, and that is you let the people that know how to do this do the work Try to stay out of their way if you can, but also assemble your own staff, which are mostly people from FDA or from industry that have been there, that have done that very experienced, experienced staff, that can actually help. Help to the point and say, you know what, I think we should probably change the way we do that in that process. Let's just try it. Let's just see if it works. And you know what? It does. You have to be able to do that. The other part of that is that you have to be able to provide that assistance. So it's not just money, but you have to be able to provide public-private partnerships. You have to do it in a way that you're credible and you're trustworthy and you be responsible for the taxpayers' dollars, which means we have to give some bad news to some people when they say you d when they don't perform well. It happens all the time in industry. It happens with us. We do that. But you also have to provide the services. And I'm going to come back to this. This is what we have set up over the past four years, what we call our wheel of core service assistance. We set it up with technical assistance, but it expanded in 2010, providing a non-clinical study network. 
We have 17 labs across the world that actually do, or phase three, phase four labs, that can do the animal studies necessary for these medical countermeasures for bio threats, chemical threats, rad nuke threats, and also pandemic influenza and emerging infectious disease. In addition, they also need help in the manufacturing. So we set up in 2012, which I, to a lot of people's uh, surprise and did successfully, Centers for Innovation and Advanced Development and Manufacturing. We have three, one in Maryland, one in North Carolina, and one in Texas. They're there to do three things. A, to help CBRN medical countermeasure developers on a day-to-day -day basis to get through that valley of death in whatever way they need help, help them. Secondly, in a pandemic influenza event to make vaccine using modern technology, cell-based, recombinant technology to make vaccine with the first dose being available in 12 weeks, 50 million doses within four months. Third, they're actually to, to be there in emerging infectious diseases to produce a new vaccine or biological product in an emergency. Last year, H7N9, there's outbreaks in China. We really thought we were going to bite the big one and because that virus had changed enough when it came out, we saw, uh-oh, this is one that will cause a pandemic if it changes one mutation. So we went full bore. And thanks to our public-private partnerships and biosynthetic technology, we made vaccine not in 21 to 22 weeks that we did in H1N1 in 2009, but in 12 weeks. Now, that's because we had worked between 2009 in 2013 with a very forced way of improving manufacturing, proving the way we actually can go forward. We now have stockpiles of H7N9 vaccine, but we had a real test. This year, we, resp we responded also to the Ebola, and I'll, I'll come back to that, with these centers. They're making antibodies. The also big problem was fill finish manufacturing, the actual companies that put the product into vials and syringes. There's a shortage of that, and we knew that. It's not just in the United States, but across the world. We are now seen as the place to come to actually do that. They are there for these crises events. They're there for every day, including the FDA's pilot project with the FDA and how we can help with some of the drug shortages. Lastly, just this year, we set up a clinical studies network, and I was thinking, well, we'll get our feet wet and try to learn it. We're already in involved heavily in e Ebola. We're helping the CDC with their clinical trial in Sierra Leone with one or two of the vaccines. So we have our people there. We're providing the CROs that are five of them that are available under our clinical research network, and we're doing it. The other thing that we, we had, and so I want to just come back to what are we doing on Ebola specifically. You see here, this is the landscape. Here's all the different vaccine candidates. You see that many of them are just entering the phase one for the first time, clinical trials. And the ones that are, have little dotted lines, those are the ones that BARDA and NIH have supported. So you see three. We're about to support two more. Uh, because of procurement sensitivity, I can't tell you which ones those are, but we're moving them forward. In January, one of them will start phase two clinical trials for efficacy to see if it works, and that will be in Liberia. And in February, the CDC, and that was sponsored by the NIH. The other one will be in Sierra Leone, and that will start in February. And the CDC, and we are working with the Sierra Leone government there with another candidate 
And uh, there will be another candidate that will go in in uh, Sierra Leone and probably Guinea in March. So this event actually taught us has taught us a huge amount because we have actually three, and I think it was, it was really great to hear earlier about the pandemic because we did have a plan, and I was one of the architects of that because I came from industry in 2004 to – set up pandemic influenza medical countermeasures for HHS uh, in the department. And we did have a plan, and we did know what we did. We just didn't have the technology ready at the time we needed it to have vaccine day one. But we eventually did get vaccine, and antiviral drugs were there. We had the stockpiles there. But that was a case where we had been working on that. MERS coronavirus, which you'll hear about from Dan Lucy, a good colleague here, I, I really feel bad that because I'm at the helm that we didn't be, we weren't able to respond. We did have one candidate antiviral drug that we have been trying to see if it works, but we didn't develop it for coronaviruses. We were developing it for flu, and we just happened to see that it actually would work against coronaviruses, and we're still trying to do that. Two, what we have today with Ebola, in which products were, as you can see, in early development. And this really puts, it, puts us of having to pull things, not just just wait for things to come into advancement. We're pulling them through. And this is greatly showed in the next slide with the Ebola therapeutics landscape. You can see there are a number of candidates that are in phase one. And what that means is that we're just trying to see if we know what a, a, a therapeutic dose looks like. And those are studies that are in the United States, some are in the UK, some are just now starting in Africa. We've been heavily invested from the beginning with what we think is one of the better ones, the ZMAP. This is a tobacco-based monoclonal antibody product. Um, we think that it uh, has great potential. It's starting, it will be starting in February in Africa and in the U.S. Also, you see this big box, Ebola Cho Cell monoclonal antibodies. This was something that we told no one could work. You can't do that. It doesn't work. That antibody doesn't work in show cells. It, it doesn't, you can't do that. We said, okay, I, I don't really believe you, okay? That doesn't sound right. So we went to, back in August, went to the major manufacturers of monoclonal antibodies that make it for cancer drugs, make it as uh, rheumatoid arthritis drugs. You all have heard of these. To the Amgens of the world, the Genentechs, the Regenerons, the Mercs, and said, can you help us here? Can you make a, a Cho Cell version of ZMAP? Because we know that tobacco plants, because they're so early, it's, a, it's, not, it's not a proven technology yet, you can't make it at commercial scale. Can we make it at commercial scale on a Cho Cell? Do you have some specialized Cho Cells for that? And we got into pre-competition space, and we moved this forward. I'm just very proud to say, but I, just could, I couldn't believe it myself. From September to now, so we actually are now testing in non-human primates brand new Ebola monoclonal antibodies. And that's because we have cooperation between companies, they're competing against one another, and the, the fact that we are responding to a crisis. Now, we need, to, we need to formalize that. We need to actually have that in our centers. We need to be able to do that type of technologies every, for any type of crisis that comes along. But we've learned from this. And hopefully then, we, we, in 2015, later on, we, if these work, we'll have thousands of doses of these monoclonal antibodies. But there are other antiviral drugs that are out there that DOD and the NIH are being supporting, and we're going forward with those. But we like to say BART is across the world, and that's certainly we have, we have efforts and people across the world that are working on these medical countermeasures. 
I changed over to flu because it was uh, 2004. I was brought in for H5N1 and to work through that one. And we set up a strategy. And we said, well, <laughs> we know it's egg-based. It's a commoditized, the largest vaccine uh, market of all. And how can we make that industry work together? Not change, but work together to change. Okay. So we actually said we have couple of ways we can do this. We can modernize the technology to manufacture with, from egg-based to cell-based to recombinant-based. It speeds it up, greater capacity. But can we make the vaccine better? And I'm going to come back to that because that's very, very important. Also, can we make more of the vaccine available by using adjuvants with antigen-sparing techniques? Okay. And then, then can we make sure we have stockpiles of pre-pandemic vaccines for the critical workforce so that at least they, they have, take that vaccine, they will, won't die, uh, they won't get real sick, so they at least can do it. Or can we actually start immunizing people in between pandemics to actually have them uh, ready with just one dose of pandemic vaccine? Again, I'll come back to that. And then we just needed to build up the infrastructure in the United States because the flu vaccine manufacturing infrastructure had, it crumbled, and I remember very well when Julie Gerberdine was sitting before Congress, and she was having to testify, and Jesse Goodman at that time at Sieber had to come up and say, um, we just are down to one manufacturer now because we had to shut down Chiron in England. I remember it very, very well. So we went from a capacity of 100 million down to 50 million in one day, and that's really pushed um, the administration to move forward. And we all agreed we have to build domestic manufacturing. Within two years, we had um, two other manufacturers come in, GlaxoSmithKline and Commonwealth Serum Laboratories in the United States. And then we built up more from that. And that where they, and Novartis bought Chiron, and they straightened their uh, way they did things out. So they actually became the second biggest manufacturer of flu vaccine in the United States, Sanofi being the first, and Glaxo being third, and CSL fourth. And then we have Metamune with a, a different type of flu vaccine. <coughs> and now we have more. We set up, and we, we led, so what are the results of those efforts? We licensed the H5N1 vaccine in 2007, the first one of any type of pandemic vaccine. But then in 12, first cell-based vaccine was licensed with the Novartis, the first recombinant vaccine in 2013 from Protein Sciences, and then antigen-sparing vaccine, the pandemic vaccine, GlaxoSmithKline, in 2013. So we've... We've climbed that ladder to get there, but I come back, what was the thing I said before? What's the most important thing that's now driving us crazy with seasonal flu vaccines? Effectiveness, being able to have the right strain to match the right one. One of the ways to do that is, is to go for the holy grail, what we call a universal flu vaccine. And what would that look like? A, more effective vaccine, where it protects 80% of the population, regardless of your age. Two, it gives you greater cross-protection against whatever flu strain it is. Third, duration of immunity. Not just one year. We want it five years. And lastly, we want it to serve as a primer for pandemic influenza. So you don't need but one dose of pandemic influenza vaccine. Not two, but one. If we can do that, then we will have marked our place in history uh, with such an effort. People have been doing it for trying to do this for 50 years. So it's not a small feat. Doctor, do we now have an, an, a significant inventory 
of the pandemic flu vaccines that have been developed? So of the pre-pandemic vaccines, the H5N1s, the H7N9s, and certainly we, the H1N1s is, is part of the seasonal influenza vaccine now. Yes, and I will actually show you on this slide. We actually have enough uh, H5N1 vaccine and adjuvant to immunize approximately 200 million people. We have enough of the H7 and 9 to uh, probably immunize about 40 million to 60 million people at this time. Um, these stockpiles need to be renewed. They need to be freshened up. We are unbelievably made the right decision. We said we're going to put these vaccines at the manufacturer and store it there, not in the strategic national stockpile, in vials. We'll have enough time to actually fill those, those vials and get them out there. And it's a, showed us that we don't have to throw these vaccines away. Some of these are eight, nine years old, and every day is a record. We set a record by keeping this. And working with Novartis, with others, we're able to make sure these vaccines go longer and to be protected every day for this. We've built new facilities and helped with manufacturers, not because we just gave the money to them. No, we did this in a cost-sharing way. And so we've actually took old facilities that were going to be torn down and built new facilities. On the left, you see the one up in Swiftwater, Pennsylvania with Santa Fe Pasteur. And on the, on the right, you see the Novartis facility that uh, we built as a cost-sharing partnership that uh, won the 2013 award for best facility in the world. And again, there's another shot of that. And here are the, just examples of our uh, Centers for Innovation, Advanced Development Manufacturing. where Each one of those represents a consortium. It's just not one institution. They represent universities. They represent several companies there, and they can draw on the, the expertises of those members in that consortium for each one of these. It may be that we actually need more centers, though, and, and that would be one of our challenges. Again, I talked about our field finished manufacturing network. We have four of those across the country. They're working right now. They're filling ZMAP uh, monoclonal antibody to go into people right now. This is the slide. This is the one I'm most proud of right here. This is actually, yes, sir, I'll, this is just, I'll finish up with this one, is that from when I talked about the Chiron shutdown in 2005, and as you go to 2014, look at the difference in the amount of vaccine capability we have. We had a capability of about 100 million. We're almost to 600 million right now. And by 2017, 17 and 18, we will be way over 600 million doses in six months. But it's not with just one type of vaccine or just one company. It's many different types of vaccines that we've invested that wouldn't exist without your, uh, not your wisdom and your gracious uh, generosity in providing the appropriations previously and to make those vaccines available. And so bottom line is that some – uh, actually 60 Minutes said about us when they recently talked to us, that we are the federal agency that no one has ever heard of but should have. So thank you. Uh, thanks, Doctor. We'll, we'll come back and have some questions. That was great. Uh, Dr. Mansour, a long record, distinguished service in the federal government, and uh, like uh, the three of us here, eventually self-liberated and went out into the private sector. And now... Uh, now here uh, with uh, uh, Novartis as the uh, Senior Director of the Medical Countermeasures. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Senator. It's a pleasure to be here in front of the panel. Um, thank you. Um, it was indeed 9-11. That was a pivotal event in, everyone, in all of our lives. Uh, uh, 
for me, what it triggered was a request to my current boss at the time, Francis Collins. I was working at NIH uh, on the Human Genome Project. Uh, and uh, following the events of 9-11, an office opened down at the headquarters of HHS. And they were looking for people to support the effort there. D.A. Henderson was leading the effort, of course. Um, and I went down to do a 30-day detail. And 13 years later, I'm still in this medical countermeasure space. So um, the Human Genome Project did just fine without me. <laughs> and uh, uh, I can say that being in this uh, medical countermeasure space is one of the greatest uh, professional challenges uh, that I've ever uh, faced, uh, privileged to be a part of. And can also say, again, now more than ever, I do not sleep well. Um, we are ready. We, we are not ready, I would say. We have so much to be proud of. Robin did a brilliant job, I think, summarizing many of the accomplishments of the enterprise over the past decade plus. Um, but what I look at is the environment in which we are now seeing ourselves. Uh, and from, again, a threat perspective, I think we need to start with the threat. Uh, and I will focus primarily on pandemic influenza. Uh, again, these are all top priority national security threats, not only recognized by the health community, but by leaders, General Clapper and the intelligence community, uh, and again, leaders in government that really acknowledge that uh, this goes far beyond a public health issue, although to what <coughs> Dr. Levy you know, claimed, we are wholly dependent upon the public health system in order to have the ecosystem we need to succeed in this space. But the threat is persistent, it's dynamic. Uh, if we even just think about flu, uh, Robin mentioned the various strains that, uh, for which we have stockpiles for. One of the sayings uh, amongst flu manufacturers is if you've made one flu vaccine, you've made one flu vaccine. Uh, it, it is a challenging virus, it is a very dynamic virus. Uh, we're seeing that, as Robin alluded to, play out this season. Uh, and as we just look around the world uh, at, the, t at the, uh, the way that this virus evolves and presents itself, preparedness is a continuum. And again, we have made great progress and we feel very <laughs> a lot of pride in, uh, about what has been accomplished. But I think with each of these events, uh, with H1N1, the pandemic experience, again, the, the graph here represents, it's a sort of a graphic from uh, a presentation or a publication by Reno Rapuli and Phil Dormitzer that demonstrates while it was a historic response, and I think Robin alluded to the fact that vaccine was uh, uh, manufactured faster than it ever had been before, unfortunately the bottom line is it was too little too late. It was not fast enough. Uh, and so the upper right corner reflects the 2010 report from the White House from the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology a very eloquent and well thought out report that articulated a number of elements that we needed to attend to, really focusing primarily on the science and technology. We needed to do better, we needed to be faster. And from a Novartis perspective, again, a lot of pride in driving innovation and being a partner with uh, the U.S. government. And again, inherent, as, as Robin alluded to, inherent in our success in the medical countermeasure enterprise and in biodefense is the public-private partnership inherently. There are many partnerships that are critical, the, the partnerships with the public health systems, but it, it is really dependent. One of my first jobs, one of the first reports I wrote, wrote uh, in response to the Project Bioshield Act was the barriers to implementation of the Project Bioshield Act. Uh, and one of the primary barriers were the opportunity costs. As Robin mentioned, the expertise really resides in industry, and what the government is asking is industry to redirect those resources to support their requirements. 
And it's really establishing that public-private partnership and those incentives for industry to direct their attention to these government needs that is fundamental. What is of concern is the dramatic shift. So there were certain tenets about the public-private partnership. Uh, having a market that was secure was a, a fundamental tenant of Project Bioshield. We saw, saw, again, in large part response to the anthrax attacks on 9-11, an infusion of significant investments, multi-billion dollar, multi-year commitments to establish a market for biodefense. Um, also, in response to pandemic influenza, again, we saw the emergence of H5N1. We saw uh, the shortage uh, in 2004 with the vaccine. And we saw SARS. And similarly, there was a trigger there that we need to do something. And we, in we invested, the government, thank you, provided $6 billion to support the initial efforts that Robin led at, at BARDA. Um, and so it was really those early commitments of significant, substantial, multi-billion dollar, multi-year budgets that drove many of the successes that Robin so nicely articulated. Both of those funding streams, Project Bioshield, this $5.6 billion 10-year uh, appropriation that basically expired and was fully utilized in September 30th, 2013. And similarly, the PAN-FLU preparedness budget uh, was uh, expended at the end of 2013 through the budget documents that HHS has provided. All of that funding had been drawn down. So we're in a new stage. We're in a very new environment right now. Obviously, uh, the fallout of the fiscal, uh, the fiscal crisis that we all see, the global financial crisis, and the consequences that has had on government budgets, yet the threats persist. Um, so our concern is that as we have moved into this very different funding environment, so for example, just to speak to pandemic influenza, it started with a $5.6 billion budget uh, in 2000, fiscal year 2006. Uh, it lasted for eight years, so that's about $750 million a year. It is currently funded at $72 million. We're seeing an order of magnitude reduction in our government support for medical countermeasures for pandemic influenza. And again, the threat hasn't reduced in order of magnitude. Arguably, it's increased. Um, and again, fundamental to the partnership um, is understanding that uh, for H7N9, the U.S. government was the only customer in the world. There is no... There is no customer for pre-pandemic vaccines. If there's a pandemic, it's a different situation. But what we're talking about really is preparedness. And what do we need to do once we've built these beautiful buildings that have these enormous capacities and capabilities? What do we do to ensure that once we've built a building or once we have purchased a stockpile 10 years ago, the question is, are we ready today? We might have a stockpile, we might have a building, but what we need to do is do the drill. And I think DOD and other entities understand this. You build something and then you need to test and evaluate. One of the greatest opportunities and examples of that came for us, Robin alluded to it, the H7N9 virus emerged in March 2003. And what we had the opportunity to do, Robin, again, all of us, very proud of the compression. We moved faster than we ever had before in developing a, rec uh, a vaccine and providing a stockpile. We integrated new technologies, many of those mapped to the PCAST report that we talked about uh, that was written in 2010. Uh, again, the use of adjuvants, the, the use of the new uh, cell culture platform that was first licensed by Novartis in 2012. Uh, we also have new very promising technologies, an RNA-based, um, what we call a SAM platform vaccine 
uh, technology that might indeed someday provide the type of ra rapid response or vaccines on demands are the types of technologies that we test in situations like H7N9. But ironically, what got exposed with the H7N9 response is that science and technology might actually gotten, have gotten out in front of other elements that are critical to a rapid response. So yes, we can get a sequence from China on one day, on Sunday, Easter Sunday it was in 2013, and the next day begin generating a seed virus that becomes the, the candidate virus for a, a vaccine. And within actually days now, we can go from a sequence to a vaccine candidate, and yet we found out that it was issues of uh, permitting, being able to get the proper permits. So we talked about, again, the risks of synthetic biology. And when you have new viruses, again, it's, we're, we're all committed to biosafety and biosecurity. We need to make sure that those steps aren't unnecessarily rate limiting when we're mounting a medical countermeasure response to a potential national security threat. Um, issues of decision making. You know, when do we move? How fast do we move? What funds do we have available? When the government currently has $72 million to support pandemic influenza, the question Robin alluded to, can you replenish stockpiles? Can you mount a rapid response to a new threat? Uh, in addition to driving towards so this holy grail of universal flu vaccines. So they're asking the program to do a lot with so little right now. And that becomes a real concern not only for the government and the programs, but uh, again, the terms of the partnership and what is so important to the partnership in ensuring that there is a sustained commitment. So we have built Again, award-winning, state-of-the-art facilities. Uh, we have purchased stockpiles, but we have much more to do. And I think it's by sort of doing rapid response to, to novel threats, whether they present pandemic or not. It's not just the stockpile. It's the value of doing the drill, of training the people, of learning something new about a novel vaccine strain, how we manufacture it, how it, how it presents itself clinically is an Important, critically important element of our preparedness. So it's, it's going beyond the stockpiles and the buildings as we continue to sort of aim toward enhancing our preparedness posture. So I'll stop there. I'll look forward to the discussion. Very provocative. We're ready to ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, we got a lot Great. of questions. Yeah, terrific, terrific. <laughs> um, but let's go on to Dr. Lucy first. Uh, Dr. Lucy is an infectious disease physician who teaches at Georgetown and as one of those uh, noble people who uh, went right to the problem, worked in Freetown, Sierra Leone, uh, in August of uh, last year on Ebola testing internet transit unit uh, for the Ministry of Health training uh, workers there. So he brings a, not only a, a, a deep and a long uh, background of experience, but some very uh, fresh and relevant experience to us. We, we thank you both for what you've done and for being here today. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Secretary, and Bob, thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, I don't have any slides, and I really have very brief uh, remarks, uh, so I'm happy to take uh, questions. Okay. Uh, so as you mentioned, I did work uh, with patients with Ebola for nine weeks, uh, initially in Sierra Leone in August, and then six weeks with uh, Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Monrovia, which at the time, in Liberia, which at the time was the epicenter. Now Freetown, Sierra Leone is the epicenter. Um, and, uh, and prior to that, um, I've uh, been fortunate to have the opportunity to go Places in the world where there are outbreaks pretty much every year since 2003. You say you're fortunate to go to these places. I think they're fortunate to have you to go to these places. Uh, no. <laughs> so for me, it's, 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 it's a professional and personal uh, privilege to be able to, to go and to meet with colleagues, doctors, nurses, public health officials, and others. Uh, I always try to bring something to offer in exchange for the information that I'd like to, 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 to learn from my colleagues and, and whenever possible be able to be involved with direct patient care. 
uh, that's 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 the most important thing to me. It's not always possible, but it was for Ebola. Um, there weren't so many of us going, and there weren't so many um, uh, doctors. There are very few in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and uh, in Liberia, because uh, a lot of them have died, and others are understandably very frightened about uh, getting infected. Um, and prior to that, as Robin alluded to, uh, uh, 2013 and early 14, I spent maybe six months in the Middle East and North Africa because of Middle East respiratory syndrome. And prior to that, you know, uh, H5N1, H7N9, uh, Nipah virus, uh, and, uh, and SARS in 2003, and of course anthrax, um, which I was involved with go back to the 80s when I was in the military, and in the 90s I was in the public health service, and then um, here in 2001, I was the chief of the hospital uh, infectious department at uh, Washington Hospital Center, so quite involved um, with the anthrax response in 2001. And was fortunate to go to, to Russia to Sverdlovsk to um, a couple years ago to meet with doctors who took care of the patients, doctors who are still alive who took care of the patients in '79. So for me, that's what I found most valuable in terms of understanding about new diseases or old diseases that may reappear in new places, such as anthrax. Um, and um, I, I guess the one thing I want to say about the Ebola is that I, I think that uh, we could have and should have done a whole lot better, and that uh, overall, if there's one phrase or term that I would uh, uh, propose uh, to capture what we need to do better is uh, effective operational leadership. So you identify what's wrong, and then you need to make it right. When you say we, are you thinking about the U.S. or the world <coughs> health uh, community? I'd say the, the, the global health community, yeah. we, national, international, right. in, individuals, organizations, we. Our species <coughs> against the virus species. So I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you're a man of action, not words. <laughs> Thank you. Very unusual here in Washington. <laughs> All right. Um, Dr. Robinson, let me start w with you. Um, we just come through this uh, Ebola scare, and uh, it was obviously very real. Uh, certainly in uh, Africa, uh, it, it created, as uh, you know, a kind of uh, panic here. People were very emotional and frightened about it, with justification or not, I, I, I don't know. And uh, I've been out of Congress for a couple of years, but I, I can just imagine what the letters and phone calls were to uh, the offices, which is, uh, you're the government, get, wh where's the, not just was uh, so-and-so uh, not well handled in Dallas, but wh where are the vaccines? Where are the medical mm -hmm. countermeasures? So um, right now, there aren't, we can't say there are any vaccines or medical countermeasures, although there's stuff in the pipeline. Is that right? That's correct. We would hope that uh, the vaccines that are about to go into phase two trials would know by later in the spring whether they work. And it's really important to know whether they work. Sure. And that they're safe. And at that point, the world... These are all prophylactic, right? That's correct. That's correct. There's, there's one that may be post-exposure prophylactic, but we actually need a number of studies to actually really prove that. The world will need to make a big decision if it shows that one or more of these vaccines are uh, efficacious or work. And that is, do we do a mass vaccination campaign in at least the three affected West African countries? The Gavi has uh, put up $300 million <coughs> towards 12 million doses of vaccine. We're ensuring that the manufacturers can make that vaccine, the millions of doses. That's 
the support that we're doing with them and working with them as partners, and they will be able to do that so by the time we get an answer, they will be have that capability. Uh, thankful for you that the PREP Act that was enacted is now the template for the rest of the world in how to provide the designers, the manufacturers, and the administrators of the, these vaccines and other medical countermeasures the liability to relief to go forward in uh, in these in these countries against any suits that might be filed here in the United States. But now the UK is actually actively trying to uh, move a bill through Parliament there, and the other countries are similarly. So let, let me come back to yeah. my question because it's very hard to ask you to do this, but I will anyway. And tell me if you can't. Can you predict when there will be a vaccine or medical countermeasure for uh, Ebola within a, a broad range? I don't want, this, year, this, this, this year, this year, in 2015. At, at some point, we will have hopefully enough. And I think I think that the vaccines, because they do stimulate the immune system very well, it may take for one of them it may take two doses, for the, one of it may take only one dose. But right. I think we will have the data to tell us by the middle of the year. The therapeutics. We think that ZMAP has a really great chance of working. We think there's one other drug that we're supporting, the NIH is supporting, has a good chance, but we won't know until probably middle of the year. Middle of the year, we'll know. I, I take it you would say that the, the, the citizens, not only here, but maybe in Africa as well, um, yearning uh, that there would be a quicker process was not science-based, if I can put it that way. Or asked another way, is there something different? Is there, is there some change in the way BARDA operates, your authorizations, whatever, statutory authorizations that would have enabled you to produce uh, vaccines or countermeasures more quickly? Not in this case because these candidates were so early in development. Yeah. Had they been where we were when PAN flew, it would be much easier because they would be much further in development. We would have the uh, uh, regulatory agencies would have much more regard and, and information to base their decisions to license or approve these vaccines and therapeutics, and um, so I don't th I, I don't think there's much more of an authority that we could do to speed things up. But I, there are some things that we can do. I think Monique pointed to one of the things that we have gone over and over again. This is a permitting, and we we would like to see some reasonable thoughts of, of emergency permitting, not regular day for USDA and FDA and CDC, but in emergencies, a crisis like this. You mean from so, a, uh, that circumvents or, uh, the normal FDA? That doesn't circumvent. We, we would like to just cut the time. In uh, other words, I think— about FDA. FDA, yeah. well, uh, for permitting, for permitting, just to move things across borders. Uh -huh. it, it turns out it's a—we it's, it's a, it, lost more time in, with H7 and 9 than we did with that one than it takes to actually make the vaccines in some cases. I, we have a proposal in which we'd like to see it 48 hours. We think it's reasonable. We know the people at different agencies. We know that we can do this, but it just has to become a high priority. If they have 48 hours instead of a week or indefinite time to, to approve these permits so we can move things over from one border to another, then we don't lose time that way. And, and that's real important. We've seen it with H7 and 9. We've seen it a little bit with Ebola uh, in, in initial days, but it, it's, we've worked it out. But that's just people. We need to actually have a system available to do that. Okay. There's some internal things in HHS that we can do to speed things up, but those are, those are policy things that S Secretary uh, Burwell can take care of. Governor Rich. Yeah, a couple of things, if I might, Dr. Gordon, with you and then come back. Um, 
Was MARTA designed to help expedite the approval of countermeasures? Was that one of the goals that's, to have you? That, that, that's correct. Time and time again, the approval, FDA approval, unlike the European approval, is uh, You had any impact on expediting the approval of countermeasures? So we Did actually, the test? Yeah, PAPRA, uh, the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness uh, Reauthorization Act, actually put together, gave the, the FDA authority to have uh, more science uh, uh, advisory committees and also to provide um, regulatory development plans. Those have actually started working, and we're actually seeing expedite. And what it does is it brings the sponsor, the companies, to the FDA more frequently in an in a, a, um, informal situation so they, they don't feel like they're under the gun every time they see them. And, it's, and there's a, quite a bit of uh, help there. We actually have within BARDA a regulatory uh, group of about 30 individuals that have regulatory experience. So before they submit their regulatory filings, we actually they are helping. I'll give you one example. We have. I understand, I yeah, understand that, but, but why would we need an agency to help expedite another agency get their work? No, 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 no. no. Helping the companies to actually provide documents to, and applications to the FDA that are, are going to be right the first time, right. and so that that small companies that don't have experience in doing that really need that kind of help. And we and it has worked out very well, in fact, and they're very appreciative of that. But but overall, I would say the statistics say. That if you look at the medical countermeasures that BARDA is invested in, and because BARDA was there, the time length of actually to be approved has actually been shortened. And uh, we have actually uh, statistics on that with a number of the CBRN and pandemic influenza uh, medical countermeasures. That's the panel. What's the next Ebola that you're working on? I mean, we've used red cell terrorists. The terrorists are there now, but if we were there, we'd do this. What's the next mutant? What's the next mutation or mutation? What's the next Ebola? So we're always on the lookout for, for influenza. We're, and there's always a scare. And we actually do a periodic reassessment of what are the high priority novel strains that are circulating out there. And we, we formally do this with a risk assessment tool. But we, we certainly, certainly in this country, public health, a chikungunya virus is something we're going to have to come to grips with because there are so many people. It may not kill everyone. Like we're, you know, with the high mortality with Ebola, but it does make a lot of people sick, and, and it really provides some residual uh, after effects or sequelae that have to be uh, dealt with by a physician like Daniel at different times. So I think that that's just an example. One of the things I would like to see as part of a global effort that the U.S. government would use uh, as BARDA as one of the templates for this effort is a prioritization of what are the top 20 select eight, uh, emerging infectious diseases. And globally, we work together uh, to make new products and at least take them through phase one, at least make sure we have clinical data and make sure we can make that product, whether it's a vaccine or antibody or <coughs> small drug, to those top 20 in a commercial scale. And we can stop there. And, and, but if we can get to that where we're the same thing that we've been doing with the select agents that Department of Homeland Security has identified to us for uh, under Project BioShield, to actually try to address them, where we have worked towards, though, and, and we have now a, a medical countermeasure and development for every one of those. I think we need that for emerging infections. But it's not just a U.S. problem. It's a global problem that we have to work with. Senator Dushman. Dr. Robinson, we talked earlier today about synthetic biology and what contribution it can make to medical countermeasures. Are you investing in it now? 
Yes, we actually worked with Novartis. We invested uh, five years, uh, four years ago with Novartis and the Craig Venter Institute. We, th there was, we thought there was an idea there that we could actually make flu virus strains much quicker. And basically is that as soon as we have the sequence of it, Craig Venter convinced us that he could do this. Then we, we said, uh, and then they could make the strain well, hopefully within a week, within two weeks, and then it actually it's worked out to be less than a week. And uh, we actually gave them back in, in 2010 an H7N1 strain, just to say, see if you can do it. And then the, in 2010-11, then it came about the uh, swine flu, that the H3N2 that was in the state fairs. We gave that to them. They turned it around. And then for real, in H7N9 in 2013, they did it. And, they, and, uh, and the, the importance of that is then we can actually make a vaccine that's just not strained, but it's a strain that you can actually have good production yields. And that was what really burned us in 2009. It was so hard to make the vaccines there because the strains just gave us poor yields to begin with. If we had the strains, the yields that we had with H7 and 9 back in H1 and 1, we would have been able to take that curve that Monixia and it had more vaccine before the peak. And so Dr. that's. Lucy, you know. I, I just got to have to ask, ask you. I, I couldn't agree more strongly with your observation that we need a far better organizational response capability globally and nationally than, than we have today. But. I, I can't let you go without giving us some guidance. What are your number one and number two contributions, suggestions for how we do that? Again, I think leadership is uh, essential, even better leadership than we've had. Um, so one specific uh, recommendation, uh, it's controversial, I'm sure, but uh, it pertains to the World Health Organization for global outbreaks, so for Ebola, for example. Uh, I think that there should be uh, a... Uh, expert committee that's external to WHO, that's experts around the world, um, geographically and culturally, uh, that advises the Director General of the World Health Organization when she should convene the WHO International Health Regulations mandated committee to advise her on whether an event in the world such as Ebola uh, 12 months ago, 10 months ago, nine months ago, eight months ago, should have been declared a public health emergency of international concern, which it wasn't done until August the 8th. And the first report on March 23rd in the WHO website and subsequent ones on April 3rd and April 7th of 2014 about the Ebola outbreak already specifically explicitly stated that there were Ebola, patients with Ebola in Conakry, the capital of Guinea. That's never happened before in the preceding 24 outbreaks of Ebola since 1976. Ebola's never come to a capital city. And if you, you know, if we in America only care primarily about that because capital cities have international airports, then okay, that's the reason to care. The main thing is to care and to have a proportionate and appropriate response. So as the wording of the international health regulations was updated in 2005, as is this now, only one person can convene this advisory committee and that's the director general herself. And then she and she alone can decide on how to rule on the committee's advice, whether to declare event public health emergency of international concern or not, as was done very quickly after the first meeting in 2009 about pandemic H1N1 flu. But in contrast, has uh, not been done despite seven such advisory committee meetings for the Middle East respiratory syndrome between July of 2013 and October of 2014. 
each time that advisory committee has said no, MERS does not constitute a public health emergency for national concern. So my point is that she convened that committee seven times to evaluate Middle East respiratory syndrome, but she didn't con con convene that committee once in March, April, May, June, July until August to advise on Ebola, even though from the very beginning that we, when it was recognized, which is three months after it began in Guinea in December 2013, it was in the capital of one of the countries, and soon thereafter it was in Monrovia and Liberia and, and subsequently in Freetown and Sierra Leone, and that now is the epicenter of Ebola in the world, Western Sierra Leone, um, which is where the capital is. I'd say that's the one big scale thing. Smaller scale, you need to, if the will's got to be there, the political will and everything that flows from that to create a rapid response, well-trained, adequately led, adequately supported, funding and otherwise, team from this country that is really prepared for everything, including Ebola and, and Marburg and everything else, respiratory transmitted pathogens, including gain of function pathogens. It's not just going to be H5N1, H7N9. There are other countries in the world, some of whom don't like us, that are, in my opinion, that are actively working on gain-of-function experiments with other viruses and probably bacteria as well to make them more easily spread, to make them more deadly, to make them resi resistant to our countermeasures. Spread by people? Could be people. So the, 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 the scenario of ISIS, you know, people with Ebola coming yeah. from Mosul to Washington, D.C., et cetera. Right. But also airborne spread, yeah. potential uh, fecal-oral spread, all the usual ways. Yeah. So we should have that. You know, I think Doctors Without Borders really thought, and maybe some of them still think because they're still talking about it, including the president, Joanne Liu, that the United States and other, other countries, UK, others, had some semi-secret group of people that were already trained and prepared to respond to Ebola anywhere in the world, or at least inside the United States. Um, I don't know. I used to serve in the military, in the public health service. Um, I, I'm not aware of such a yeah. group. But we should have one. And why don't we? Right. Really, you guys are the decision makers. Why don't we? And when are we going to have it? Here, here. So those are the two things I'd suggest. Thank you. Very helpful. Uh, Scooter, Tevi, anybody at the table? Yeah. I guess I had one. Um, first of all, thanks for all you've done. It's a long way from 2001 and the days when it started. Um, one of the things the panel has been very concerned about is whether we're setting the right priorities and how we set those priorities and whether that's giving clear guidance to industry and government and the medical and public health communities as they go forward. Uh, I was interested to hear you talk about setting new priorities a, a minute ago. And I have this vague recollection that BARDA set a five-year plan, and I was curious what the priorities were um, that you set and how you got to them and whether you feel they've been effective with industry. So we had you know, five priorities and ob objectives, and I would have to say this year and uh, year four, we've met all of them. Ebola helped us out because it forced the issue of the last remaining threat that we had, that we did not have a medical countermeasure in advanced development, then do it, and, and we're doing it now. But it was part of this building public-private partnerships, a robust development pipeline to be able to provide these core assistance programs I talked about with the will of different uh, activities and functions. And to be able to take products that are uh, already licensed for other purposes and reuse those for new indications. And uh, we have been doing that with a number of uh, antineutropenia cytokines, also different antibiotics. But also as we go forward with new products to make sure 
that they actually have multiple functions and that they actually can work not only for a bio threat, but they can also work for public health. The President actually provided an executive order that actually expanded BARDA's ability on the antimicrobial drug to actually be able to work not only ones against bio threats, the plague, the tularemias, and so forth, but also for public health. But we always ask, if it works for that, does it work for the other? And by doing that, actually, industry has, has uh, been awakened in that area for antibiotics. So we said, we'll help you with some of the studies because we actually need the safety data to support what we're doing with the, the uh, bio threat antibiotics. And uh, we've gone from a pipeline of zero, and we couldn't, we, we couldn't give the money away in 2009. In 2010, we start, I have three drugs that are in pivotal phase three studies right now. One of them actually met all its endpoints for a um, uh, bacterial pneumonia, community-acquired, and it also works against plague. And so I think that by doing that, and, and we actually are asking in the next budget, the double of the amount of money that we have for that uh, to be able to provide those, those multifunctions. But it's across the board. If I have two product candidates, I have one that's multifunctional that work against a biodefense and against the public health, and the one that only works against biodefense, I'll choose the one that has both indications. There are certain, there are certain ones that only can be done for a biothread. I, I, we get that. We understand that. Um, but we can build up the platform technologies that can enable them to be used for both. And that helps industry, too, because then allows them to, to serve their uh, everyday purposes and also public health. Uh, Debbie? I have a question. Um, you, you said that there have been uh, two dozen drugs that have been approved through BARDA in its whole history. Yeah, most of those are pandemic influenza. Only two have been for the uh, CBRM. One is an anthrax antitoxin. Another one is a botulinum antitoxin. So does that match up with what your goals were when or Congress's goals were when establishing BARDA, and what do you think should be the goals for a number of products that are developed over the next? So we know over over the next five years, we will be we've delivered twelve new products to the strategic national stockpile already. We think by twenty eighteen we'll have twelve more. They'll be in very different areas than we've had before, and also will be to the second generation uh, products, but. One of the things is a big challenge that we have, and I, I didn't really get into it, and that is sustainment. Now that we've built all this, these pipelines, we've built this stockpiles, how do we maintain it? And it was, I, I, we have, it's very short-sighted to think, oh, when we actually put it in the stockpile, that's it. And the funding that CDC gets in the stockpile and the funding that we get to be able to put things in there is, Monique pointed out, is, is much less than it, you would, we have. I'll leave it at that. So, in other words, you're not able to sustain because it, the the drugs they expire. They expire. They expire. Yeah. Right. right. So, life cycle management is something we do. We actually know when they're going to do it. We actually push the companies to make the shelf life of these longer and longer and longer. Right. But we can only do it to a certain point. And I mean, there needs to be a unifying thought process. And funding for this is that when we start a drug, this is what it's, this life cycle management cost is. And we know what those are. We've identified that and worked through those. That if we go 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, this is what it's going to cost to develop it, to manufacture it, to stockpile it, to replenish it, to administer it out in the field, and then to recover it if we have to. 
and that and that's part of the calculus that has to be done. And then hopefully, Congress and the administration will uh, provide the funding for that. But you know, I, I, we, we were authorized for two point eight billion dollars for Project BioShield in two thousand uh, with the Popper Act. Um, that was very gracious, but it didn't come with all the funding, and it didn't come up with the funding up front. Um, we're starting now to see some reverberations of not being able to, to have that upfront funding because we moved to annual funding, and that may be something that needs to be uh, considered again. Okay. Um, yep, yeah, one more, and then we're going to come to uh, Governor Rich. I'll answer the first one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Come on, we take that as um, <laughs> The ability to provide synthetic biology and then technology to do this, um, when we first did it, was not going to be for making the vaccine have greater lethality or greater uh, virulence. And, and certainly was tested for. That's one of the things before it ever leaves the lab, it has to be tested on. So it doesn't have a gain of function. But could it be used for seasonal influenza strains? We actually have tried that to see if it actually can do that. I think that there are some technologies in addition to synthetic biology that can be used with a technique called antigen cartography. There's a set of experiments that uh, we've worked with um, uh, some UK scientists in which we actually said, they presented to us that they could actually predict what was going to be next. And we said, fine. Can you go back, go backwards and then be able to forward and come forward? So we said, go back to H1N1 in 2008, take that virus, put it with the antibodies, which is the way they, uh, the population of a pool of antibodies, and then see if you then start selecting that, the virus that came out of in 2009. They did. They were able to do that. So we asked them just recently, could you do it for H3N2? Because we, we had a mismatch two years ago. And what could you predict? And one of the viruses that they predicted that would come out is the one that actually came out this year. So there are some techniques that they're, they're very rudimentary at this time that we may be able to do a better job of actually uh, providing uh, better vaccine matches. The other thing is that when the manufacturers know that one of the strains is more liable to have drifts away from the vaccine and be a match. And now we've had two in five years with H3 and 2. Move the cycle when you actually make, you manufacture that. Not the first one, which is going to be, take some risk. Move it to the end. Now, unfortunately, the B strains, which there are four strains in the quadrivalent vaccines, are really tough to grow. They're, I mean, it doesn't matter which manufacturer you talk to or when, they're tough. Well, we make a lot of a lot of little kids that are get sick because that it's the late flu was when they. But the issue is that could we make the H3 the last one so that we can 
go all the way up to instead of January or February when we get the news, of, uh, maybe wait till May. And, we've, and we're talking to some of the manufacturers about this. That's a practical way you may be able to address this. But synthetic biology will be part of the solution. It won't be the only <laughs> thing to this. And, and, and we'll make, we may want to talk about this. So if I still, two years out of the Senate, have the uh, capacity to make a point of personal privilege, uh, if I leave now, I, can, I have a shot at the 6 o'clock shuttle. So I'm going to turn it over to Governor Ridge. I know I have some more questions. I want to thank the three of you. Thank all the witnesses. It's been a second extremely productive day. And I want to thank Bob and Asha and Ellen for the work they did. All the Senator National, I'm really uh, grateful that you, you were here all day, and Tom and the, and the front benchers. Um, we're, we're, we've got a real opportunity here to, to make us to come forth with a significant report, and we want it to be to lead to action. I mean, we're, we're definitely going to have some congressional sponsors of legislation that emerges, and we may even make some recommendations to the executive branch. With that, Governor, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you. you know, uh, we have a couple more questions, and we'll let, let you go. We thank you for your patience. Uh, Good job, sure. Dr. Mansour, listening to the, the, uh, the valley of death is a role, is, a, uh, is an arena where BART is very, very helpful to these small companies. Uh, is that correct? Yes, sir. But, 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 but I'm, I'm questioning whether or not the larger companies that have more scientists, more researchers, more infrastructure, more scientists, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very much. The question I've asked, ladies and gentlemen, is I appreciate the role that BARTA plays to help uh, these small enterprising companies try to address some of our national public health needs and deal with epidemics. But our larger companies have the infrastructure, the research, the capability, and the like. Are the incentives different? And why? what incentives do the, the companies that have the built-in capability the build-in infrastructure. You don't have to go build new buildings. You've already got them. You don't have to go hire scientists. You already have them. Yes. So as a matter of public policy, while I like to, listen, I'm all in favor of entrepreneurship and medical research, small, medium, and large, but what is it about our policy that seems not to discourage but may not be as helpful to the larger companies that have the greater capability than it perhaps should be? Yeah, fantastic question, Governor. Uh, let me answer that in two ways. One, there's no doubt that within a larger organization, highly qualified, there is still competition for limited resources and difficult decisions that have to be made. We've talked quite a bit about prioritization <laughs> and how that happens in the government, about what the priorities are for which requirements to address. That same sort of prioritization and resource allocation happens within industry. So as we are looking for the best ways to use talent, to use the scientists, to use the facilities, again, we are looking at a balance of how, again, how to optimize use of those limited resources. And again, what opportunities is the government presenting that I can honestly go before our leadership team and say, here's a great opportunity that competes with all of the opportunities that the leadership team is looking at, right? So one of the challenges that um, we face, I think, Robin 
maybe potentially disidentified and a very interesting strategy if you've got 10 new emerging infectious disease threats or 20. Um, if you take that to phase one, and in a sense, that's what we did for SARS 12 years ago. SARS emerged very rapidly in 2003. Industry was asked to very quickly sort of respond and develop a vaccine. And then again, very quickly, the virus went away. That coronavirus went away. MERS came back a decade later. But arguably, you know, a decade of aggressive coronavirus vaccine research could have been pursued, but the, the government sort of clearly decreased their level of interest in coronavirus vaccines as MERS went away. So one of the strategies Robin's proposing is perhaps let's just go to phase one and stop. Well, from an industry perspective, this idea of stopping at phase one and not pursuing a development program that has an end game, that has a, can, can compete, again, for resources with other programs that are going to deliver products to the market and meet other public health needs, is, I think, one of the ways we have to look at all elements of how we best prepare and engage all of the key stakeholders, including industry. I think, again, transparency as to what the priorities are and understanding um, how the government prioritizes, what its expectations or needs are from industry, and then giving us as much of a runway way as possible because we, again, are doing those priority-setting exercises continually. And, and again, when these new injects come, when new needs arise from the government, we have to look at how best to allocate to be responsible stewards of, of the resources uh, within, a, within our organization. At the end of the day, the government's going to create the market whether the vaccine comes out of a small <coughs> or a large enterprise, does it not? Yeah, again, for H7N9, for, uh, for anthrax, the government has proven to be the only market right. for smallpox vaccines, et cetera. The government is setting, is defining the market. Uh, and as Robin said, you know, early uh, with BioShield and with the contracts, there was some, some roadmap, some transparency. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, and it's even in legislation now, sort of a five-year plan, to be clear about what the five-year plan is for, uh, for the CBRN program, for the PAN-FLU program to, get, again, enable all of the critical partners in this enterprise to align and do what they need to do, secure resources, uh, and, and be able to respond. May, may I add something Wait, yeah, more to the coverage? Um, in the beginning, under our pandemic influence program, we, we worked with a large pharmaceutical company, so that was part and parcel because they made vaccines or antiviral drugs. They were large companies. And when Monique and I were working on, together on the CBRN, there were, there were small companies. They would, large companies would not come because the opportunity costs were just so great they were going to lose. They, they, weren't gonna, they were going to miss out on the next blockbuster drug. That has changed now. We are now getting small companies and large companies to start working on our biodefense medical countermeasures. Uh, and part of it is, is because we said this, this last piece I said, if they can work on something that has for a bio threat and also for a public health indication, and we fund at least portions of that, they will, they will come to the work with us. The Centers for Innovation and Advanced Development and Manufacturing, they are large pharmaceutical companies that are in those consortiums. So Novartis is one of them, GlaxoSmithKline is another, and there are others if we expand those that would be there. So I think that there, there is a, a, a role for both small and large companies, and they will, they, they will come. Lastly is this global um, infrastructure I was talking about. Those, were suge those are suggestions that are, are ruminating now and certainly need a lot of consideration, but they were put out actually by some of the large pharmaceutical companies. Their willingness to come out because uh, they don't want to be in a position again 
of where they're behind uh, trying to catch up during an emerging infectious event that occurs. Any more questions for my colleagues? Senator? No. Bob, I was wondering Robert. if I could just uh, ask one question and, and uh, then just make an announcement for the group. First of all, it's not often that you have a person like Dan Lucy who's been on the, literally in the trenches on the front lines fighting the fight for all of us. Uh, but I was going to ask Dan one question, which is extraordinary individual for a lot of reasons, but from anthrax to Ebola, what are the lessons that you draw from those experiences that may be relevant to this uh, constitution? I'm not sure how to keep that brief enough to allow <laughs> me to, uh, to, to answer it. Um, but I think there are a lot of similarities. For example, the huge fear factor generated by both uh, diseases. Um, but from uh, the uh, medical, public health um, countermeasures, it's probably good we're at opposite ends of the table perhaps here. I don't know, Robin, I hope not. But uh, I think that uh, um, yeah. So all these years after anthrax, we still don't have, don't have a point Thank of. Thank you. Glad you said. Po point point of care very quickly. Point we still don't have a point of to my knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong. Point of care rapid diagnostic test. Things that we absolutely need that we knew that we needed in 2001, 2002. Okay, we don't have a new vaccine. We don't have a polyclonal uh, antitoxin. We have a monoclonal. That's good. That's a big advance. And uh, it's FDA licensed. Sorry, let me, let me clarify. Um, we still don't have an FDA licensed new class of antibiotic for, for anthrax that's FDA approved. So all these things are being worked on. They're difficult problems, but it's 14 years out, 13 and a half years out. Hopefully, so a lot of BioShield, a lot of money has gone forward for anthrax and other countermeasures. And a lot of great work that you heard about here and that you already knew about, um, probably uh, some, some about that you've heard about um, with regard to anthrax. I just hope that in one, three, five, or God forbid, 13 or 14 years from now, we're not having a similar situation with regard to Ebola um, countermeasures and including the rapid diagnostic point of care. And very importantly for Ebola, unlike anthrax, is what I call Ebola personal protective equipment package. So not PPE. Don't say PPE anymore. It's Ebola PPE, personal protective equipment. And it's not just the equipment. It's the whole package about how you safely put it on. When you put it on, there's no virus. So it's when you take it off. That's what's so important. You need to have a security officer or a safety officer or maybe two of them that watch you, make sure you do it correctly because you're so exhausted you can't think clearly and I say that from dressing two to three times a day for 42 days I couldn't think clearly okay so it's clear what's needed that's why I get back to effective operational leadership it's clear what's needed very little of it has been done and it's a failure of leadership thanks to the